everyone, and welcome to Between the Sheets, episode number 442. I'm your host, Chris Zona, joined as always by my co-host, David Bixisman. And Bix, we got a monster show this week, and uh, it's a Patreon requested show by Sean Doherty. So uh, there's no way me and you would have done this show if it wasn't a Patreon requested show, not, at least not yet. So, uh, yeah, there's that. But... We have a new Patreon show, so we got a Patreon to talk about. So yes. I'll let you handle that. Patreon.com slash Twitter Sheets. Tell everyone what our latest show is this month. Way to put me on the spot. We just finished recording it. It should be fresh on your mind. <laughs> I know, but usually you at least start. So, yes, our latest Patreon show that if it is not out right now, it will be the next day or so, is looking at... The 25th anniversary of the finger poke of doom and the fallout, both directly and just the general state of WCW at the time, going through the end of February 99. And, uh, boy, is there a lot. Is that a good yes. way to describe the, the show? A well, lot. yes. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's, I mean, let's just think, look at it. All right, so we'll start with Starcade and the aftermath of that, 98, which leads into that Nitro to Georgia Dome. The finger poke of doom and uh, the complete insanity surrounding that and just, you know, how far in advance that was known, you know, and everything that this was going to happen. Um, Kevin Nash being a political bitch to Hulk Hogan while complaining about Hulk Hogan being in power. So we'll have that. Um, we look at all the, the television, especially Nitro and the aftermath of that. And how they handled the handled this, which wasn't good. Uh, the rise of WF as this is going on, all the while Nitro is still doing really good. I mean, it's while just, WCW WF is, is doing, doing really good business too, <laughs> period. Yeah. Not just the ratings. Yeah, so it's just WF doing better. Um, so there's just a lot going on there. Bill Goldberg on the Tonight Show. So we'll have that. The, the uh, challenge to Steve Austin. Yeah. Just a, a lot a lot of crazy, wacky shit on this show. As again, WCW is just uh, about to start their free fall. So, yeah. And uh, if uh, you may not be interested in this show, then next month might interest you. As next month on Patreon.com slash Twenty Sheets. We look at the 30th anniversary of Missy Hyatt being fired by WCW and her lawsuit stemming from that. And uh, boy, does she have a lot to say. <laughs> yes, that's one way to put it. Um, I, like I said, I haven't read it, of course, because I won't read it until I do the show. Bix, of course, has done the notes. And the way he described it to me is, boy, is there a lot of... Uh, like I said, the word I use is salaciousness on this show. So, yes, she names a lot more names and gets into specifics than I realized in the uh, the big interview she did with Wrestling Perspective late in 1994, which in the notes takes up half the show. Yeah. The, the, the notes basically doubled from like 15 to 30 pages when I added that interview. Well, the thing about Missy at this point, too, is she hasn't been uh, had assigned anything yet to prohibit her from saying anything. Yes. Now, I mean, there's some stuff that she is willing to say now, but 
there's some stuff she holds back on, too, that she admits, you know, people, even if they're deceased, they have families, whatever. You know, she doesn't, she doesn't feel held back about WCW as an entity, because WCW does not exist anymore, but there's still stuff that she signed that she has to abide by, lest, you know, from other parties to lawsuit or whatever. But at this point, uh, that was not happening yet. I mean, you know, I didn't mention on the plug on the Patreon show, but like, for those who don't know, I mean, just she was wanting to go after money that was owed on like for to her for the hotline and for a calendar and stuff. And then she told her lawyer about how uh, she went into CNN Center, went to WCW offices and saw a color photo on the wall of when her boob fell out of her top at Starcade. And that is what got the ball rolling on this. So there you go. So should be quite the show. In February on patreon.com slash 20 sheets. Follows them up. Gets you access to all the audio. You can go 50, 40 a year. So that's na- that's uh, the annual. And yeah, so definitely want to be uh, beyond this. Yes. So patreon.com slash between the sheets. And I do want to say real quick, um, obviously we'll reiterate this when we do the Missy show and plug it then. But I really do want to thank Paul MacArthur for scanning the, uh, the interview he did with Missy in Wrestling Perspective. Because... We have a bunch of wrestling perspective back issues. That was not one we have. And he was gracious enough to take the time to scan it and send it over to me so we could do this show. So big thanks to Paul. And also just in general, him and Dave Skolnick also just do not get nearly enough credit for how how good and how ahead of its time wrestling perspective was. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, that's the Patreon stuff. Well, let's get started, though, on... This well, more monster. Patreon stuff, technically. Yeah, this monster show that Sean Doherty wants us to do. He put down the $25 to do this, which you can if you want to as well. So uh, let's go to the week of January 24th through the 30th of 2014. Ten years. Well, we're not going to the big stuff until the end. So let's start <laughs> off with total nonstop action. Oh, we're not we're, we're not time yet to look in my eyes. What do you see? Well, again, that that part of the show is twenty nine pages. So the you entire know. WWE section is. We're going to section it out into more, but more segments. But yes. So let's start with nonstop action. TNA was able to make a deal to get the building and Universal back. You know, they'll be taping three or four weeks of shows at a time. There, that'll be something if TNA tapes at the same side. As W Hall of Fame. Oh, God. This Because this yep. was the point where they were acting like it could actually happen that there would be a WWE Hall of Fame physically at Universal. Yes. They would go live on March 13th from Orlando, then tape shows for the 20th, 27th, and April 3rd of the next two days. They return April 10th for another three-day taping with one live show and three weeks of tape shows. There'll be four days of tapings from April 26th to 29th. We're April 26 being a one night only pay per view for for August Dave thinks and 27 being a live pay per view the second of four scheduled this year with Slammiversary in June and Bound for Glory in October. Then they'll take two more weeks TV on the 28th and 29th. They'll come back May 7th or 9th for more tapings. We, and it's good news because they couldn't afford the road tapings. They tried, but it's time to go. It's time to go back to their impact zone. Yeah, you know. With the AEW attendance issues, I've actually been curious to, and then I keep forgetting to, 
look back and see like exactly how those on the road tapings actually drew. Well, I mean, it all depends. I mean, AEW has had a lot of issues lately in drawing attendance for various reasons, especially in markets they're going back to. And some of these debut markets are not doing strong. But you look at, I mean, there's some places like the the one in Vancouver that they got coming up in a few months. Yeah, it's Vancouver's doing great. doing great. Yeah, it's doing great. So, I mean, I understand what you're what you're getting at here and saying. I'm that just maybe curious a- to see what the actual numbers was. That's all I'm saying. Maybe, maybe AEW should start to more dailies place again. I don't know. I wouldn't but say I'm- that. No, I mean, they just did all. They were only able to do like three thousand at dailies place. You know, a week or two ago. It was also cold, and it's outdoors. Well, yes. Um, That's I'm the looking, thing about well, Daily's yeah, Place. That, too. I'm looking at history of WWE.com, and I do not see attendances for these uh, for these arena tapings, which they also did the arena tapings for a lot less time than I remember. They didn't start doing it until early 2013. So they were only on the road for about a year. Yeah. And towards the end of the Hogan run. Yeah. And then also, something not mentioned here, but I think we should mention, when they come back, it's a different impact zone. It is. It's not the same soundstage. It's a much smaller one. The old impact zone was just big enough to feel like a real event. And I think losing out on whatever, I forget which number it was, the old soundstage was, you know, the one that people would joke was the Nickelodeon Guts Arena or whatever. I think losing out on that also hurt them a lot. Because now their TV has no atmosphere. Even when the crowds are active, it just looks small time in a way it had not previously. Mm Mm-hmm. Although they're going to get some help from that with the UK tour that they're in the middle of, which we'll talk about in a few minutes. Yes. But anyway. Which, also, real quick, I always thought it was funny how, like, the international TV partners wanted these extra TV specials beyond the pay-per-views they were showing as TV specials, so they did these one-night-only things. You know, and then those were also, like, cheap pay-per-views in the States, but... These TV partners didn't care that these were months-old canned shows that had nothing to do with anything. <laughs> yeah. A funny story regarding MVP. What, did he beat up Jericho? When we reported he was probably the investor and definitely going to TNA, he responded saying he had no contract. They're, they're doing a mystery investor character. I forget exactly what the deal is. Dave just figured he's protecting his storyline. Essentially, that's what it is what he was doing. However, Lisa, this weekend, he had not signed his contract. He did reach a verbal deal and has a deal agreement in place, but had not signed an actual contract. Dang, I've been booked for several weeks with TNA figuring he would sign before going on TV. But when he hadn't signed, they put him on TV anyway, so this is their storyline. This may end up meaning nothing because 2014 is in 1998, where the other side could now steal him. Today, WWE isn't going to sign someone just to screw with TNA. And WWE's building around the younger guys at the training center, and MVP's an older guy, nearly 40. He may have signed at press time as the last word Dave got. He could very well sign, but hadn't when he was on TV. Vince McMahon and Triple H have shown a little interest in bringing him back. After John Laurinaitis, I told him when he left because he wanted to go to New Japan. He was going nowhere in WWE. Plus, he really got in the pro wrestling by watching New Japan tapes and wanted to work for that company. The door was always open for a return. The reason he's using MVP name is because he came up with the idea for the name and the gimmick and trademarked it. 
So he was able to take it with him at the leave WWE. Smart guy there. Now, if I remember right, though, he could be MVP, but WWE owned Montel Vontavious Porter. Yes. Which no one actually cared about. No. No, they had quit calling him that long time. Yes. But he did, but he, you, I mean, did he keep using the MVP name or did he go to another name in TNA? I don't remember. No, he was always MVP. Okay. Because I could have swore he, he at one point had another name in TNA that I missed, but I, again, could be but wrong. He, you know, relative to the absolute dire state of this company, you know, that's six months away from losing its TV deal because Vince Russo doesn't know how to use email. Oh, oh God. Oh, God. I just tempted fate. <laughs> oh, God. Yeah. <laughs> I kind of want to do that, though. I do kind of want to do that show when we get there in six months. The first show and only really regular house show the UK tour was January 29th in Dublin, Ireland, before a thousand fans. Oh, yes, Dublin, Ireland, part of the UK. <laughs> before the show started, Dixie Carter spent an hour plus signing autographs and taking pictures of almost every guy in the crowd. Okay. Then she later came out and played a heel. It opened with Joseph Park and Eric Young and Ivan the Mad Lad, a minor local celebrity, beating Ethan Carter III and Rockstar Spud. The two have matching ring gear, so they are going to be the tag team now. Ivan hit Spud with a stunner and Young pinned him with an elbow off the top. Madison Rain and ODB beat Gail Kim and Lady Tapa. Lady, Lady Tapa. Tapa. Yes. Lady Tapa. I forgot about Lady Tapa. Ever get, match- was he Barbarian's daughter or just his student? Something. In a match where Velvet Sky was a referee, Gail started bullying Sky and shoved her. Sky slapped Gail in the face and Rain rolled her up. They did a deal where Jeremy Borash talked about how lovely Christy Hemi looked. Samuel Shaw came out, yes, Dexter Loomis, and threatened him for talking about Hemi. Hemi was laughing as this was going on. Gunner, TNA Gunner, pinned Bobby Roode with a roll up when Roode was arguing with the referee. The finish was very close to that of the previous match. Rude beat down Gunner after the match, and Kurt Angle made the save. Angle could barely move, and you could see his left knee was hurting. That moves off the cage two weeks earlier probably didn't do him any good. Angle laid out Rude with the Olympic Slam. Angle told the fans that he loved them for sporting TNA. Austin Aries retained the X title winning three over Samoa Joe. Yes, he must have made the 225-pound weight limit. And Chris Saban when Aries pinned Saban after a brain buster. After the match, Joe choked out Saban. Good action. The Bromance retained the tag titles over Christopher Daniels and Frank Kazarian. Bromance said they'd be near, near every team in TNA, so they didn't want to wrestle, but wanted the pose down. Daniels and Kazarian interrupted. This is the best match on the show. Daniels and Kazarian made babyface. Bromance went clean with a bro down. Heart attack on Daniels. Okay, wait, Mac- the Bromance are Robbie E and Jesse Goddard's? Yes. Robert Stone in, in NXT, yes. Yes, and OVW's Jesse Goddard's. Magnus, yes, Nick Aldis of SmackDown General Manager fame, came out for an interview and did an anti-Ireland pro-England promo. He pinned Storm to retain the TNA title. Storm hit Magnus with a super kick, but Spud and Ethan came out. Spud put Magnus' foot on the ropes. While Earl Hebner got mad at Spud, Magnus grabbed the title, but hit Storm with for the pin. After the match, Spud was making fun of Storm and drinking his beer. James Storm, folks. Drinking his beer. Storm super kicked him and the beer went flying. The main event saw Ken Anderson beat Bully Ray in a tables match, billed as a Dublin tables match. 
with a forward fireman's carry putting bully through the table. That that's Dublin. Yes, and by the way, I, I checked. So Lady Tapa, Wikipedia says she's Barbarian's niece and was trained by him and George South. Now I don't know if that means she's John Savage's daughter. It's possible. That's his brother. Yes, Sioni Latu. Notes from the January 30th show in Glasgow. First, the show there on a few hour tape delay. No Taz at the show as he didn't have to fly to Scotland. Mike Tanay was only at the Glasgow show, so most of the UK shows will be voiced over in Nashville. That isn't unusual because Tanay and Taz weren't at most of the Orlando tapings either. They were at some, and when you watch the show, you never know the difference. I will say, Dave said, it's impressive from both an analysis standpoint and production standpoint because most of the time it's really easy to tell when the guys should do it in the studio. The enthusiasm doesn't come off as well, and the sound mixing is usually a mess. Which, by the way, I'll just say it since it came up. Ian and Caprice do not get nearly enough credit for for how lively and non-can sounding their ROH commentary is. That's why they're the best. Yep. TNA's other that's, two was... pe- that's two people who are doing it at home while not in the same room. Yeah. TNA's other strength was evident here in this ability to take a crowd of about 5,500 making it look like 10,000 plus on television. As far as the real major league look, the show had it here. Jeremy Boris replaced Taz. He did a good job explaining that even though Scotland's in the UK, they actually won out and they don't like Magnus. The surprise today was that Magnus wasn't cheered in London or Manchester either. <laughs> he is right. I mean, they're... if they had a like healthy crowd... Their production team was great at making it look, like, fantastic. Like, when they they ran those Sears Center shows that drew, like, five, six thousand, you couldn't tell it was only five or six thousand and looked like a full building. They they did a much better job of making it look like fully three-dimensional than AEW's production people did. Which is funny, because it's a lot of the same production people. (laughs) Yeah. The show with a backstage set argument with Madness, EC3, and Spud with Joe and Angle. Madness, EC3, and Spud came out. Fans booed Madness like crazy, actually. He said this was not show friends, but show business. Now, the president of the company is trying to restructure to get rid of the Deadwood like Sting, Hardy, and Styles. He said Dixie was thinning the herd, trying to get rid of the old dinosaurs lumbering around and creating new stars like the Bromans, Zemount Ion, Spud, and himself. And by the way, we should note, this is the point when all of those contracts are up and all of them leave because they're told they have to take massive pay cuts. And, I mean, in those new stars, Romance, Robbie E, NXT, Zima Ion, Joaquin Wilde, and WWE, Spud, of course, been in WWE off and on. And Matt well, and is on Nick creative Aldis. now. Yeah, and Nick Aldis. <laughs> so there you go. Yes, poor Jesse Goddard. Yeah. Well, he was a turd anyway. <laughs> Given EC3 was in the ring, it was direct slide of him. Madness how, how, the, dare, how dare you say that about someone who follows me on Twitter? Like, he does everyone else to try to get followers. I just, see, here's the thing. I remember him a Big Brother. So that's the thing. Was he that much of an asshole on Big Brother? He's one of the most hated uh, house guests on Big Brother history, yes. I can see it. Madness then made fun of EC3. Okay, Madness sing and then got rid of Hardy, Sting and Styles. EC3 got mad when he used the term single-handedly. Madness then made fun of EC3, but before they could go at it, Joe and Angle came out. They both talked about Sting being gone. 
Angle know that if he beat Sting, it'd be one thing. They screwed Sting over when the stakes were high. Angle said Magnus was a paper champion. The fans were changing paper champion at Magnus. EC3 had like he liked it. Angle said that they now regret they let Magnus into the mafia and made him a somebody. Magnus said he already was a somebody, and now he's champion. He's the main somebody. The crowd was chanting Ethan, want him to turn on Magnus. Magnus suggested he and EC3 versus Joe and Angle. If Magnus and EC3 won, Joe and Angle would have to leave TNA for good. Joe agreed. But said if he and Angle won, whoever scores the pin gets the title match. Joe again called him favorite champion. Magnus agreed to the match. Dixie came out and said the match would not be happening. She also was frantic because she heard the new investor was on his way. She said when a new investor trying to change things, she can't risk Madness losing the title either Joe or Angle. But Madness said there's already a deal in place. Okay. I am not – look, I am not a fan of Nick Aldis as a wrestler. He's a good promo, and I think he's doing great in WWE right oh, now. Oh, he's doing amazing in WWE, by the way. Yes. But at this time, 10 years ago, Dixie being convinced to become this heel TV character, her being at the center of everything, and Aldis as the champion, as all of the big names other than Angle are disappearing, and Angle's gonna follow before too long. I mean, it's not right away, but it happens eventually. You know, after a couple of years, I felt like it just it it came off as desperate. It's like, oh, now you're fine. There's no one else. So we're throwing the cha- the title on this guy. And you combine the Dixie stuff and the people leaving. And they went from feeling like a iffy and cold company to a dying company. And that only gets worse as the year goes on. Yeah. So. All right, Madison Rain and Velvet Sky beat Gail Kim and Lady Tapa in 153 when Sky pinned Kim after the pedigree. They pushes the reuniting of the beautiful people, showing Oak Cliffs of Rain and Sky as a heel team. After the match, Chris Saban came out and was annoyed. He called Rain a tramp and said he needed to talk with his girlfriend. He said that he had called, texted, and tweeted all week and never anything back. He works in wrestling. He's surprised that when there's a problem between TV shows, that nobody returns calls, texts, tweets, or emails. Saban asked her if it was her time of the month. It said a girlfriend should support her boyfriend. Saban said he was willing to give her a chance to say she was sorry and then go back to the back. She can give him a massage and life will go on. Instead, Velvet Sky dumped him and left. Gee, I wonder if there's anyone secretly helping write the shows. <laughs> Women's tag team match gets less than two minutes belt to bell, and then this bullshit. <laughs> It's almost as if Vince Russo is secretly working there, and we're going to find out in a few months. Bro. I mean, at the time. And it was even talked about openly by Meltzer. Everyone suspected that Russo was back. Because all of a sudden, you had shit like this. You had all of a sudden, on promos, the women are constantly calling each other bitches and skanks and all that. Lo and behold... Russo is secretly working there. And the reason he has to be secretly working there is because Spike TV told them that they did not want him around. Yeah. Okay, now I'm excited. I mean, I'm sure it's going to be a lot of notes the week we when we get up to it. I'm looking forward to, like, I, if someone wants to pay 
pay. I mean, I wouldn't be shocked if we just do it anyway. But like now I'm looking forward to doing that week now that I realize, oh, God, that's going to be 10 years. Like, just think about just how stupid that whole fucking story is. And for who, like, and you're doing all this for Vince Russo. Yeah. But have you ever seen something more obviously written by Vince Russo than this? It has his uh, fingerprints on it, yes. And poor Saban and Madison. Wait, was it uh, Saban? No, it's Velvet's the one he's dating, right? On camera, yes. No, they were in real life too, right? I don't remember that. I think I they. I'm pretty sure. When did when did she when did she start up with uh, Bully Ray? I think it's after this. But they were, if I remember right, they were linked on TV because they were a couple in real life. Okay, I don't remember that. So remember when he cashes in the X Division title and wins the world title, and she's aligned with him on screen. I didn't watch TNA really. You know that. I wasn't a TNA I, that fan. That like the only period where I actually watched regularly. Yeah. Like, for a few years here. But it just it's so obvious she's a tramp. She like it says is it asked if it's her time of the month? It's fucking Russo. Yeah. Stop. What? You didn't see my message I sent you? Oh no. I didn't uh, I haven't been getting my notification sounds always work on my Mac. Backstage angle and Joe confronted Bobby Roode. Joe was choking him out and told him he would end him if he interferes in the main event. Roode laughed the whole incident off. I mean, AEW champion Samoa Joe, uh, WWE road agent Bobby Roode, and whatever Kurt Angle is. <laughs> yeah. Me, uh, meme uh, star Kurt Angle, yes. Yes, uh, edforshows.com's Kurt Angle <laughs> James Storm came out called out Gunner he knew the two of them were friends before they were even in TNA then they became partners and then they became tag champions he then said that things fell apart Gunner said he was just trying to be the world champion that's why he attacked Storm to win the briefcase Gunner brought up it was every man for himself and Storm would have done the same thing for his son and daughter Gunner did a long interview about oh, Sermon oh, oh so Gunner did it to save the children I guess Gunner did a long interview about serving the Marines, said he wasn't fighting for the government. He was fighting for the guys beside him. He said Storm knows the stories on why he's called Gunner and talked about how some of his friends died overseas. Storm told Gunner he was a hell of a wrestler and realized he hadn't had his back. Storm said he was proud of him and would have, ha- would have his back. He said he would be the bigger man and said he was sorry for doubting Gunner and they shook hands. Frank Kazarian came out and called Storm a monkey fart and said that Gunner was all beard and no brains. He has to then put the title match briefcase on the line in, that, in, a, in a that match. Whatever that match is. That's a weird typo. Storm and Gunner didn't beat Daniels and Kazarian in 802 when Storm superkate Daniels off the apron and Gunner used to have him put on Kazarian for the pin. Dixie was backstage wanting to know who the secret investor was. Bobby Roode asked Dixie for his title shot in the main event lockdown. Roode said Dixie promised that to him twice when he took out Sting and Styles. Dixie said she couldn't talk to him right now because she's got too much on her plate. Ruse says she's got one week to get my title match until she figures this out. There's no more favors from him. ODB warned Eric Young about dealing with Abyss. Spud said he's going to find out some answers. He came out again and said Scotland was like the England B team. He didn't call out Eddie Edwards and Davey Richards. They're just called the Wolves, so the American Wolves. They said the new investor was who brought them in the TNA. So Dave Lagano's a new investor? 
Spud starts interrogating him with a flashlight. He said he knows how to do it because he watched Mad MTA on television. That was funny. Probably over a lot of audiences' head. <laughs> Spud claimed that he had pushed Hardy off a ladder and had beaten Joe within the interest of life. Well, that didn't happen. Well, he also, said, MVP has never threatened to sue me. <laughs> well, you weren't brought up here. Uh, he said, I'm fierce, I'm a lion, I'm a well, tiger. Well, also, that had not happened yet in 2014. He then slapped Richards in the face. Richards and Edwards and destroyed him and left him laying. Edwards said the investor had decreed in the Joe Angle versus E3 Madness tag management that if anyone interferes, they'll be fired. Bromance with the little contest with Eric Young and Abyss in 502. Abyss hot tagged in. He put the ref on his shoulders and laid about with a shot treatment. Young I tried to talk to Abyss and letting the ref go. Abyss then chose Sam Young. The crowd was booing Abyss. Young challenged Abyss to a Monsters Ball match next week. Abyss smiled about doing that match. Bully Ray came out rolling a casket. They showed Christy Hemi and Sam Shaw. They were at his place. She freaked out because he put his hand on a candle. She loved the view. He grabbed some of her hair. They then showed him going downstairs. She wanted to tour the apartment, but wouldn't let her downstairs. He put the hair on a mannequin dressed up like Hemi. They showed the place as a shrine for Hemi with photos of her everywhere. The funny part of this is in Glasgow. She was there out there watching as this thing played on TV. The announcers made no comment at all about it. <laughs> so in this Sunday, Sanshaw's playing, playing this type of character here, and then we get the Dexter Loomis character, W. I mean, yeah. I mean, they just kept doing the same. I mean, not the same gimmick, but yeah. Murder gloves and everything. The same motif. Yes, yes. Which, at the time, though, like when that character started, it was kind of good. And then, I don't know if it was the Russo shit or whatever, because it around this point is when it really starts losing the plot. So maybe it is a Russo thing. It just, it went from being kind of interesting and relatively low-key to being this. Yeah. Billy Ray came out. He said the kid Anderson took away his colors and in this club. He won one last match with Anderson, a casket match. Anderson came out. Bully threatened to pile drive Anderson's wife and kids. He made clear he loved to pile drive Anderson's wife. Anderson was mad enough in a casket lid and slammed in Bully's face. He lit up Bully with a form fireman carrier slam and then grabbed the chair. Madness and EC3 is backstage. Madness is putting EC3 down again. He said that you're a hothead. You react. I think you're just mouth and muscles. I'm all brains. He said he knows EC3 doesn't like him, but they have something in common. He said he's not happy to have a green rookie team with him in a match with top match implications. He called Ethan a spoiled rich kid with washboard abs and a right last name. They're about to go at it when Dixie walked in. Madness just started kissing her ass and praising Ethan to her, telling Dixie that she's got a star on her hands in EC3. They've really lost the dynamic they're building between the two. Madness has come off the day in a match like a world champion at all, but as far as top heel on television carrying the show, he's carrying the ball better than you can expect for someone thrust really into center stage for the first time. That's him and general manager. I mean, he looks the part, and you think, okay. I mean, we know Nakata's can talk, but man, he just, I mean, he is, is doing an amazing job in that character and way better than I think anybody thought he probably could have done. And it's the way he handles it. I mean, yes. like the timing of some of the stuff he does and just the way he comes across. And the way he's so subtle about being a heel, too. Well, he's not really he's not really a heel in, on, I mean, in the Joe Manchurian's right to go there a little. 
not really, because he's fe- he's feuding with the bloodline. Hmm. That's you know, not how they framed it last week. He kind of is now. I mean, he's kind of feeding with the bloodline because Roman, Roman's like, I got to figure out how to, you know, figure this guy out. I got to figure out how to, to get him. You know, but he's, it, look at him. He's getting over on Paul Heyman every week now by some form or fashion. You know, so he's a bit. I mean, he's getting cheered, born and booed. That's for sure. Yeah. In the in the Pierce thing, though, he is definitely the heel. Well, they've kind of backed off on that. Hmm. You know. They backed off on him and Adam Pierce right now. So, yeah. Joe and Angle beat EC3 Madness in 11 3 when Angle gave EC3 a belly to belly on the floor and Joe put out Madness with a choke. Angle did decently well considering how bad up he is. Dixie didn't freak out at Madness because now Joe's getting a title shot. Joe told Madness that the odds had caught up with him and told Madness that he can't blame him on EC3 since he was the one who tapped out. Fans started chanting, You tapped out. Angle just said he wanted to be inducted to the Hall of Fame now, and Dixie freaked out not wanting it. Wait a minute. Wasn't Dixie the one who chose him to go in? She demanded to know who the new investor was. And MVP shut up on the stage just as the show went off the air. So there you go. Your new investor. It's her company. How does she not know who the investor is? <laughs> well, it's TNA, Bix. Everybody. Impact on January 3rd did a 1.14 rating and 1.45 oh, Impact did a 1.1 rating? Amazing. I know. I guessed. I know. It would have been the second largest audience show in the previous week. The Watcher showed the Impact to the summer. It also be NBA on TNT, which did 1.38 million viewers. Head-to-head view and viewers, although not in the key demos. We don't have the quarter hours for the show at press time. I thought Tony Khan invented the key demos. <laughs> well... AW and Impact have that in common. They pretty much do the same exact rating every week. So, so yeah, it is what it is. Kurt Angle appeared on the UK TV show Sunday Brunch on January 26th to promote the tour. They mentioned he would be inducted to the Hall of Fame at a ceremony taped on February 1st at Wembley Arena in London. The London shows are scheduled to air on the 27th and this March the 6th. He also said his left hand is completely numb. If that's the case, then he really shouldn't be wrestling at all, let alone doing moonsaults off tops of cages. Interesting in one UK interview, Angle C believed one day he would have a singles match against both CM Punk and Daniel Bryan. As noted, his contract expires in August September. He's given both dates in recent interviews. Dana White said Angle couldn't pass physical. Angle and his manager, Dave Hawk, denied that story. In 2010, they tried to cut a deal with him to be on the Kimbo Slice Rashad Evans Rampage Jackson season Ultimate Fighter. If that's the case, particularly if his hand is really numb, there will be questions he could pass W physical. Edge's hand wasn't numb, nor was McFoley's. And both were flagged and never, never allowed to be wrestled again. And by the way, this is Kurt's first run out of finally going to rehab. Yeah. I, I just checked just to make sure. So he's also feeling all kinds of stuff he has probably not felt in years. Yeah. Now, he gave an interview to the UK, Sun in UK, where he said he, didn't ha- he did have a desire to return to WWE, but that Dick Carter treated him well. He said he can't lie to himself anymore, but didn't explain what that meant. He talked about going back to WWE. He said it could be one year or three years, but that standing TNA wouldn't be a bad thing. He said the loss of Sting was a bigger loss than the loss of Hulk Hogan and a big blow to the company. He said he felt Hogan was worth the price he was asking, but it was a decision the company had to make. He said he's battled depression. 
because he was never able to reach the natural high in pro wrestling of winning an Olympic gold medal. And another reason for depression in pro wrestling was being away from his family so much. He did say he has learned to love pro wrestling. He felt TNA creative didn't do a lot with him in recent years, but he did just, but he just did what he asked, and, but will now speak up. Yeah, you could tell he's ready to get, go back to WWE if they would let him back. And it did. So, it took him back. AJ Styles said he had a speaking tour of the UK, but he was threatened by a TNA lawyer about some things going on, which delayed it from March till June. Okay. That's interesting. Yes. I, I wonder what that's about. I don't know. Don't expect anything too soon from Jeff Jarrett in, new, in his new promotion. You really can't start the kind of operation that he and Toby Keith are looking at doing without a television deal in place. Most likely, that wouldn't come until the fall season at the earliest, and the key may be Spike's contract with TNA, which expires in October. What decision Spike makes at that time? Spike makes at that time. The AAA stuff probably won't be on TV until the fall season on the El Rey Network as well. At first, it was talk about debut in December and then March. Ah, yes, AAA on El Rey. <laughs> yes, this is before anyone is really clear on what Lucha Underground is going to be. I guess. Mm-hmm. So that's interesting. And yeah, the, the- Jeff. Jeff Jarrett, Toby Keith deal, which was talked about heavily that, you know, we all know what happens there. I forget. By the time it's Global Force, is Toby Keith involved? No. I didn't think so. This is, well, okay, so this is also around the time he and Toby Keith try to buy the company, right? Uh, yes. And uh, as the story goes, they were close to a deal... But Dixie wanted a title for a job that wasn't really anything, and also that they would have to use her on TV as a character. And that was the end of the deal. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, at least they're on good terms again, I guess. Yes. That's nice. All right, so this next session is going to be everything else but WWE, basically, as... We don't have a whole lot of other stuff, so it's just going to be a total hodgepodge here. We'll start with Japan, Land the Rising Sun. And again, this shows being what it is. I didn't go, didn't put any type of like major results in here, so we don't have the results that we normally would have that would, you know, fill up space here. Right. So, All Japan Pro Wrestling, Junakiyama and Yoshinobu Kanemaru won the All Asia Tag Titles from fellow former Noah Stars. Kotaro Suzuki and Asushi Aoki on January 26th at Kobe before 393 fans. Oof. Makanamaro pin Aoki in 23-12 after a brain buster. That's not good. The scene, the whole scene at this time, other than New Japan, was just rough. Right, New Japan is really getting hot around this time. Well, Dragon Gate, I guess, is still doing their thing. I guess they're successful. Dragon Gate's still, still doing good business. DDT, yeah. when they run the big shows and stuff, so... Masafuchi's have actually due to right eye surgery. So Masafuchi, who just celebrated his 50th anniversary in the business and is still wrestling. Yes, God bless him. Okay. New Japan Pro Wrestling, Yuji Nagata and Bushi signed new contracts. Prince David, as of last word, had yet to sign his new contract. And so we'd be concerning his WWE offer, which was for an immediate main roster position as opposed to a developmental deal. Well, not quite. Yeah. But he does go, and the rest is history there. Yeah, he's got to learn the hard game, brother. Yeah. Now, speaking of WWE. Yes, and what today was a huge surprise. Pro Wrestling Noah star Kenta, Kenta Kobayashi, turns 33 in March. 
has been the performance center since Sunday for a several-day tryout. Dave's not sure if he'll work this coming week's tapings or not. His last match in Japan was January 25th, and he flew out the next morning to Florida to start his tryout the next day. The Kenta thing has, has its ironies. Kenta was one of the hot young stars of Japan a decade ago, and CM Punk in particular copied a lot of his stuff. He couldn't go to sleep finisher and made his own in the U.S. market. He was also one of Brian's favorite wrestlers, and Brian's Psycho knee kick was Kenta's other finisher. Except for his really fast kick and chop routine that Punk used to do when he first came in and was either told not to or stopped on his own, almost all of his big moves are already established by someone else here who took them directly from him, which means he's going to have to drop his biggest spots. Not necessarily. At the time, Kenta was a big star, and Punk and Brian were indie guys who studied tapes and looked up to him. Now, Kenta, even though he has held the GAC title for a year and was second Japanese MVP voting to Kazuka Okada by Tokyo Sports, because Noah's fallen so badly, he's less of a star, while Punk and Brian are two of the biggest stars in the world. As a general rule, the cornerstone guys of the promotions in Japan have great loyalty to their companies and are lifers. So between his size, five foot seven, around 180, the hard striking style, which doesn't fit well in WWE, language issues, and WWE's usual treatment of Japanese talent, Yoshitatsu was a good worker and a bigger guy who had a good look, maybe could never be a superstar, but could have been a good working underneath guy. It's not the right fit in some ways. Still, this may tell you just how bad things are in Noah, or because you don't go to Orlando for a week as a tryout guy when you're a long-time main eventer unless you're looking to get out. He's also considered Noah's biggest star to his limited audience, so it'd be a big blow to that group if he signs with them. That also changes the dynamic of him in Japan. Daily Sport in Japan reported he was going to be offered a contract, and Noah would be doing a farewell show for him. That may be a premature story, but Dave has little doubt he impressed the officials. So it's not like they see talent at his level through the Performance Center for first looks. And aside from having to tone down the physicality and tweak a few things, his style of work against America is like each and the guys from Mexico. And yes, we know how this story ends up. And, I mean, that was a big deal at the time, to get the poach him from, uh, from Noah. Yep. Kind of kind of similar situation to what we have now with Akata. Not exactly. It's kind of. As far as somebody somebody at that level leaving to go to an American promotion. But he's not at that level exactly. Who? Hampton. He was a GAC champion. And what kind of shape is Noah in? Well, still. As far as being in that promotion, I mean, he was, you know, one of the very top guys, one of the faces of the promotion, like Okada is in New Japan. Yeah. I get what you're, I get what you're saying about where they're at business-wise, but still, it's the promotion. Sure. And it's Kenta. I mean, the guy was a huge deal. Yes. And what Dave says about toning down the hard striking is ominous, though. Because, yeah, he also had the injuries, and, yeah, that hurt a lot. But the rep he had, basically, is that he found himself second-guessing so much. Second-guessing himself so much, I should say. As far as, like, how much to hold back and whatnot. That he just totally lost what he had. And that the the injuries just made it worse. Yeah. And, I mean, look. Let's be frank. That match our dear friend Dom Garini had with him recently... (sighs) A big reason it worked and felt like an old school Kenta match and not, you know, the, you know, modern, like, New Japan heel Kenta was that Dom was happy to just let him beat the shit out of him. Yeah. So. 
it's kind of a shame the way it went, but on, you know, silver lining, like, didn't he meet his wife here? Yeah, and the the thing is, his injuries, too. If he hadn't got hurt, things might have been different. It would have been at least somewhat different, yeah. But he also came along at a time where Vince was still Vince. You know, that's another thing, And his ceiling was 205 Live. Pretty much, yeah. But still, a, a major deal at this time. People, I remember people like losing their minds on Twitter when that happened. Good Lord of mercy. I mean, we're still like six months from it being official, though, too. Yeah. The big thing in Noah is an angle to create the Dangerous Violent Army, the group featuring Takeshi Morishima, Maybach Taniguchi, Hajime Ohara, and Kino. Morishima won the GSC Headweight title from Kento on January 5th, and the group really came together on January 25th in Osaka, where Morishima and Taniguchi teamed up to beat Mikey Nichols and Shane Hayes to win the, the tag titles. The match ended in 1810 when Morishima pinned Hayes with the backdrop driver. Ohara and Kino both interfered in the match. Four on two post match stack was like Yuji Nagata run in, and he was beat down as well. Morshima then said how the group would win every title on Noah and that Ahara and Kino would catch up with junior heavyweight and junior tag title. Early in the show, Daisuke Harada had pinned junior champ Taiji Shimori in a match with Harada, Kino, and Geba Hirianagi over Ishimori, Asushi Kotoge, and Katsuko Nagajima to set up a singles title match. The other major match on the show saw Nagata and Justin Liger beat now Michimura Fuji and Ricky Marvin when Nagata pinned Marvin with a bridging back suplex in 1701. So no one in Japan are very tight at this time. Yes. I think this is before they start funding them, though, right? Yeah. And it's not long after this, though, I don't think. Or I I think, I should say. Um, So is this stable Cho Kibugun? Sounds... Yeah. I had forgotten that Morishima's still around at this point. He's He's still there into, like, March of 2015. Yeah. And also, it's like, yeah, for people who are newer to Japanese wrestling, yes, TMDK was around then, with a lot of the same members. You know, beyond just Nichols and Haste. Like, I'm looking at these results, you know, uh, Bronson Reed was in TMDK and Noah at the time. Yeah. You know, they were going big on trying to scout from Australia. Really before New Japan went big on it. Yeah. Jonah Rock at that time, yes. Yes. All right, Osaka Pro Wrestling list that folded as they canceled all the coming shows, meaning the wrestlers looking elsewhere. They've run out of money and they're start dragging it either buying the promotion or picking up the pieces. Did anyone pick up the pieces? Like, did I forget? Yeah. I mean, there like there ends up being other people running similar shows at Osaka Festival Gate, right? Yeah, there's another promotion that like. Started doing Osaka Pro type stuff. I can't remember the name of it, but yeah. It, yeah, it just went the same, though. But, like, the place that, like, the Chikara guys would wrestle, that was, like, post Osaka Pro. Osaka, I think. Right? Yeah, yeah something like that. Triple A, as we go to Mexico. There were meetings last week in New York for the New America Project. It is to create a wrestling product completely different from anything that has been done before. The emphasis will be on the athletic side, using both Mexican and U.S. independent talent. I mean, there was, was but <laughs> there was yes, definitely a lot different. Of emphasis on storyline. Yes, it's definitely different because it's Lucha Underground. Yeah, 
Triple A taped TV on January 25th in Guerrero Negro at the baseball stadium. It was a sold out show to a local salt company, S A L T, which gave the. I don't know. Which gave away the tickets to people in the city, so they had 6,000 packing in the place. In the first group of the Rey de Reyes tournament, Zorro advanced forward, winning a four-way over Phoenix, Silver King, and Macias. Zorro and Macias had a flying body press. The main event of the taping saw Dark Oz, who was from Guerrero Negro, Dark Cuervo, and Dark Escoria over Cibernetico, Jack Evans, and La Parca, when Oz pinned Evans with the Oz driver. And I'm not finding anything that explains what SALT stands for here. That another TV sense, ta- at least. Another taping on January 30th in Toluca, not Tukula, before selling out 3,000 fans. Small building, so uh, selling out doesn't mean really indicate much of anything. There's probably Hendacio Augusta Milian, uh, but they turned tons of people away, so that was considered a good sign. Initially, note in the opener was Arjanes and Gatita de Plata and D- Dracia over Argos, Mini Saco Clan, and Mini Charlie Manson. When Argonhenis pinned Argos. They are both Sinkar's brothers. And rumors have had it since the car was headed in, even before the contract expired. Yes, more Sinkara later. Triple A mixed tag chance Drago and Fabio Apache lost an untimely match to Dark Cuervo and Mario Apache when Cuervo and Fabi with a power bomb. In real life, Cuervo is Fabi's boyfriend. Either the Tarantes were tabled as a Ruro referee here. Daga Pentagon Jr. and Ilda Fantasma beats Psycho Clown, Phoenix, and Anjadako when Fantasma and Phoenix, who is the AAA Fusion Champion. They'd issue challenges back and forth, so it's likely since a title match. Another Rey de Reyes qualifier, La Parca, one over Parca Negra, Blue Demon Jr., and Chessman. Chessman and Demon Jr. above counted out, then Parca submitted Parca Negra. And the main event saw Zoro. Ilde, and Ilda Tejano beating Sabinetico in literal shock. So in from Macias, who was there, but has arm in a sling. Ashley Arjanes came out to suffer Ilda Tejano, and Zoro beat him down, and Electroshock shaved. Zoro hit Electroshock with a Kenos take shot for the pin. Then they end the show with all the technicals and Hurudos in the ring brawling. So there's Triple A at this point in time. Valentin Aguilar, 46 years old, wrestles mini chess man, passed away on January 29th from respiratory infection. He was sick for a few weeks with a strain of pneumonia and almost killed IWRG wrestler Reba Negro and did kill El Brazo and got Jennifer Blake really sick. He started wrestling in 1989, debuted for AAA in 2000, became mini chessman in 2004. His last match was on January 1st. Yeah, I remember this being a big deal at the time that these folks got sick like this. And yeah, El Brazo died from it. Just not good. Not good at all. Yeah. I mean, mm. it makes you really think about, especially with how bad things got, you know, for John Thorne and all that. Like, just how much worse that WrestleMania pneumonia could have been a few years ago. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, cause for those of you, I mean, I'm not going to get into specifics, because if, if you ever want to listen, John did a podcast about it, it, though it gets fairly graphic at times. But, like... He got such an aggressive and unusual strain of pneumonia that they started asking him if it was possible that he had HIV. Yeah, that ain't good. I mean, this stuff can hit you badly. Yeah. But, I mean, thankfully he ended up okay. You know, trying to remember who else had the pneumonia that week. Nick Gage ended up okay. I think Bobby Fulton. I forget if there was anyone else, but... 
It, it could have been real. I mean, it was bad. It could have been worse. Yeah. Similar, everyone back from Japan. They're starting to promote the Dostoyevsky show in eight weeks. The first thing, the match on the January 24th show at Rio Mexico, Titan, Massimo, and Stuka Jr. beat Rey Scorpion, Mysterioso 2, and Dragon Rojo Jr. when Maximo kissed Scorpion on the lips and then created him. Massimo again wanted the hair of Scorpion, who beat his father at a hair match. They were challenging back and forth when Commissioner Dr. Gustavo Zavaleta brought a contract into the ring, but instead of signing it, a Scorpion ran out of the ring. Then Negro Casas of Edo Mephisto wrestled Shoker, Rush, and the Sombra. Rush and Shocker went in along the entire match until Shocker turned on him. He gave him a low blow, allowing him to be pinned. You know, the fans hate Rush. They booed Shocker for turning on him and weren't booing Rush. In the main event, Otomo Guerrero, Reaper, and Niebla Orojo beat Misiko, even though his shoulder came out of the socket on January 19th. Show Cork and always back working five days later. So this guy's going to be like Shin Hashimoto and destroy his body at a young age by never taking time off with a bad shoulder. Volador Jr. Mascara Dorada when Gorilla Pin Volador Jr. cleaned the third fall. I right, still going. This Mystico with, uh, is currently wrestling as Drillistico. Yes, AEW is Drillistico. And Roosh. Yeah, but you forget how the fans hated Roosh. All of this started with him being a babyface that the fans hated. Yes. And he ramped it up and became the hurdle off of it. And they loved him after that. It started with his feud with Negro Casas, right? Yes. Put him on the map. Yes. And I keep waiting for them to pull the trigger on him a little more in AEW. But... He's hurt right now. I know. But strictly on performances, though, I think that, that this AEW run is probably better than anyone could have dreamed. Yeah. Well, he's playing ball. The whole thing with Roosh was he wasn't somebody that's going to play ball. Yeah, he's playing he's ball in AW. He's been a professional. Yes. There's been a change in the Pesta Negro group. It used to be Casas, Felino, and Mr. Niebla. Now, Niebla's been joined by rookies Herodas Jr. and Barbaro Cavanario, who have both been prelim guys. However, they're the most promising young Rudos in the company. The Casas family's broken away. Casas family would be a group with Felino and his two sons, Tiger and Puba. And Negro support, Negro son expect to join him. Puma being Puma K. Yes. And yeah, they end up as uh, La Dinastia Casas, right? Mm-hmm. Is the group. Uh, Mr. Niebla was not in any condition to lead a stable at this time. Uh, no. No, it was not. Yeah, I mean, the whole thing. The fact that he was just allowed to go there out falling down drunken matches so often to the point it was almost a joke is just so sad looking back. I mean, it was then, but you know what I mean. Yeah, they're basically enablers. Yeah. I mean, there have been bad situations with both in Mexico and in the States. Wrestlers working loaded. I don't think we've ever seen anything as bad as Mr. Nipple in this era, though. No. Ring of Honor is to go to America. Roger Strong at the last minute had to pull out of Russell on the Pittsburgh show because his neck injury hadn't healed up well. Oh, oh, Roger Strong's neck, huh? Yeah, well, this is legit. One thing Dave give Ring of Honor credit for is as soon as they knew, they posted a story on their website. Some promotions do that, and some try to keep the fat advertised talent won't be there as a secret. Well, the they cared about his neck health. The January 25th show in Pittsburgh, night before the Royal Rumble, drew just under 1,000 paid and more than 1,000 total, way above usual levels. 
That would indicate a lot of people came from out of town to see the Rumble and came in early to see Ring of Honor. Luckily, having it in the city also helped as they usually draw half that in the area. But Bell Vernon's an hour away. If anything, they were heard on the walk-up with the horrible weather. The Decade, which is Jimmy Jacobs and B.J. Whitmer taking the name because they've been with the company for a decade, beat ACH and Tadarius Thomas when they pinned ACH. Crowd was into it. Paul London, who was to face Roger Strong, later saw Cedric Alexander in a match determined who would get a title shot on February 8th in San Antonio. Given London's from San Antonio, presumably he was getting the shot. But with him not appearing, they're going to do Adam Cole against Jay Briscoe. Was announced as missing the show due to travel problems. Local wrestlers Hanson beat Raymond Rowe in a really good match. Huh. Michael Bennett pinned the romantic tough Rhett Titus. The romantic, romantic touch. touch. Romantic Dang. touch. <laughs> romantic tough. The romantic tough is a much different gimmick. <laughs> the crowd was chanting yes and Daniel Bryan during this match. Why? They were bored. I guess. Tommaso Ciampa retained a TV title over Matt Taven and Jay Lethal. They p- pushed the breakup between Truth Martini and Taven more. Martini said that how Taven killed their lifestyle. She's no longer bringing in the money since he lost the TV title. Taven told Martini that he had outgrown him and told him to hit the bricks. This was a Taven face turn. Martini ended up nailing Taven in the leg, which allowed Ciampa to use the Project Ciampa for the pin. Cedric Alexander pinned Andrew Everett, one was reported as a great match. Everett made a name for himself here. Strong threw water Alexander, and after the match, Kevin Steen was after the match. Then Kevin Steen beat Kyle O'Reilly with a sharpshooter. Cliff Compton returned and got involved. Steen called out Compton after the match. He dared to come to the ring, but security stopped him. Steen gave the ref an F5. Compton may have laid out Steen afterwards. The main event was a, a three-way where somebody pinned Adam Cole. They got a title shot. Michael Elgin and Chris Hero won a three-way over Cole and Matt Hardy and the Briscoes. Matt Hardy pinned Mark Briscoe with a twist of fate to eliminate them. Hero pinned Cole after an elbow, so Hero's getting the title shot. Elgin attacked Hardy after the match. As the main event, said to be a disappointment as it dragged. Eh, a lot of great wrestlers who are in major companies now, and also uh, Michael Elgin was there. <laughs> yeah, it's just a weird era of Ring of Honor at this point in time, too. Yeah. Whatever happened to the... Det- to the- can't talk to Tadarius Thomas. Yeah, that's a name I ain't heard in a long time. Yeah. He was, uh, you know, somebody that looked like he could have done something, but he basically just quit. The last results for him on Cage Match are uh, October 2016. Yeah, he left Ring of Honor in January 2015. But he was an a MMA-type guy. I mean, he was AJ, ACH's partner. They had fallen out, you know, and they did that. But, yeah, and just, I don't know. What happened to that guy? Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm assuming uh, we know people who would know, but that's a name I had not thought of in a very long time. Yeah. Yeah, and it's, it seems like, at least from what's on Cage Match, you know, it's... Indie results, so who knows? It seems like he was mainly just working local shows in Michigan, aside from ROH. Yeah. Like, mainly just XICW and groups like that. Alright, uh, Jim Ross agreed to a deal with Fox, where he'll write for FoxSports.com, larger about pro wrestling. He'll probably write football, perhaps MMA. Hope those are finalized, but he'll like to do some WrestleMania stuff. His WrestleMania talk show will be on April 3rd, the Thursday for Mania. 
He'll be doing two shows at the House of Blues in New Orleans at 6.30 and 9.30. He should be doing weekly podcasts with Podcast One every Wednesday as well. I forgot about the Fox Sports columns. Yep. Are those still up? And here's Podcast One, so we're early in that that boom. Yeah. That <laughs> racket. Yeah. Let's see. Are these his columns, if I look? Um... I know this is stuff about Jim Ross. I mean, they've redone their website since then, and I remember a bunch of stuff disappearing. So my guess would be that there's nothing on the current version of FoxSports.com. But yeah, I I'm trying to even remember what his podcast one show was like. Yeah, I don't remember either. I'd love so. to know what kind of flat fees they were offering some of these guys. <sighs> Yeah, it was something. Especially Austin, knowing how much money it takes for him to get out of bed, you know? <laughs> and that Austin, as soon as things... Austin, Flair... Well, no, they didn't have Flair. I Flair thought Podcast CBS. One had Flair. He went on Podcast One at all? I don't think so. I think it was mainly CBS. Okay. But Austin especially. And then, of course, once they started having their money troubles, then, of course, Austin doesn't do new podcasts anymore. Well, of course not. Well, and WWE locked him up, I think, after some point, too. But but anyway. What a different era. Ugh. Oh, yeah. Crazy. Ten years ago. All right. It is now halftime. That's some, some great, and I mean that loosely, 2014 commercials. Who knows if I can find any? <laughs> what is our weekend with here? What day? January the 30th. 2014 maybe there will be commercials who knows that'd be something well after whatever we do uh we'll talk about uh we we'll go to halftime so we'll talk about our uh new patreon show again we'll uh plug our streaming friends and then we'll uh come back for wwe and boy is there a lot we'll have cm punk walking out we'll have the Royal Rumble and all the fallout from that and tons more after the break. Hey, I'm heading to McDonald's. How do you take your coffee? With an egg white delight McMuffin. Okay. One cream, one sugar, one egg white delight McMuffin. Uh-huh. A little sugar and an egg McMuffin. Welcome to McDonald's. How can I help you? Large McCafe coffee and an egg white delight McMuffin. McDonald's fresh brewed McCafe coffee and the freshly grilled egg white delight McMuffin. Great apart, but amazing together. So, how do you take yours? There's something for everyone to love at McDonald's. When Jake and I first set out on our own, we ate anything. But in time, you realize the better you eat, the better you feel. These days, we both eat smarter, and I give Jake Purina Cat Chow Naturals. Made with real chicken and salmon, it's high in protein, like a cat's natural diet, and no added artificial flavors. We've come a long way, and whatever's ahead, we'll be there for each other, naturally. Purina Cat Chow Naturals. Did you turn a four-year degree into a paycheck every two weeks and completely unlimited access to a water cooler? You know the answers to questions like that, so you're the best person to do your taxes. Intuit TurboTax. It's amazing what you're capable of. They were 
gonna play a little game. Which 4G LTE map has the most coverage? This isn't real difficult. Pretty obvious to me. I'm gonna have to say Verizon. Verizon. Has the choice is obvious. Verizon's super-fast 4G LTE network is over three times larger than any other 4G LTE network. Now get one, two, or even $300 off a new smartphone depending on the smartphone you trade in on America's largest, most reliable 4G LTE network. That's powerful. Verizon. Now get a free LG G2 with a 13-megapixel camera. You say you can save him. What kind of life will he have? You'll have your husband back, I promise. This is the future of American justice. RoboCop is here. Alex! I know you're in there. What the hell did you do to me? The human element will always be present. He's overriding the system's priority. Federal Alive, you're coming with me. RoboCop, rated PG-13, in IMAX, February 12th. What makes Olive Garden's 2 for 25 better than ever? Rich, irresistible Parmesan, the star of our new 2 for 25 menu. Choose two melt-in-your-mouth entrees topped with decadent Parmesan, like tender new Parmesan-crusted chicken or creamy new Parmesan-crusted tortellini. Two appetizers, two entrees, unlimited salad and breadsticks, our best 2 for 25 yet. Olive Garden, we're all family here. Get together for unlimited soup, salad, and breadsticks lunch, just $6.99. Nine out of 10 parents dream of sending their children to college, but seven out of 10 future college graduates will owe thousands in student loans. The Gerber Life College Plan is a safe, guaranteed way to start saving for college today. You can get started for as low as $10 a week and your money is guaranteed to grow. And the college plan includes life insurance. To apply now or learn more, call 800-935-1556. Call now and receive this free book. The world is run on ideas, intellectual property. Spherix owns over 230 patents. Monetizing patents is a big business. Spherix files lawsuits against VTech, Uniden, T-Mobile, near-term catalysts. Spherix, symbol S-P-E-X on the NASDAQ. Spherix, an investment in high-tech patents could mean big profits. Visit redchip.com or call 1-800-RED-CHIP to receive a free research profile. It's Friday on Helix. The left has now here to die. We will not go down without a fight. There are people that don't want us inside this base getting out. We just abandoned the sick and the dying? Yes. Helix, all new this Friday at 10, only on Sci-Fi. Miss an episode of Face Off? Wait. It's not too late to catch up right now, on demand. Like that. Stroke of genius. Face Off. Catch up anytime on demand and watch all new episodes Tuesdays at 9. Sci-Fi. Imagine greater. If you missed any of Ghost Hunters, it's not too late to catch up right now on demand. You hear that? Are you kidding me? <laughs> Ghost Hunters. Catch up anytime on demand and watch new episodes Wednesdays at 9 on Sci-Fi. So we're not sure how much room we're going to have for halftime because I haven't done the editing and removing the silences yet and stuff. But uh, we wanted to record something about the news with the lawsuit against WWE and the trafficking allegations and all that. And we were trying to figure out how short something we could fit in was. And then we realized that was a ridiculous F idea. So we ended up posting what we recorded in the main feed. So that's already there, you know, went up. Thursday night, people can check that out. Um, the other thing about that is, you know, 
and we go more in depth about that there, and you can hear us talk about there, is that we've released all of the uh, Titan Gate Patreon shows for free. Uh, they are all now unlocked on the Patreon and will be for good. And by the time you hear this, they should also be available here on the main feed because we want people to hear them. Uh, we want people to learn from them. We're proud of them. So that adds to it too, but we don't want anyone to think we're trying to make money off of this, uh, this awful story that's just come out. So those are there. If you want to hear them, they're there. Uh, if you haven't listened to them, please listen to them because we're really proud of them. We think they're probably the best shows we've ever done. And I guess that's it for now. So I don't even know if we tried to scrounge up terrible 2014 commercials before this, but either way, uh, let's just get back to the rest of uh, the main show in 2014. Well, the time has come. And let's go to World Wrestling Entertainment, part one <laughs> of Way It Looks 3. All right, so we start off with this one. The status of CM Punk has become a major talking point in WWE. As he told Vincent Mann about 30 minutes before the start of Raw on January 27th in Cleveland that he was flying home, and he did. He wasn't on the show, didn't appear at SmackDown tapings next night. WWE since pulled him off all the shows. Well, the press time, he was still being advertised for Elimination Chamber on February 23rd, Minneapolis. We're told he would eventually be pulled off that show as well. There have been a lot of claims as to why, including reports claiming he was mad Dave Batista returned and was getting the WrestleMania time match at Randy Orton, which would contradict what he said in an interview with Aero Hawani a few days earlier, where he said he was fine with that. We'll have more on that interview in just a little bit. Those close situations say that people looking for a singular reason or a simple reason are missing the point. Nearly everyone who knew him reasonably well said they knew he was going to leave. At one point, Orton versus Punk for the title was planned for WrestleMania, but that changed some time back. Some had known us that they didn't believe he'd last through July, when the three-year contract he signed in 2011 would expire. Over the last week, ever since Punk's interview with Eric Hirwani before the Chicago UFC show, where he openly brought up that his contract was up in July and didn't want to say what he was going to do next, several people who know him had noted not to be surprised if he leaves. Two different people said that he was as good as gone in July, and one said they didn't expect him to even last until July. There were frustrations with creative and with money. Even has made great money the last several years. This is not a spur-of-the-moment thing as much as something that had been building. The way we were told was that he couldn't take it any longer, told Vince that he was going home. Vince had been tied up all day since they were rewriting the show based on what oh, happened the prior Oh, shocking. Month. Well, they were rewriting the show based on what happened the prior night at the Royal Rumble to figure out a way to keep the show under control and not have the audience hijack it again. More on that later. Punk had been scheduled for an interview on the show, the Brazilian build-up match with Kane on the pay-per-view, which will lead to his planned WrestleMania main event match with Triple H. Because the man was so busy, Punk didn't see him until 7.30 when he told him he was leaving. The reason Kofi Kingston and Alberto Rio match went on Raw went so long is because it came during the period late out for Punk's interview and had to go to a second segment in the cover time. So the key money segments would be in the correct time slots. The working assumption internally has been for several weeks that Punk was leaving in July and not going to sign a new deal. The belief was that he is not a spender, has saved his money, and doesn't have to work. It's a weird dynamic because he's one of the few guys on the roster that company and Vincent Man knew believed he didn't need them. And financially, it really does it. So they can't deal with him from the same level as all the other guys who are scared to lose their jobs and spots. 
Within the company, the reason was that he came to realization he would never be positioned higher than he was. His goal was to make WrestleMania, as in being the real main event. He felt that because he didn't fit the mold of what they think the top star in the company should look like, he would never be the guy in the centerpiece. It's not known at press time what caused the situation to get where it did and what was the straw that broke the camel's back. Another person close to the situation who was aware it was coming just didn't know when, said it was a classic case of being burned out. In the economy, he's never had a job where he's made anywhere close to the same amount of money. There have been as famous and got more out of wrestling than this one. But he has been miserable at the job for some time. He was a guy who loved working in pro wrestling when he made nothing or very little. It was noted that he never had the personal connection with Vince McMahon that most of the big stars had and always knew he was not their kind of guy, didn't have the look they thought a star should have, and felt he got over in spite of how he was used, not because of how he was used. The feeling was that there was a communication issue and lingering unresolved issues that dated back some time, probably most of the last year, combined with frustration regarding creative going forward and of late. All right. I guess that's a good stopping point for the moment. Um, Yeah, I mean, you look at him in that last few months or whatever of 2013 going 2014. I mean, you just look at him until he was kind of checking out. I mean, he physically the most tired and sleepless he has ever looked was 2013. Yeah, he just, I mean, he had grown his hair out, you know, and just his bag under his eyes were more pronounced. And he just, yeah, he just looked like he was checked out, you know, mentally. Yeah, uh, and and it didn't help that... And it, I mean, he admitted later on this was stubborn. I think it was in the Art of Wrestling podcast. Like, when he was getting surgeries and stuff, he was trying to recover from surgery without painkillers. He was trying to be so straight-edged that he was trying to do that, and I think he admitted it kind of had a debilitating effect on him. I mean... Folks are straight-edged. I mean, they firmly are entrenched in that dealing man so it's hard to get them sometimes even do stuff they need to do when a situation like what he was going through with injuries and surgeries and stuff to help the pain i mean even recovering addicts coming out of surgery they kind of tell you like you need to be on these painkillers to get through physical therapy and stuff initially like you are not going to recover unless you take this at least a little bit it's like it's a very tricky situation because, like, look, the more we all know these days, like, I'm never going to fault anyone for being averse to taking any kind of narcotic painkillers. I don't take them. I don't like taking them at all because, yeah. I mean, I, I, whenever I have taken them in the past and it makes me feel weird, I, I hate it. I yeah, can't I can't deal with not, it. Like, it's not fun. Like, I want to be I want to be in control of my faculties. I want to, yeah. you know, be on my own deal so i mean basically I either deal with it or i'll take something of a lesser deal like maybe some tylenol or something right. but unfortunately there are a few situations where they are genuinely called for and surgery is one of them well see i say i haven't had any surgeries that's what i'm saying right you know i think we, that's the thing we've learned over the years that there are people who have intractable pain conditions where nothing else works, but you need to exhaust all options with them. And gen generally speaking, painkillers should be reserved for cancer and surgery. 
I mean, the closest I came to surgery was when they they cut that sebaceous cyst out of my uh, armpit a few months ago, which you know was kind of like a little small surgery, and you but know you they had a little colon you took over the counter stuff and you were fine. They gave they prescribed me with some shit, and I took it and I was like, uh uh-uh, uh, no more. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I mean, so I just started taking you know I, I took a different type of medicine after that and i dealt with it i mean i just there's some things i have a high tolerance of pain for and some things i don't well that you know yeah but and that's just but going back to punk that's just one factor i mean look and i'm surprised dave doesn't mention it here at least yet punk was checked out in 2011 yeah he came back because they offered him too much money to turn down like, he was all set to go home and take a long break. Like, he 110% was. And, I mean, but they made him an offer he couldn't refuse. And this is someone who, again, like I said, had saved his money and was not a big spender. His big expenditure, you know, was his home, the loft, and the building the loft's in. He paid two million, two and a half million dollars for that, I believe it was. In cash, in 2010, before he signed the big contract. So he's been saving his money. But the thing about him, he got he got over to a crazy degree, and they did the smart thing. Like we got to ride, we got to ride this yeah. horse. Yeah. Problem was, <laughs> they totally, you know, once they did the whole deal with money in the bank, they totally botched it. They botched it, and also realistically, he did not have another three years to give physically mentally whatever thanks to triple h i don't think that's the only reason i it's not the only reason but it's part of it i mean let's and, just the, be fr- and the thing is i mean it's funny to look back at that because how how do you think a triple h of today would handle having a cm punk of of then now oh he would love to have that right now oh yeah but this was a long time coming i mean I'll just be blunt. This I'm saying this because this is coming up or what's already in the notes, and I can give some insight. This is not me name-dropping. This is not me humble-bragging or whatever. I was one of the least shocked people that this happened, because even though I was talking to Punk Les by this point, he would start thinking about walking out and going home, like, annually, around Rumble time. He always got burnt out this time of year. Like, it was going to happen eventually, that like what the people Dave talked to said. So I was not remotely surprised when this happened. But why do you think it was this time of year in general? Because he wasn't getting the WrestleMania main event he wanted? Not exactly. I What I would always tell him, you know, would be this. If you think you can't last until Mania, ask for time off and go home. Like, you do you treat yourself like treat yourself right make that your priority if you think you just have a limited amount left to give and you can make it through mania get to mania and make the mania money but prioritize taking care of yourself and i think i think it was that conundrum was part of it that like he's getting to this like that i don't think it was necessarily mania main event cuz i remember him be like uh, I remember that being an issue long before the whole frustrations over 
how he was being pushed after he got to a main event level was like so but it just it always happened that time of year but again why why that time of year i never i don't think i ever asked him why like why does it always happen this time of year but it was always it was always late in the year early in the year Hmm. well anyway all right um Seamus will be replacing Punk at all the SmackDown tapings where he was large advertised as the main star. It's a brave new world. You can never rule out the possibility this will work, and you won't know for sure unless Mania comes and goes without a return. Daniel Bryan will be advertised as the main star on SmackDown going forward since John Cena is not booked often on the Tuesday tapings. Mm. And we just something that, you know, didn't talk about was Punk. one of the reasons Punk was leaving was because of the Dave Batista thing. Which was not true. Yeah, that's what was being speculated this time. Right. I mean, as he explains in the Art of Wrestling interview, his issue was with Danielson not getting the main event. Yeah. He he had no issue with himself not getting the main event that year. Because it was obvious to everyone that it was Danielson's year. Yeah. And he had no, like, him and, him and Batista are friends. And they were at that point, too. It, and... Batista agreed with him. I mean, but look at look at the position Batista ends up being put in. I'd be pissed if I was Batista. Yeah. All right. Um, Punk was at Wizard World Comic Con on January 25th in Portland as he flew from Chicago to Portland and back to Chicago for UFC that night and then to Pittsburgh for the Rumble before leaving from Cleveland. Uh, well, sh- quick, uh, sh- uh, travel schedules like that will get you damn burnout. And also, just real quick, like, for people who weren't necessarily paying attention to everything at the time, Punk, through WWE, had made a deal where he was, like, doing all of the Wizard World conventions. That he had a panel at, like, every one of them. And I'm sure he he, he he was all about that. Right. But this was, like, a very anticipated thing. Like, each Wizard World would come around, and you had Punk doing these panels. So this was, this, at the time was a regular occurrence. But still, I mean, the location of this one and then the weekend is on, I mean, good Lord. And all the travel he had to do. That burn you out right there in a second. Yeah, and also, we should note in this instance too, and he talked about this on our wrestling, and it's kind of obvious with hindsight, this is Punk coming off of a year where he did take a few months off. And yes, that, was really enjoying life during his months off. So, yeah. You know, where he was going to all the UFCs and just was clearly having a good time not doing the WWE schedule, not taking bumps, etc. During the Q&A, he seemed very lackluster about WWE. He basically said he used to argue the creative, but now he just shows up, does what he's told. He pushed the idea that he, was, he felt this was Daniel Bryan's year and not the short-term booking and planning several times. In many ways, it's similar to when Steve Austin left in 2002, where he publicly started complaining about creative. And a week later, he was gone. Of course, that was precipitated by them wanting to job him to brought Lesnar clean with no build-up on Raw, as opposed to Lesnar going through everyone and set up their first match at a major pay-per-view. Well, did a long interview with MMAFighting.com reporter Ariel Hawani from his home, since he was in Chicago. He said at the time his contract was up in July and said there's no point in saying anything about it. So if he doesn't sign, he wouldn't say so now. If he says he's looking at not signing and he does, the people think he was working at Eagle. 
Plus, he said 2011, when he started that angle where he was leaving, he was in his mind 100% out the door at that time. I mean, let's make this very clear. Like, it's... He recorded a podcast. Well, this was like, what, a week before Money in the Bank? It was him, Will from Texas... What was it? Was it was it Naylor or Lars or both? It may have been both. I think it was them, and it was on Alan Cunan's podcast, right? Maybe it was something. Either it was a Goodwill Wrestling, or or maybe I'm thinking Alan was the one who tried to see if they could recover the file or something. Regardless, you know this, the legacy of this corrupted file and all that. <laughs> yes. Which is which really happened. It was not an excuse. Like it, maybe it could have been saved, but Punk was in c- could not give a fuck mode. Is what we've always heard on this Randy Savage tribute podcast or whatever it was. Wait, yeah, it was Randy Savage tribute because yeah, that was timely at the time. So he was so checked out that he's recording podcasts and stuff. Saying stuff he would not say if he was staying with WWE. Yeah, that's true. Very true. I don't know the specifics, but that was always the word. That that once he signed, it was kind of a... And for him, it was kind of a small blessing that the file got corrupted. <laughs> yeah. The circumstances that ended up taking place led to him signing a three-year deal. He's always said that he won't be around as long as people think. BAW had done this. That Punk has not been happy with his creative. At the same time, with the full timers with the company, Punk, Batista, John Cena, Dan Bryan, and Randy Orton are, all, are the top tier. Batista is scheduled full time, but he's 45 and has had a lot of injuries in the past. Although, to his credit, his body held up for an MMA camp, which is more intense than a wrestling schedule. The difference is the MMA camp's two months and wrestling schedule never ends. While WWE doesn't need anyone, even Cena. Punk does have significant value given the lack of death on top and injury rate. You can also see with Batista and others, if you do really leave for a while, your value can increase greatly by not being there if you want to rest for a few years then come back. There's the Legends role, a few big shows a year. The Jericho role of half the year or so full time. Although, as we've seen with Jericho and RVD, that role does limit greatly how much they'll push you or leave, rest up injuries and come back full time, waiting long enough for a Batista-level return. The one thing with Punk is he's a big enough star that if he does leave for several years, his return would be a big deal. So very few walk away at 35. Batista and Jericho left, but they both did. So for other entertainment ventures, Punk hasn't seemed like he's interested in that direction. He says some days he's hurting really bad and other days he's not. Knowing he's taken very little time off over the last 10 years. He said when he took two months off last year, they probably should have taken more, more time. He wasn't fully healed, but came back because the pay- payback pay-per-view was in Chicago, and he worked with Chris Jericho, starting a babyface turn. As noted many times, the reason he turned heel was when, when he was a hot babyface, was recognizing he could be the top heel in the company, but would always be at best the number two babyface. But after the heel run, he was turned back. Still, he was always in top programs, was beating the Shield in one-on-three matches consistently, and was being groomed for a match with Triple H at WrestleMania, which, while not the main event, was guaranteed to be pushed as one of the key things on the show. Well, of course, it's Triple H. At WrestleMania, of course, it's going to be a key thing on the show. Yeah. Um, and we get the whole Shield handicap match thing. Got to yeah. keep Roman strong. Got to keep Roman strong. Hey, you know what will keep Roman strong? Him beating me when he has a three-on-one advantage. 
<laughs> yeah. Vincent Man does like a challenge in the sense if a guy looks like he wants out, like Punt did last time, he may be able to cut a better deal than the guy who the company knows isn't going anywhere and is so glad to be there and afraid of losing their job, they'll tell take anything. It's an interesting game because he is valuable. Maybe second or third most valuable guy in the company at a time when value of the individual means less than it ever has. He was asked about doing MMA. He talked about like he'd like to do it and then he knows people that think he can't do it and looks at that as a challenge. He knows that people thought he couldn't do what he did in wrestling and loves proving, proving people wrong. Well, <laughs> here's the thing with that. Set aside his relative athleticism to other wrestlers of his stature, whatever. Set aside that maybe he gave an impression that he was more schooled in jujitsu than maybe he actually was. Which you can argue he didn't. But he also did the whole I'm a white belt for life thing. Um, That Mickey Gall fight. The thing that I think people miss, they notice it, but they, I don't think that it really clicks for them what's going on. You know, people post the gif of the beginning of the fight where Punk tries to throw a strike, but it looks like it's in slow motion. Mickey Gall just effortlessly takes him down. The thing is, is that Punk sees what's coming. It's the, after all the years of wrestling and being beat up and stuff, he just doesn't have the reflexes to react in time. But by the time by that point he had signed the contract the big announcement blah, 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 blah. and i think once it was a thing if he never fought he never would have lived it down and that was he, the conundrum he had to do it yeah because like you said i mean he would be looked as kind of a failure if he didn't do it plus that whole thing was so weird who knows how the word even got out initially? Like, the way it seems like it, that came about was that someone put word out that Bellator was interested in it. Because the way Punk puts it, Dana White just called him one day out of the blue and was like, hey, you want to fight for us? <laughs> just that simple. And I mean, of the two people, I'm definitely going to believe Punk above Dana White. Dana, I forget what Dana White's version was, but it was not that. Well, of course it was. <laughs> Dana White's well, going to say... Speaking of which... <laughs> Dana, Dana White's going to say things that make Dana White look good. Well, also, speaking but, of what I just said, I didn't even notice what the next line in The Observer was. Bellator has already expressed at least preliminary interest in him. He'd be free and clear of any WWE contractual obligations in July. He thought some people who wanted him to fail would tune in to see him get beat up, but he gets punched in the face four times a week anyway. Dave gets the impression a part of him would like to do it the same way Batista did as a bucket list thing. Where Batista seemed on the surface to be a real bad risk, but in the end, he did it and wasn't hurt at all. With Punk on the surface, it would seem to be a safe day. A theoretical big risk. There was a time when a giant named Pro Russell doing MMA would have been huge, as done by Brock Lesnar's UFC debut. But Dave doesn't see UFC using an 0-0 guy for the same reason they never used Herschel Walker. At least with Lesnar and Kurt Angle, who they made a strong pitch for, they had the high-level wrestling credentials to make them real. Bellator should take him. But that limits the upside in the pay-per-view money. The key is he's 35 and his body's beaten up from years of pro wrestling. While he does trade in fighting disciplines, he doesn't have the competition background at a high level in any fighting sport. It's very old to start out unless you uh, want to compete at the beginner's level. It's also hard to say if he goes against someone legit and loses, how it would affect him for a WWE return, either with the fans or with management. And Dave's not sure exactly what kind of challenge he'd be up for. 
Herschel Walker was up for the challenge and got a lot of publicity, but was put in with guys below his level that he was going to have no trouble beating. But he's also one of the great athletes of modern times. And also, by the way, that goes to something else. Initially, okay, do you remember how Mickey Gall ended up as Punk's opponent? No. It was when they were doing, was it a YouTube series initially? I forget if it was YouTube or Fight Pass or both. It was this show, Dana White looking for a fight, where it's like him and Matt Sarah and people going to different regional MMA shows, scouting people and stuff and taking in the local food and whatever. And he goes to this one Northeast show and Punk says he's presumably going to fight at welterweight and Mickey Gall, this welterweight, you know, says, sees Dana at ringside. And it uh and it says Dana White, I want to fight CM Punk or whatever. You watch the show, it seems completely contrived. It turned out it wasn't. This was just Dana White with his weird lizard brain, like uh, just deciding, oh, the first fighter that actually asked him in front of his face to fight CM Punk, and decided to go with this guy. Here's the problem with that, like. Mickey Gall was genuinely like a jujitsu prodigy. Of all the people who were O and O or one and O or whatever for Punk to fight, it never should have been Mickey Gall. So they like they completely fucked up the matchmaking side. Yeah. So they really they made a not great situation worse through their own promotional malpractice. Exactly. Alberto De Rio's previous MMA means nothing, good or bad for him, because most fans don't know of it. But Punk is such a big star, people would know. Batista did one fight, and few saw it, and meant nothing one way or the other. But he also didn't lose. Had he got knocked out, would it have made a difference? At that point, because wrestling fans know the difference, if, know the difference and if you are a star of wrestling fans, no matter your personal life, shortcomings, or screw-ups, in the end, you are still a star to them. Speaking of which, and continue. That's <laughs> the, well, hold on, hold on, hold on. This is a thing, though, with, you know, all these wrestlers today that have had their issues, you know, outside the ring, they're still seen as stars. Yes. Matt Riddle, the perfect example of that. He, but you know what, though? But he, he's seen as unreliable, though, too. That's the thing. And it's not like yeah. he's getting a lot of bookings. Uh, well, yeah, but he's getting important bookings. That's the thing, you know? <laughs> New Japan is bringing him in from for, for, for shots here and in Japan, right? Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, no matter how big of a complete disaster he is, he's still a guy that was kind of a big deal for the past few years and is still seen as a star. And there are people, wrestling fans, that don't care. Well, let's, you know? also be, let's also be frank. In that specific case, though, that's also Rocky M Romero. That's Rocky Romero being the guy who thought it was cool to bring Marty Skrull back until his whole locker room turned on him. I think a lot of the particularness with it being New Japan, like, is is part of why he got that spot. Yeah. But, I mean, it's just in others, the, too. Of the major promotions, New Japan at this point is the one that is going to turn a blind eye to stuff like that the most. I mean, look at Flair. Yeah. I mean, good Lord. Look at all the stuff that's come out on Flair in recent years. Yeah. So, you know, 
if you're seen as a star and they can make use of you, there are people willing to turn the blind eye. Well, again, speaking of which. Punk also said he's still Vincent Man by text. He'd like to induct the Ultimate Warrior into the Hall of Fame. Although one would think his leaving may nix that, and there probably was never a chance of it to begin with. He says he's never met the Warrior, but Warrior texts him inspirational messages before pay reviews, and they have a connection. He you know, the whole Kogan, who's rumored to be the one who inducted the Warrior, hates the Warrior. It, <laughs> I've seen people bring this up occasionally, that like if you look back, I get that some of the Warrior blog stuff and whatnot had kind of been forgotten, just with time passing and all that. But does Punk really strike you as the kind of guy who didn't know about that shit? Who didn't know about queering don't make the world work, etc.? Like, come on, at least... He's looking the other way because he was a fan of those warrior. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Oh, Hogan's another one. You know, I mean, a lot more fans have turned on Hogan. I know, but still, you know, right now we're doing they're having that 40th anniversary thing. Yeah. You know, and 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 I mean, WWE right, as of the moment, all all they've done is play a video and pimp merchandise. Yes. It's not like they brought him, brought him out or anything. It wouldn't surprise me if he did make an appearance at the Royal Rumble because it's in Tampa. And, of course, that would be over with after this hits the air. But, you know, again, it's just people look the other way for people, for heroes and stuff like that, people they see as stars. Unless it's something so bad, like murder, that you you know, like an OJ situation. That, you know, you pretty much can't. You have no choice. Now we get to this little thing here, which is an interesting. And this is a forgotten story. He tried to downplay the Michelle Beadle, AJ Lee thing. His description of what happened with he and Beadle was exactly what we heard with one at a thing. She was with a few of her girlfriends and walked past him and said, hey, fuck face. And then high fived him. Dave heard everything but the high five to her friends, which Dave guessed would explain why he wasn't too happy about that. She had claimed it was a greeting of endearment. The two dated at one time briefly and later went on Twitter, and made a comment about girlfriends ruining guys' friendships with girls. His description of what happened with AJ Lee, whose name he never mentioned, only saying my girlfriend was very different, trying to low key it and play down anything that happened. <laughs> which was that age. The story was that AJ very publicly and loudly yelled at Michelle Beadle about it, if I remember right. Yes? Yeah. Publicly in terms of the locker room, I guess I should say. But where do we even go with this one? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> CM Punk, CM Punk. It, the, so... The high-fiving thing explains part of why it was taken a certain way by Punk to a degree and then also AJ. Because my understanding was at this point that they were at least still, if not friends, then cordial, right? Yeah. Punk and Beetle. So, like, you could see why she would think that would just being like, (laughs) hey, fuckface, would be nothing. But if then she goes and high-fives her friends who were there with her, that comes off weird. Especially with somebody that has a history with them. Yeah, and it's like... It, 
And you can then see why that would also make AJ more upset. Because it's also... It comes off very familiar. But, you know, this is a situation that happens at times where guys <clears throat> remain friends <clears throat> with girls they used to be involved with. And they're with, you know, a new girlfriend or whatever. And and then they ha they kind of have a public, you know, encounter and are cordial with each other. And sometimes the girlfriend or whatever then gets jealous or, you know, thing, and things happen. You know, it goes all the way around with, with guys, too. I mean, some some people can't handle that in their own way. They can't handle the fact that their, you know, boyfriend, girlfriend is still friendly with somebody that they had a romantic thing with before. Yes. So... Which, yeah, I mean, I mean, if that was an issue for AJ, it would already be an issue with, to a degree, with Punk because, I mean, I don't know if they still were at this point, based on some things Lita has said, maybe not, but like he and Lita were friends still after their initial relationship. Yeah, I'm not sure if they still were at this point, but so it's like there's a lot of stuff there, and like. Rightly or wrongly, I think also Punk and his quote-unquote rep probably also plays a role in that, too. Yeah. And, you know, and, like, we should be clear, though, not 100% of it, most of Punk's quote-unquote rep was that he was generally just dating people in the business at a time where that was not happening or accepted as much. But he was also, like, bouncing around, too. Depending Another thing. on your definition. I mean, it, I mean, it, it was, it wasn't the fact that he was just doing that. It was a, how many people, how many he was going out with. It's not that many, though. It's just, he's someone who, I mean, you got to remember too, like, he's a guy who was a traveling indie attraction before most people were. Like, he's on the road. He's going to want to date people who are on the road with him. It just, but you no, know, it was like every... Every few months or so is somebody different. I don't feel you know? like it was ever like that. Oh, he that was his rap, Bix. I mean, yeah. When? Back then. But like when are we talking in WWE or are we talking? Yeah, all of that. I get okay, you know what? I guess in the po I would guess most particularly in like the post Beth Phoenix pre AJ period, yes. I mean I wonder if there's a list online. If he has like the Derek Jeter list. Uh, uh, okay. Wick simple English Wikipedia. Oh wait, we have, we have Wikipedia. We have CM rankers, CM Punk wife and girlfriend history. Okay. <laughs> okay. This one, this one seemed to have more. So okay, so this one has AJ, Beth Phoenix. Lita. Wait, Kelly Kelly? That's not true. Maybe right? it is, maybe it is. I don't know. It would but surprise there's me. No, there's no source for this, though. Okay, Maria. Tracy Brooks. Okay, again, yeah, Mickey J... This is including on-screen stuff, I think. Yeah, there's no... There, okay, some. this might even be AI-generated. 
Mickey James and CM Punk shared a brief romance in 2003. We're both working. Oh, I thought it said OVW. Okay, TNA wrestling. But I, I, again, there's no source for any of this. Daphne. Yeah. Becky Bayless. Does that ring a bell? Okay, yeah, some of these are bullshit. Alice in Danger was his roommate, and she's mentioned here. So, like, yeah, this is just nonsense. This is just link. This one is just linking him to every woman who he had any kind of like re- open, like friendship or storyline linked to, along with his actual girlfriend. Reddit's got uh, Kelly Kelly on the list. Okay. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. So, and she's on another list too. I'm seeing. I don't know. I mean, the guy. I mean. <laughs> if, if the time if it happened that would have had to have been like very briefly right after maria the guy the guy had a history i mean you know that's right when however much of that being getting a negative rep was deserved or not you can still see how it would contribute to all this anyway let's let's continue he said a connection with Triple H and Henry Gracie is that Triple H and Stephanie brought Henry and Eve Torres, the former WWE star who is now involved in teaching jujitsu to women, to teach their kids jujitsu. And he put over how great both of them are teaching kids. When asked about the network, he says a fan in 97, he'd have loved it if such thing would have existed. As a wrestler, he doesn't know because nobody knows how it fit the pay per view bonuses, and none of the wrestlers have been told much of anything. Across the board, among the wrestlers, there's a lot of curiosity regarding WrestleMania paychecks. The one thing is, with all new money coming in, all the wrestlers should make far more because the revenue will be way higher, presumably come October, when new TV deals are in place. However, wrestlers have never been paid a cut of TV deals in the past. The bulk of their income is either their downside guarantee if they are hurt or not used well, or formula based on the house show revenue, pay revenue, and how the merchandise does, and a fee from the video game. The network won't hurt house show revenue significantly or at all. It may hurt pay-per-view revenue a lot. It may hurt revenue on DVD somewhat. So that's the situation to look at. But if pay-per-view and DVD business goes down with a network, but the company gets as much as more revenue based on network subscribers, what kind of network will the wrestlers be getting is a real issue. In a sense, with more revenue coming in, presumably, wrestlers should be paid better. Yet at the same time, with so much of that income more guaranteed rather than generated based on individuals, when it comes to the key guys and big money makers, how will their value be measured? So, it took AEW to push the pay scale up, is what ended up happening. Well, and that's what happens when you have any type of comp- real legitimate competition. And, I mean, we never got any specifics, but the story basically was, was that they refused to give any answers. Pay-per-view bonuses were just cut down to whatever was still being bought on pay-per-view. And if you were top guy, you were taken care of, so you wouldn't rock the boat. And that's what happened. But, I mean, this did, in, you know, long-term, cut into DVD revenue. And now, you know, as of a few weeks ago, with the end of the UK version and whatever was left domestically, WWE Home Video does not exist anymore. Yeah, went away not too long after this, pretty much. No, yeah, I mean, Amer- no, I mean a few weeks ago now that it's finally officially gone. I, well, that yeah, but that was in the in UK. I'm talking about over here. I mean, they were still putting out like new and original DVDs for a while after the network. Though. There's plenty of good stuff we got after the network launched. Um, it still changed it though, and the net. What one of the things the network changed though? It honestly made the while they were still doing DVDs, it made the DVDs better for a while. 
because they knew they had to release stuff that wasn't on the network. So they shifted further away from co compilations that had the pay-per-views and stuff. Or excuse me, matches from the pay-per-views and stuff like that. Or stuff from Raws that would be on the network, whatever. More towards, like, your unreleased whatever collection. So it did, it actually kind of, in terms of the content of the DVDs, it actually kind of helped for, at, at times. Um, but yeah, they screwed over the talent here big time. And in this instance, it clearly contributed to Punk's calculus and walking out. Yeah. Um, it's, it's just so ridiculous the way they refuse to answer any questions. <laughs> like that fuck, like, I don't know what to expect of the new company. I do feel like that would not happen today. I don't feel like they would just string the wrestlers along without telling them if something like that shifted today, you know? Yeah. In the in the post-Vince company. Yeah. See, he has no problem with Batista coming back in as a main event eventer, but did have a problem with Dwayne Johnson, because he doesn't think you should be in the business part-time and take a WrestleMania spot from someone who deserves it. But since Batista is around the long haul, he has no problem. Dave hope he doesn't really mean that because it would tell Dave that he doesn't understand the concept of a drawing card. So three mania shows Dwayne came back for were the three biggest grossing events of all time because of that fact. Dave really doesn't see Batista making anywhere close to the same difference this year that Johnson made the last three years. Not that he may not help. <laughs> I mean, Dwayne. I, I mean, his feelings about Dwayne are clearly influenced by just how badly he was booked in that feud. Yeah. Which he has a legitimate beef about. Like, even if he's going to be fed to the guy, they they just shouldn't have done it the way they did. Yeah. It just, it made Punk look ineffectual. And then he, and then he, had, and then he's got the Taker match at Mania, and of course he loses that too. <laughs> and his big near fall is him hitting Undertaker with the urn. Yeah. He had no choice but to take a few months off and come back as a babyface. They killed him dead as a heel. Yeah, they did. I mean, it was... Like I said, and this contributed to uh, to all the issues he had. You know, what's, what is creative in the company, as we mentioned earlier. All that stuff. So, all right, I uh, read that. But the subject of Brian came up. He said Brian gets the biggest crowd reactions at the shows. But he doesn't know if it's Brian that's popular or the most popular wrestler. Or that people just like screaming, yes, yes, yes. I forgot he said that. <sighs> That's really interesting because that is not what you would expect him to say. What do you make of that? It's a very valid point. It turned out it turned out they were that into Brian, though. I know, but it's a valid point at the time to wonder if that was the case. Because but, but they had already it, tried shifting the yes chance to other wrestlers and it didn't work. Well, of course not. You can't. You can't. It's like it's like you know, the if you if Fonzie had a falling out with Happy Days and you went and you gave uh, another character the A, it's not going to work because it's like the original person doing it. You know, I mean. Oh, let's put it this way: the yes chance in being entertaining in the Canes gets turned in babyface. Being Brian Danielson is what kept him over and made him the most over wrestler in the business. Yeah, but, uh, uh, definitely among the crowd that's into that, into that. But I were, I mean, my friends at the time, you know, they were, they were into Brian because of the yes chance. 
you know? It really didn't matter how he was as a wrestler. But even just like, just like Channing way, yes. But even I'm not talking about him as a I'm not talking about his in-ring work. I am talking about him being this likable guy in this very unique way that shone through and the way his charisma carried that and all that. Well, I'm not talk talking about him being a great worker, Brian Danielson. But again, you gotta take consideration that a lot of people watch wrestling for different reasons. Yes. So I'm definitely sure there were a, a, and I know, like I told you, I know for a fact, there were a subset of fans that were into him mainly so they could chant yes. I mean, or, honestly, or no. This is, honestly, here's here's the divide. What kept him over and got him over to that bigger level, on top of the yes chance and all that, was much more of a territory style babyface than a WWE national style babyface. Yeah, in terms it, of what got him over, what kept him over, the interview style, etc. Like, so I can see that divide where if you are a fan that grew up on, you know, national, international WWE with whether Hulk Hogan and Ultimate Warrior, John Cena, The Rock, Austin, whoever, this territory style babyface, I can see where it might not tick the right boxes for you. It's just, again, it's just whatever... You could spin him his popularity to fit whatever narrative you're trying to pro push. But the reason that Punk's saying this is interesting is a few days later, at least by his telling, he's ranting to Vince and Levesque about how Brian's obviously the most popular wrestler in the company. They're missing out by not putting him in the main event. It's ridiculous. It's bullshit. Blah, blah, blah. So it, he's couching it with a lot more doubt publicly than he is privately. I mean, do you think there's any jealousy or anything there? Or is that reading too much into it? Well, you never know. But like I said, Brian, his po gauging his popularity is totally different than gauging like a Hulk Hogan's popularity. You know, where it's all about the the gimmick, the showmanship, the charisma, blah, blah, blah. Brian, his popularity could go in many different ways for different people. So, I mean, that's the thing. There's the yes chance. There's being this very likable, genuine guy. There's being someone who has these consistently amazing wrestling matches. There's a, right, there's a lot of different things there, and not all of them were for every fan. Yeah. I initially noticed a few days later, Q&A to Comic-Con, he did. He said he thought this year was Brian's year. He'd like to see Brian in the main event at Mania instead of Batista. Said Batista was his friend. He's glad he's back. Had no problem with Batista in the main event because he's back full time. He says, believe Brian should be in the main event was, no meant, was meant as no slight towards Batista. It's a weird deal because things are self-fulfilling in many ways. The Brian and Punk shows haven't done the kind of business that the Cena Orton shows do. And that would indicate the yes chance aren't selling tickets like Cena. But the biggest straw in most cases is going to be the guy pushed as the biggest star. He said he was happy for Brian because he knew where he came from. Hawani asked about Brian still in the chat from Diego Sanchez, but never acknowledging it. Brian has acknowledged it in a few interviews. Dave's heard. Yeah, what and the Puck, fuck was Ariel talking about? And Puck said something about how today people know, while in the past people didn't know, Superstar Billy Graham stole everything from Muhammad Ali, that Ali stole from Gorgeous George. Oh, Dave, no, but you set off Dave there, uh, Phil. Graham did take a lot from Ali, but tailored it for his own thing and created a lot of new stuff. Dusty Rose took a ton from Graham as he was in AWA with Dick Murdoch when Graham was in his AWA heyday. 
And then you just see him interviews where he went to Florida as a heel after the AWA, but also tailored it and created his own stuff. And then Graham started stealing stuff from D- D- Dusty. <laughs> yeah. It was just uh, incestual by that point. <laughs> I, I, I'm surprised that Dave didn't go off on the whole, but did Muhammad Ali actually get anything from Gorgeous George rant? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, like, was it actually Freddie Blassie? Yeah. Or was it Jackie Fargo? <sighs> so, okay. Since you bring it, like, which version do you think is the truth? Because the story that, as it goes, you know, he always credited Gorgeous George publicly. Then when he was traveling with Blassie, um, you know, to promote the Inoki match, he's like, oh, God, I was wrong. I remembered wrong. It was you. It wasn't Gorgeous George. And I forget if he started crediting Blassie publicly or he just imme- immediately went back to publicly saying that it was Gorgeous George or what, but it pissed off Blassie. And the thing that makes it harder to figure out is, like, people have figured out the, like, when the radio interview, like, he witnessed was from what fight he would have been promoting. And it would have been for a Blassie versus Gorgeous George match. <laughs> I mean, we don't know that. I mean, we don't have a lot of Gorgeous George promos. His promos do sound more like Blassie, though. Yeah, kind of. But Jackie I, Fargo was also around, you know, as a star in Louisville and when Ali was younger. Yes. So, who knows? But anyway podcast for the house shows off in which in the case would have been only the canton show since he was put in appearance plus what ufc show he was on narawani's interview and not right said he asked for the weekend off and he gets to ask for one off indication was it it's in his contract during a certain time frame and so he didn't tell them what it was for he did say that things have come a long way for what they did water about the shows and wouldn't let him go to the ring with shell sonnen to where there's no issue in him going to shows yeah, that was the whole thing. Chael wanted him to walk to the octagon with him for the uh, Bisping fight on Fox. And Vince vetoed it. Yes. All right, so this is the end of the punk section. Um, yeah, so, I mean, what else do we want to talk about here? Because, like, the thing is, like, and I, I mean, look, Sean Doherty knew this when he requested this, I would think. There's not much known at all in week one. No, there's more in week two. A little bit more in week two, but it really picks up months down the line. Yeah. When he starts seemingly feeding stuff to uh, Mike Johnson. When someone in the punk camp, I should say, starts feeding more to Mike Johnson. Is is when it really picks up. Um, I mean, is there anything we want to address, you know, from the Art of Wrestling interview ten months later? I mean... I, it doesn't really. I don't know. I really don't know. I mean, do you want me to pull up like the like him talking about like when he left or whatever? Or I mean, the the, the short version is he gets the concussion in the rumble, which isn't even talked about here. Well, we ain't got to the rumble yet, but yeah. Oh, oh, is that talked about in the rumble coverage? I mean, it might be. I don't know. There was so much of it. <laughs> um, but it's I not talked about deep. in the specific punk coverage. No. His version is he comes to Raw the next day, and 
they're acting weird and he freaks out when they ask him to take a drug test. And it everything kind of flows out of that, if I remember right. Which is weird. Why? I mean, of all people. Yeah. Especially because it seems like it wasn't random. You know? Why would they ask him to take a drug test? Right. Um, I'm trying to remember. Was there also something about them wanting to, him to take a concussion test? And, like, or that he did take a concussion test and they said he passed or something, too? Even though he had the first concussion? Something like that? Well, he didn't trust her doctors, that's for sure. Well, understandably so. Um, I mean, it's interesting because WWE has in no way ever refuted his version of what happened the night he left. You know? So, knowing there's some other puffery and stuff on the podcast, do you believe his version of that whole story? My gut is I believe the gist of it. I'm not sure if he necessarily, like, mouthed off to Levesque about how he should take the drug test with him. Yeah, stuff like that, you don't know. You know, that could be just him bloviating or something like that. I don't know. Yeah, let me... Hold on. I have the... Or do I have it open? The transcript, they did a cage side seats open. Oh, there it is. Tried to have this thing that had a YouTube transcript open so I could play the clip, but I'm having trouble. Finding the right spot, maybe because it's such a long video. Uh... Okay. Um... Okay, so then I went to fucking TV, and they wanted me to take their concussion test, and I just had it. I was belligerent, I was argumentative. And then they were like, oh, you have to take a piss test too. I flew off the handle at that. I was just like, I'm sick of this fucking shit. I was like, you're going to fucking amend the fucking drug test policy because of people who have two strikes, so they can fucking either fail again, or work one of their strikes off, continue to do drugs, and you're going to tell me I have to take another piss test? And they're telling me that I was working that night, and they're telling me I wasn't working that night, and I just, I just fucking had it. And then Cabana says, the theme you're arg- is you're argumentative, and you've told me before, you're like, I didn't like how much I was telling people to fuck off. Punk says, I hated it. Cabana says, right, and it was happening. And Cabana says, you were doing it, you're telling people to fuck off, you're telling everyone fuck you, I hate you. And Punk says, and then they're like, we need you to sign for this visa, for this country, because we're going on this tour. And I was like, right now, me right now in Cleveland, Ohio, take care of me right fucking now. Don't worry about where I'm supposed to be tomorrow. Don't worry about what segment I'm supposed to be in. Fucking fix me. My fucking ribs are broken. My knee is fucking torn up. I'm fucking sick, referring to the staph infection or whatever it was. Fucking help me. They were like, no, you have to sign this. You have to piss in this. You have to take this concussion test. Cabana says, and I think that's a line. Fucking help me. And then I just went, you know what, Vince, I need to talk to you. And Hunter was in the room, and he was like, oh, I'll leave. And I was like, you know what, you can stay. I don't care. You need to hear this too. And I looked Vince in the eye, and I said, I do not love this anymore. I'm fucking sick. I'm fucking hurt. I'm fucking confused. I don't know as a business what we're doing anymore. I Every day, you tell me this is a team effort, but every day it's a fucking individual effort by me to find what's necessary to even fucking come here. It's not fun. I have zero fucking passion for this. I'm fucking concussed. I'm fucking hurt. And all you care about is what segment I am and how soon I can fucking get my gear on and when I can pee in this fucking cup. And I don't want to do it anymore. 
I talked openly about bringing back Dave as a baby face. And I was like, how do you not see this is the worst idea? Even Dave. And then Cabana says, and he was quoted as saying it, that Batista, once he left, talked about what a bad idea it was. And then Punk talks about how Batista was in his apartment a few months ago. He couldn't remember if Cabana was there and they talked it over. Blah, 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 blah. And he said, I mentioned something about the piss test. And Hunter goes, well, you know, Dave just took the same piss test as you did. And I just looked straight at Hunter and went, did you? Actually, you know what? Reminding myself what he claims he actually said was, I can buy Punk just saying, did you? <laughs> yeah. I can buy that a lot more than like if he had said, oh, what about you? Why don't you? T-? Like if he had gone into a whole thing and outright said, oh, you're on this or this or this. I don't know if I'd buy that because that feels like more of a fantasy of telling him off. This feels more like Punk being concussed and depressed and hurt, just just being, like, flippant and just being like, okay, did you? That I can buy. <laughs> um, and he had nothing to say. And then I said, look, I thought when I re-signed three years ago, Vince, I told you if I couldn't be all that I could be, you should fucking fire me. That if I was a fraud and I was anything less and I fell short of fucking Mark, I sold more shirts than John Cena until I turned heel for you. And you said you owed me. I work guys that were fucking dangerous, and you said you owed me one. I did all these fucking things, and all I wanted was the main event of, of WrestleMania. Main event of WrestleMania. And it's fine if you don't think that is me, and that I'm the caliber of a fucking superstar. But then you need to fucking fire me, because I do not want to be here, and I do not want to be anything less. I will go somewhere else, and I'll get more fucking over, because I know I can you have shackled me. You have creatively stifled me. You have made this a very toxic environment. I no longer want to be here. And then he goes into the Brian stuff. And then Vince. Oh, and then. Okay. And then he talks about how after the Brian stuff, just like two years ago when it was my fucking year and I was white fucking hot like he is now. What did you do? You fed me to this guy. And I pointed right at Hunter. And. <laughs> Vince was just like, this is the concussion talking. I can't believe you're saying any of this. You're in the main event. It's a main event. You're wrestling Triple H. And I turned to Hunter and said, all due respect, I do not need to wrestle you. You need to wrestle me. I do not want to wrestle you. I seriously resent you for not putting me over three years ago when you should have. That would have been best for business, but you had to fucking come in and squash it. Then I had to lose to fucking Truth and Miz. It didn't make any business sense then. It doesn't make any business sense now. And I am in a position where I can tell you that I don't have to, nor do I want to wrestle you at WrestleMania. I don't care if I'm supposed to win, which I was. I didn't care. I didn't want to give him the fucking privilege. Do you understand that? And that's basically the, the, the gist of it. There you go. <laughs> so, I mean, do you, are there any elements of that you don't buy? I mean, or I mean, here's the thing. In this situation, though, he's clearly recounting something that's still very emotional to him. Yeah, I mean, that's a different version than what you were thinking you said. I remember, right, I remembered it being a little bit more like, I went in there and I told them off. Yeah. Which this is not. This is him just at his wit's end. And he's telling them off, but... He's telling them off, but not in the same way. Yeah. So... You know, maybe down the road, I mean, we'll cover more stuff. I mean, I don't remember exactly what Dave picked up in The Observer when, you know, because so much of the 
I mean, I get. I'm not saying it as like a joke. Like, as the months go on, the vast majority of the news that's broken about Punk is Mike Johnson. Yeah, and you know, hopefully enough of that is on Wayback Machine if we ever cover that. But like, it's we'll see. But at, at this point, you know, not much is known. And then there, you know, so much other shit happens where they like try to withhold royalties and stuff from him, and like. Okay, let me ask you this, though, and then we'll go into whatever final thoughts we have on the punk side. When it turns out he's suspended, but they don't really explain it. They don't tell it to him privately. They only say it publicly. <sighs> Even though no one outright says this, with hindsight, was he suspended for refusing to take a drug test? It sounds that way. And I mean, that's that's how that works. But he was not suspended for 30 days, though. He was not suspended as a first strike of the drug test policy. He was suspended through, like, the raw after mania, at least according to his version. So if he's telling the truth about that, then it's not a suspension for refusing to take a drug test. Because refusing to take a drug test is just a strike, and it's punk. Obviously, he didn't have any other strikes. You know, 30 days, he would have been back, you know, after Elimination Chamber, if that was all that it was. Yeah. I mean, I guess the other thing to ask before we finish this is knowing they were having other conversations later and stuff and assuming we're buying most of what he said because they've never refuted it. Like, what do you think pissed them off so much? Uh, maybe it's the combination of stuff that it happened. I don't know. Because, like, in the grand scheme of things, like, you look at everything that happened, and, like, it's weird that they escalated things to the degree they did. It really is. You know, withholding all this money from him, and... Personal vendetta, you know. I mean, firing him, not only firing him on his wedding day, which they knew it was, firing him on his wedding day when he had, what, like, three weeks left on his contract? Yeah. What reason did they have to fire him? They literally had no reason to fire him. They could have just let his contract expire, and they didn't. I mean, definitely sounds like Paul Levesque. Yeah, having a thing for Punk, which, you know, supposedly Vince was the other way. Back then, yeah. Like, it's not, Vince didn't necessarily see what the fans saw in Punk, but he and Punk at least had a functional relationship. Punk and Paul did not. Yes. Ten years. It doesn't feel like it. <laughs> I know. We got a lot more to go. All right, so before we get to Royal Rumble, we have SmackDown first. SmackDown opened up with Big Show and Ray Mysterio beating Jack Swagger and Cesaro. Zeb Coulter in a wheelchair cut a promo for the match. Oh, yes. We're in that era. The finish saw Ray... It's hard to believe it's been ten years. Their finish saw Ray doing a splash off show shoulders. Paul Heyman came up for a promo to build the show brought Lester match. And Dutch was legitimately needing his tub around or whatever to get around, right? That was not a gimmick, if I remember right. Yeah, yeah. He was in bad shape. The Miz beat Brodus Clay in a short match. Wade Barrett was on commentary. So like they were building up another Miz Barrett program. Barrett after the match said it was the worst match in history and Miz went after him. They should book us a quicksand match in the sense the loser gets out of it. This is <laughs> bad news, Barrett? Yeah, it's bad news, Barrett. 
Okay, so it's the best version of Wade Barrett. Yeah, anyway, yes. AJ beat Cameron. AJ continued to beat down Cameron after the match until Naomi made the save. Cameron is Ariane Andrew. Yes, yes, yes. Okay. Even that long, Bix. <laughs> right back at Axel beat Los Matadores. Oh, who who beat Los Matadores? Right back, Axel. Thank you. D- Dave had it wrong. He had Ryback and Axel. The big spot came out to the match when Torito took out Ryback with a plancha. Ryback reacted like he was really humiliated, so this is probably going somewhere. He probably was really humiliated. Oh my God. Yeah. Punk came out, talked about overcoming the odds and won the Rumble. Kane came out and said Punk's odds of winning were infinitesimal, starting at number one. Infinitesimal. Infinitesimal, excuse me. Punk called Kane a corporate sellout and said he would prove why he is the best in the world. I forgot that Punk started at number one and that was part of the storyline. Yep. Kobe Kingston pinned Fandango. In the main event, and what a bit of it this is, saw Goldust, Cody Rhodes, Big E Langston, and the Usos go to a no contest with The Shield, Seth Rollins, Roman Reigns, Dean Ambrose, and the New Age Outlaws. Okay, can Road I just say, I have, I have no memory of this big E. Langston babyface run as a single babyface. Yeah, it was here. The match ended with everyone in the ring, plus a lot of guys went in the card in the ring as well. Basically, the ring turned into a battle royal to set the Rumble. You mean the, anything that happened at the Royal Rumble, or the, if I, if I, with action like this, imagine what would happen at the Royal Rumble moment. The key is Cena was not even on this show, meaning Cena never did do that interview. Whatever interview that was. There were chance on for Batista. It wasn't there either, although neither of the two had been advertised. Well, the Royal Rumble was in that town. <laughs> it wouldn't have been like what it was. Uh, the dark match was the same punk over the Shield one-on-three handicap match. What weird booking. But you get the fans here cheering for Batista. Wanting him there. Well, he was advertised and he wasn't, I guess, right? Or... Yeah, but still. SmackDown did a 2.15 rating, 3.03 million viewers, tying the November 22nd show for the highest rated SmackDown in 11 months. Now, real quick, is this sci-fi or USA? This is going to be USA at this point in time. I'll double check. This is the final show for the Royal Rumble, second highest rated show on cable. On the Did You Know, they touted that it, touted it more than doubled the NBA that same night, which is true, as the NBA gave both TNT going head-to-head. Did 1.32 million viewers. Okay, this is sci-fi. It's sci-fi. Oh, it 2015. is. 2015. USA was 2016 to 2019. Wow. Okay. I wouldn't guess it was still on sci-fi at the time, but there you go. Based on the Royal Rumble, the stock price, and all the other major stories, we're entering a period where it's going to be easier for WWE to make far more money with less actual popularity than any time in pro wrestling history. Creative, the driving driving force behind most wrestling companies, historically is now in both a no-lose and no-win situation. No-lose because unless you become WCB bad, and that actually takes a level of talent that nobody in the company has or doesn't have, depending on how you view it, you're bulletproof. Bad creative and house shows are going to do well because they are relatively rare. TV money is a cushion at the level nobody has had. In pay-per-view, good or bad, it's going to be relatively the same each month. Because of six months' contracts, the success of the impulse buys, the use of fuel, that aspect of the business will largely be gone. 
bad because there are shows at the Royal Rumble where the crowd wants what they want and are going to take down or even kill the impact of the key parts of the show if they're mad. Catering to the largest part of your audience to draw the most people is going to be replaced to having to cater and pacify, especially the big shows. The hardest of the hardcore fans who come from all over the world and may be different from the actual masses that watch the television or even those who buy the merchandise and attend the matches all the other nights of the week. Fans who pay their money have every right to find the way to entertain themselves. They can cheer or boo whoever they want. Dave said, if I was a writer, I'd be frustrated if I was writing a good and long program and it gets caught or ruined in the crossfire of an audience that has other ideas. But that's just part of the new job description and you got to deal with it. All right. This is that. I mean, this is the time now where like the network's doing this thing. The business is changing. The aspects of the wrestling business is changing. Well, no, the network's a month away from launching. It's coming. No, yes. I mean it's coming. So you don't have to depend now as much on pay per view buy rates. In fact, you don't at all anymore. Now that you got the network in effect, and now you're starting to get. Better TV deals, which is coincidence that we're recording this on the day that WWE signed their massive deal with Netflix. So the metrics of the wrestling business was changing at this time. And now 10 years later, it's even more, you know, foreign to what it was years and years ago. Yes, although it took some time to really get to where it was expected to go. Because of the weird way in which somehow the network hurt the TV negotiations in ways that have never quite been explained but are assumed to be true. And the next thing, the fall, and like I preached years ago, is house shows and to a Las Vegas residency. So that's the next thing to happen. I'm less convinced that it's going to happen. I think it could. Oh no, no! It's gonna happen. It's gonna happen. I see it. I see it coming. They're not gonna tape TV there, but it's gonna be a residency. They'll still tape TV at different cities, mm. but I could see them doing weekends in Vegas. What's the point of doing only doing your weekend house shows in Vegas though? For the weekend tourists. They would have to get – how much would they have to get paid, I guess, is the question to – Well, you get, you got – what's that new – what's the new place that's going to be opening up and the one that MSG is involved with? That's not a casino and that's open already, the Sphere. Was it the Sphere or something else? No, MSG Sphere. Oh, OK. I thought it it is literally else. the MSG Sphere. But anyway, I mean that's definitely something I've seen them being involved in. And it got brought up again today. You know, with the Netflix stuff. If I was getting tagged in tweets about it, you know, where people were saying, well, house shows are next. I mean, I think the way things are now, though, I think house shows are just going to be an ebb and flow depending on how well business is going overall. And granted, right now, even while business is great, they're still not running that many house shows. They're not, and they're doing well at the house shows they're running. So there is that. Now, another part of this before we move on is... The days of fans hijacking their shows are pretty much done because the WWE fans these days mainly all the WWE quirks that were pissing people off. 
Yes, they have cultivated now a fan base that is strictly WWE. Now, having said that, under Paul Levesque, they have also filtered out a lot of the shit that was bothering people. Well, yes, there's that too. But that's part. Of the, and that's another thing. Exactly. You're never. You're never going to get this again. I don't think. So what I really do you don't. think was the turning point, though? When did they stop hijacking shows? Like, I'm trying to think. Like, when did when did CM Punk chant stop, for example? When did even AEW chant stop? Because remember, early in AEW, you would get those pissed-off AEW chants at certain WWE shows. So, COVID. That's what I was about to say. I guess it's since returning to touring. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, honestly, I mean, and they ended up building up popularity with the with Peacock and the celebrity matches and all sorts and Cody and all that. But I think in a weird way, I think those Thunderdome shows and the other no fan shows almost kind of filtered out the people who were going to react that way. I think the pandemic, I think it's. Part of it is people just being excited that WWE is back and who's going to be inclined to go to shows because of that. But I think those really fucking terrible pandemic WWE shows, I think, serve to filter out the people who had kind of begrudgingly watched where they just weren't really watching anymore or buying tickets anymore. But because they end up then building up other fans, it worked out for the better for them. Yeah, they came out of it much better and, for, in their in their situation. You know what, though, too? The fans who might be inclined to try to hijack shows, even if they want to, might be less inclined to even try now because of how sweet and happy WWE got on even live shows coming out of having that control with the Thunder Room. Yeah. Like, fans are much more acutely aware of that now. And WWE is much more likely to try to filter out that kind of crowd reaction in production. So there's probably also this element of, oh, well, why bother? Which again, yeah, I mean, it's it's not the greatest thing in the world to watch on television. Although they've been doing it forever, so this is nothing new. But it's smart in the business sense to do it. Although lately they've been going away from it. As, with that, well, as Kevin Dunn and Vince have been going. Yes. Yes. It's um, definitely not it's definitely not as prevalent as it used to be. I mean, the big one was that last tape SmackDown where they had a dead, tired crowd and did not bother sweetening it. Yeah. Which was really noticeable. Um, so if you're not going to sweeten that, what are they going to sweeten? Um, and the other thing, before we move on, that needs to be mentioned, I feel like it's it's Joe Lanza who says this the most, and I don't think he's the only one, though. A lot of these fans, they didn't want an alternative to WWE. They wanted a better WWE. Yeah. So once those improvements came in WWE, not only were they happy, they also weren't even going to be checking out the alternative product anymore. Yeah. So they didn't really have anything to back if they were going to hijack shit. That's a good point. Absolutely. All right. So let's get back to the Rumble here. At the Rumble, the idea going in was that the big items on the show were to kick off the bill from the key WrestleMania matches. Brought Lesnar with the short big show, bad to set him up for The Undertaker. 
There are little tweaks that Dave would have done differently, but the basic framework of a two-minute match and a clean win is what Dave feared they wouldn't do, but exactly what they did. If Bray Wyatt was being groomed for John Cena, he had to be Daniel Bryan in basic booking theory. Dave actually thought they might go with the idea that Bryan could beat Wyatt because Wyatt would screw Cena later, and that would make up for it. Wyatt did screw Cena out of the title rematch, and Randy Orton won the retain. With Orton as champion, the title challenger Batista would then win the Rumble. The sellout crowd of just over 12,000 announced it's 15,715. On January 26th at the Console Energy Center in Pittsburgh came in knowing that story as well. The story they knew was the flip side. Then the Royal Rumble filled with surprises. Daniel Bryan would come in as the big surprise when headline WrestleMania. The reasoning is because he's the cool thing and he gets the biggest reactions. Bryan was never advertised for the Rumble. And that was actually to be part of a longer-term storyline that down the line it would play into his being held down when he finally does rise to a presumed real-life title run. What they didn't count on was the Bryan fans turning on the show when Bryan lost to Wyatt, outwardly attempting to kill the Orton-Cena title match as their interpretation of what they're being force-fed, and hate Batista, who they deep down knew was the only guy except Bryan who could actually win the Rumble. Orton was very upset after the match, which filled with chance of Daniel Bryan, we want refunds, boring we want divas yes we want angle who's from pittsburgh randy savage orton actually laughed at that one y2j in this match this is awful and real quick i just realized for we'll maybe have some clips i'm not sure the version that's on the network is as it aired because didn't they dub some of the stuff on home video i don't know i feel like they did I'll see if I can look up, like, I'm sure there's a Botchamania maybe that has some of this stuff, so maybe I should pull that up, but anyway, continue. It may have one of the more interesting nights in history, in a sense, it felt like the audience turned on the company. On the surface, that's terrible, so the people who had the show did so with so much passion, and instead of ditching, following it, they seemed as interested as ever. The seasonal interest in wrestling is just as strong, and it's coming off a period from late August till now, that creative has generally been pretty bad. And the pay-per-views have been on one of the worst streaks in a long time. Brian's tweets about being held down are storyline. The irony is hilarious. He's the point man for a revolution against creative. But in a sense, although the process must be sped up, it's creative scripting the revolution against them. It's borderline brilliant. It's at the Rumble show, the second biggest of the year, was kind of a casualty in its wake. Sorry, guys. The machine wanted me nowhere near the Royal Rumble match, he wrote on Twitter. But I thank everyone for their support. They tried to keep us down and away from the top spots, but they can't ignore the reactions forever. Keep voicing your opinions. He also pushed the phrase, the yes movement, to describe the revolution of the fans against the people who were scripting it, a moniker created by his future wife and sister-in-law, Brie Bella. Well, the Bella twins, both of them. Yeah. So Brie and Nicole. The story actually got picked up by the BBC, a news organization that never recovers pro wrestling, is seemingly above it, is reporting on a wrestling angle as if it's a news story. But as noted, in trying to play this new audience, it also backfired. Batista is said to be a babyface that would be the big return in going for the top WrestleMania when the biggest matches on the show, after being gone for four years, was in the wrong place at the wrong time. Worse, the Rumble won the company's biggest match of the year, went down in flames over the last 10 minutes. Everyone had figured it out. Brian shows up at number 30 to win. Out at number 30 came Rey Mysterio. And the crowd turned on him. Okay. Real quick before we continue. 
I think we need to kind of transport everyone back to 2014. Yeah, the, the real quick, the key thing in this for you, for you do your thing, is Brian was never advertised for this match. This is something that people had in their mind. But, 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 Chris, here's where you have to be fair to the fans. There are tons of people who weren't advertised for the Rumble that were in the Rumble. The natural storyline, based on everything that had been booked, was Brian winning the Rumble. That's The problem is that it's the obvious storyline based on what had happened. And I'll just say this now. I was going to get into it, but before I get into the Ray point, I'll just say it. They should have known that they were playing a very dangerous game for months. They do the deal at SummerSlam where Brian wins the title clean from Cena, then Orton cashes in money in the bank and takes it from him. Okay. The next month, they do the deal where Brian wins the title from Orton with Scott Armstrong intentionally doing a fast count so it'll get reversed, blah, blah, blah. And it get, and, the, and then the title is taken away from him on TV the next day. Chris, do you remember what happened as a result of that finish? No. DirecTV got an overwhelming number of refund requests that they granted. I don't remember that. Because they felt that everyone was right, that if they invalidated the end of the show on TV the next day, that people deserved a refund. So they know at this point, they are playing a dangerous game and hurting business with this booking. God knows how much money they lost in refunds on that show. And yet they think that this is somehow productive. Now, back to Ray. I think people forget how much fans had soured on Ray going into this. I think if it was Ray as he's perceived now, I don't think the crowd turns on him nearly as badly. But that in 2014, for whatever reason, a lot of fans, not all of them, but a lot, and I never really understood why, had tired of Ray and talked about, oh, all he does is 619s and whatever. And I think because of that, the crowd was more willing to shit on him being number 30 and not Brian than they would have at a different phase of it being Grey Mysterio. Do you get what I'm saying? Yeah. Like, it's weird. No one thinks about it now. Like, But, like, that was part of why that happened. Like... That it was Rey Mysterio contributed. Which sounds absolutely ridiculous now. I know. Like, between how he rebuilt his, you know, uh, his rep with hardcore fans with the run outside WWE, and then coming back to where he's now presented as this living legend and all of that. Like, it, it seems ridiculous now, but that was a real thing, and... It was some of it probably that his work had gone downhill because he had like this is pre stem cells ray maybe, but I didn't. It didn't seem like that was it for the most part. It was that for whatever reason, a lot of fans considered him this like tired act that they didn't want to see anymore. Yeah. All right. So we go back here. They boo the last match match protest in particular. Batista thought of as the management chosen one. Hey, that ending would have been great would have benefited hindsight of all people tommy dreamer's idea of having brian come out in a ray costume at number 30 do a move or two in a mask was pretty brilliant although really even that is overthinking because the basic idea of what everyone wanted straightforward was going to work it's just that not the direction they had planned 
that must have they would have tried if they would have went in that direction. <laughs> Although Brian and Ray are two different looking bodies at this point in time, in many ways. Yes. I mean, Brian's not tattooed like that. He's not tan like that. And he ain't jacked like that. Well, it's a major pay-per-view, so you could do, like, the full-body superhero costume thing for Ray. I guess. But he's still, what, four inches taller than Ray? Five? Yeah, yeah. It's Brian Danielson. He is a genius of pro wrestling. I'm sure he would find ways to de-emphasize his size relative to Ray and all that. But... Seamus and Brian's been added to the current plans for Mania, which going into Monday were still headlined by Undertaker and Brock Lesnar. Triple H versus Punk, Cena versus Wyatt, and Orton versus Batista. Huh. That was hey, WrestleMania going in-, in this era with Seamus versus Brian must be a WrestleMania ending in A. <laughs> and this was going into Monday, so this is before Raw. With Punk out of the picture, and Triple H Brian makes sense, given the idea that Brian's leading the movement of fans against the oppressive authority. Still, Dave would put Orton and Batista versus Brian in front of a larger version of the same crowd that comes from all over the world. There's a good chance a world title match, which should be the biggest world title match of the year, would be crapped on badly. With Brian, and probably bring with Undertaker versus Lesnar as a show's biggest spectacle. Plus, Brian does have to win the title sometime in the next several months. There's nowhere better to kick off a good title reign than WrestleMania. More people will watch the title win. It still feels like a bigger deal. He'll have more momentum to start as champion, and the win will be more memorable and be more remembered than for the rest of his career. However, that will leave Triple H out of the WrestleMania program. So unless Punk comes back and his leaving was an angle, Brian Triple H would appear to be the more likely alternative, which could lead to Brian versus Orton or Batista at Extreme Rules in Seattle. Okay. Or do you want to continue first? Continue with this. An interesting only Extreme Rules being in Seattle on May 4th. Seattle was on the original site. That tells Dave if they're going to change, it means they're going to build the show in some form around Brian, and that decision was made two weeks ago. Whether that means they give him a title on that show, have him defended for the first time there, or to an angle where they kill him dead, I don't know. But given the reaction the last time they were there and making a change to go to that city instead of run from that city, is to take advantage of that reaction this time with them knowing it's coming and having it work for them instead of hijacking, hijacking their plans. Um. So real quick, what Dave's referring to, since he doesn't say so outright, they had last been in Seattle in December for Raw, where the show ending angle was going into the ladder match at the pay-per-view the following Sunday, where they were going to unify the two titles, the WWE title and the World Heavyweight title between Orton and Cena. They had a deal at the end of the show where they were going to, you know, raise the belts up on the thing for, like, for the ladder match. And they had all of the former champions on the roster in the ring. And because it was Seattle and because it was December 2013, the crowd just hijacked the segment with Yes Chance. If not for Big Show and Mark Henry having the presence of mind, I think maybe it was just Henry, I forget. It might have been Show too, To, like, raise Brian's hand to satisfy the crowd and stuff. That segment would have been an utter disaster. Is that the one where Punk was laughing at Triple H? Yes. <laughs> okay. And also ends up being the last time that Danielson's dad gets to see him at a wrestling show. Yeah. You know, when Danielson had the retirement speech, you know, one of the big emotional moments was like, you know, he loses his dad right after Mania, but, you know, the fans gave him that moment with his dad. 
Yeah. Also, within the company, the belief is still that Brian's a guy who's a great wrestler who people chant for and is a star, but doesn't draw money in a major way. Holy at shit, this num- might be the longest paragraph in Observer history. At least at the number one star in the company level. Even Brian himself in an interview last week said that you can't prove anything, but the company does need to judge based on what sells tickets and pay-per-views as to who goes in the top position. You can look at tickets in the sense that there are two tours, and the Cena Orton tour charges higher ticket prices because of Cena and because it draws the Punk and Brian tour. We can argue forever regarding his build and his build to be men of enter, sought royalty, royally. Yet if you watch the TV, you get the feeling that there was great momentum. But of his four main events, only Hell in the Cell did an average number based on the show. Did even average numbers based on the show. SummerSlam was way down, and 90 Champions and Battleground did poor numbers. Survivor Series also did poor numbers with Orton and Show. And Show was pushed super strong leading to that card. Okay, I got to interrupt. I would have thought this would have been known at this point. I'm amazed that it's still not. Holy shit. Think about how many, think about how much moving away from paper you change their business when you hear this. I don't remember how many months after the fact it was if we're now five months after the fact that Dave's saying this. Eventually, when they got final numbers and put it in the financials and stuff, it turned out SummerSlam was a success. It just took forever in the accounting of the pay-per-view numbers. Think about that, though. This is five months after SummerSlam. And Dave's still writing this because that's the numbers we have. Yeah. That's insane. In 2013, there's no reason that should be that should take so long, but whatever. The finishes didn't help in the sense they constantly screw people on them. We didn't get the numbers officially for TLC, which is the return of Cena and Orton, but preliminary indications were that show beat the prior year by a huge amount. To Dave, if it hadn't with the build of that first unified champion in 50 or 100 years or whatever they claimed that week, given the build, this should be a huge disappointment. None of that says with the right push, he can't be the top guy. You know, he says the chance that make it appear in the buildings that he's far and away the most over guy do not reflect any measurable metric to the degree of a top guy. Even in the overrun two weeks ago when he did the turn back, his TV movement numbers were behind Cena. To his credit, he was in second place and not just a second either. And last week, he was behind Batista, the novelty factor, and it does appear it was more novelty factor than anything, as well as Cena, Orton, Punk, Lesnar, Heyman, and Triple H, but still well ahead of everyone else. Nothing is a perfect science, but every metric they usually use to figure who are money players or who are on the verge, he does fit a level of a top-tier babyface. But not near Cena or Punk, or opposed to a guy achieving, overachieving his push. Which is perception you get from TV, as him being a guy who's the most over guy there's been in years. Again, with the right marketing, the Yes movement, fighting oppressive authority, could click huge, and Dave made him champion last October, and build to making him champion now. So that makes it easier to justify not going all the way with him or taking the chance or a very vocal hardcore that doesn't represent the biggest picture. If you're predisposed to believe he can't be a top guy based on the usual looks category, but Dave can't see them not giving a title run over the next six months. The question then comes, is it get Batista book title run or the punk style book title run or the Ray book title run? Because you can self-fulfill prophecies of success even after giving someone the belt. On the flip side, there's momentum there with the yes chant going mainstream, and he's sure pushing really hard right now to take advantage of it. Plus, you throw in the psychology that run, those running the company feel that they do understand the business and have the belief that fans that make, those, make noise really don't, there's a natural pushback against it. 
It's just another part of the psychology. This is both the hardest and easiest time in history when it comes to the top national promotion. Because of all new revenue streams, it's the easiest time ever to be profitable. If rice fees for the level of rating is what they were, what they were, what they are, even a company as incompetent as WCW at the time would have a fighting chance to break even. A company as well as run as WWE is on the verge of going through the most successful financial period of any wrestling company in history. On the flip side, it's harder because there's a fan base that's the most hardcore, most vocal, etc. That represents a viewpoint that may not be the best route for business nor represent the masses. Which is funny because that's where the whole best for business storyline used to get heat comes from. They want certain things, and it could be a Zack Ryder push a few years back, or Brian being the world champion and top star in the company. And the thing is, the nature of the company today is that the actual booking is life or death as it historically was. The company can do what they want because ratings aren't going to vary too much if seen as the top guy or Brian is. And attendance will vary some based on the top star, but it's still the brand that draws for the most part. Doesn't matter who holds the title or who only the top star of the show is. Yeah, at the same time, you want to make the fans happy, but also to figure out what most of the fans, if not the most vocal fans, want. That's the impossible task to do 100% of the time, but there are a number of metrics you can look at. The problem is that to a degree, they are self-fulfilling prophecies in the sense that the guys you don't be very often and focus on generally do, are going to do better. And those metrics, and some guys like Ray, who look great in metrics, merchandise, hero, to very important Spanish demo, used to be very significant when it came to moving ratings, especially with Hispanics, aren't going to be pushed past a certain level because they are seen as being big stars at shows, but not who you can build around as a top guy because of size concerns. Plus, with him today, there's the age and injury concerns, and they aren't going to push him a lot right now. Yet, at the same time, there you have Batista who's older and has also piled up injuries. Because he fits the prototype, it's going to be pushed harder. And right now, since he's new, that isn't wrong. But compared to the respect to push for each man's turn. But Batista was pushed as a bigger star in the past, who's gone longer, and his return's going to mean more, all things being equal. The hardcore fans do really have the ability to make a star. Because True Fist, Punk, and Brian both never would have gotten anywhere based on what the company perceives the top star to be. But they were both so more good than enough to be TV characters, and a lot of that's because they talk so well. Plus, people know they wear their asses off and have great matches. And Punk was long for was for a long time very legitimate number two in the full timers. Still, Ray, Eddie Guerrero, and Jeff Hardy all come to mind as people who were not booked strongly, but still move ratings and merchandise. It led to Eddie and Jeff going from mid card to main event, and Ray having runs at the top that he otherwise wouldn't have had although its upper mobility was still limited by its size and their eyes. But this conflict between the decision makers and most vocal fans is going to be a huge part of the business going forward, and Dave has believed that Brian is going to get that title win, at best because they know his fan base is an important core to the business, and it's really not that important today who has the belt. The only reason to not give the belt to him would be stubbornness or having fun bumming their nose at the fans. But winning the belt itself means nothing, whether it can be long-term face of the company or take the spot from Cena is a very different story. Okay, let's see. How long is that paragraph technically? It's, it's, it's long. 1,419 words. <laughs> it's a doozy. <sighs> I mean, I had dead spin columns that were shorter than that. <laughs> um... Okay, there's a lot to go through here. Um, pay-per-view. 
on top of what I said about like reporting on buys at this point, I think we need to stress like Dave has always disagreed with this idea because of how like you know when they first started raising prices and stuff like buys went up. I think you agree with me on this though. I think pay per view is not a good metric at this point because. I think the audience got fatigued to where once they went past $40, they were just a lot less interested in buying the shows outside of like Mania in the world. Some were. Because I felt like the way I, I think a lot of, it, a, a, a lot of it though, a lot of it though is, and this is a time where, I, where less and less of my friends were starting to watch wrestling. They, I mean, they were, they were getting out of, they just, they, it, it just got tired of it and it just, it just wasn't what it was, you know? I mean, it's just like, eh, it's, uh, you know, right. And, and, and this is the, and this is the, era, you know, this is the year around that time where I, people quit coming over. But also, you know, comparing it to boxing or MMA or whatever, like it's not a one-off combat sports event. It is part of an ongoing TV series that like you're paying this extra $50 for it's like, it's weird. Like, as time passed and consumer habits changed and stuff, like, monthly wrestling pay-per-views at $50 or more each? It just felt wrong. Well, a thing is, too, is, you know, this is well into that era, but good Lord, look at all the matchups we would get on Raw or SmackDown that you get them again, the pay-per-view. I mean, you weren't getting anything extremely special on these shows. anymore. That's a very good point. They were doing so much repeating of matches, you know, that like, what is the draw of a lot of these pay-per-views? Like, I'm, like I remember like Dolph, Dolph and Kofi, they had all these matches and then they would still have to pay rematches matches too, but they have all these matches on TV against each other. Or, I mean, look at all this, the like Cena, Sheamus matches, Cena, Orton matches. They would just do them on television and do them again on pay-per-view. It's like, I mean, it was so refreshing when you had something like, I guess, I think it was a few weeks later when they did uh, Cesaro Orton on SmackDown, you know, like I mean, or it, it, Cesaro, or Cesaro <laughs> Cena on Raw, like those, like, those stuck out besides that they were great matches that like it was something different i mean we investment man got i mean really the booking got really lazy and complacent for many years yes before he was gone endless rematches just all this nonsense and i think that hurt too but also like the way i always look at it with the pay-per-views though is this just on a dollar level Look at what other entertainment at home entertainment cost in that price range in 2014. And actually, wait, so remember, too, when I say 50, a lot of cable companies were charging $10 extra for HD. So pay per view HD was 60 bucks in most places. But the thing, too, is that, you know, to, to your point, I mean, nobody's running monthly. Who do you mean, nobody? I mean, what? I mean, USC was probably running. Were they running monthly at this time? They're running monthly, but they're running different cards. They're not running an ongoing storyline. Um, what I was going to say though is, so okay, you can spend sixty dollars on home entertainment. And it's twenty fourteen. Would you rather spend that sixty dollars 
on two hours and 45 minutes of a WWE show? Or would you rather spend that $60 on the brand new hot video game that you're going to get at least 12 to 20 hours out of? It just became a shitty value proposition. Especially because video games, as they're becoming more and more entrenched with adults and mainstream, were so inflation-proof for so long. You know? Well, the thing is, too, is that, again, people... People were changing, and this is the time when, you know, streaming is really starting to pick up. You know, it's really starting to get, you know, get going. And the days of charging these big pay per view, you know, prices, it's time. It was time to end. Even they still kept doing it. It's well, still, and it's still going on today. Well, and also because it's fiction, and you can catch up, and all that. It doesn't have the can't-miss aspect the same way that a UFC or a boxing card does. Like, it's you can't treat them as the same thing. So I just, I, I think it stopped being a useful metric. And, I mean, look, there were, it's not like there were that many fans that were buying every pay-per-view. But look at how much excitement got generated by the network putting all the pay-per-views on there for $9.99. Oh yeah, it I mean, was this I mean, collective relief and this weight off people's shoulders. Yeah, mine especially. <laughs> but like, I think people forget that. I think people forget just how, just even like, especially when people weren't sure about what like the library content would be. Just the idea of the pay per views being there for ten dollars a month was just it was this huge relief and this change. And oh, thank God, that's finally over. You know, you're you're. <laughs> You're saving $480 a year. Yes. If you're buying all 12 pay-per-views. And if you're counting in HD, that's $600 a year. And it's more because Mania was more. Yeah. You know? So it, it really, like, I don't think people remember what it was like and just how much fatigue there was. Um, As far as the booking and Brian, I mean, look... At this point, they're still a month away from pivoting. And, like, you can mm-hmm. tell that they changed their minds. Like, by Elimination Chamber, they've changed their minds. But you can tell that yeah. pivot happened shortly beforehand because the commentary and the presentation has a noticeable shift at Chamber. All of a sudden, Michael Cole, who throughout Brian Danielson's whole run in the company as Daniel Bryan, has been his mortal enemy. All of a sudden, Michael Cole is the righteous commentator ranting about how terrible it is that the authority screwed Daniel Bryan. At the end of that show, if you know what's up, you realize, oh, thank God, they're pivoting. And that's another thing, too. And that's another thing, too, with WWE. It's insane that we went that long where they have Michael Cole out there as a heel play-by-play announcer. Uh, Or at least heel-leaning in some ways, yes. That should never happen. Your play-by-play announcer should never be a heel. God, that was what three and a half years. Yes. Yeah. I mean, they had they had gone away from it some after Lawler's heart incident. They had yeah. it down a lot after that, but it wasn't completely gone. No. Like he still didn't like Daniel Bryan and all that. Um, as far as all, what else of the zillion things Dave had here, 
Um, and we talked about peer review. We talked about just the Brian booking and how it's still taking them time to come around. Um, and we don't know how the merch is doing other than we can just kind of guess based on the rankings and how many items someone has. But I mean, Brian's clearly moving a ton of merch. So, like, you have to factor that in, too. It's not just live event attendance. And, you know, something the pandemic and the return did, too, was it made it made the house shows more of an attraction as opposed to being lame duck, even though they are still kind of lame duck. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, all right, let's move on. That was exhausting. Mick Foley, who's WWE contracts about their Spire clan, he was furious and went over the top on social media to the point me and the company thought he had to have been told to play the angle. He has claimed that isn't the case, writing. As I mentioned on Twitter, I've never felt so disgusted at the conclusion of a WWE or any pay-per-view. Like, like me out there, I just don't get it. The Daniel Bryan thing is a phenomenon. You get it. I get it. The fans of Pittsburgh, yes, I was thinking of writing right the, but I'm just not in that cheap pop mood now. Got it. But tonight, for the first time, I had to admit to myself the powers that are that be are just not going to get it, and that makes me sad. I'm just honestly sad, just flat out fucking sad. Yes, I dropped an F bomb there to emphasize how fucking sad I am for the guys who bust their bus night in and night out. Ziggler, Pump, Brian, etc. was no hope of getting their shot at this year's mania. You know what I'm sad for? Me. In my two years as official WWE ambassador, I never once had to lie about my enthusiasm for the company or the product. Now, although I am no longer officially an ambassador for WWE, believe it or not, my only official role in WWE is as GM for Saturday Morning Slam, a contract ends in one month, I was still looking forward to being the big, part of the biggest event of the year. It'll probably end up going anyway. I'll probably end up going anyway, but I'm about one-sixth as excited about it as I was just a few hours ago. I wanted so badly to hear 75,000 WWE fans chanting yes and seeing fans walk away absolutely ecstatic about the outcome of a review for the first time in a while. A long while. But when given the chance to make it happen, unless they got something major up their sleeve, WWE's answer right now was resounding no, no, no. One talent said that Foley had voiced his opinion previously would be one thing, but he buried us. Really didn't bury any talent, only when his contract was expiring. But then he said he's going to WrestleMania. Funny part is that same person that everyone else actually agreed with what he said. His son Dewey, now an adult, made famous in the Kane Dewey promo in ECW where he was a young child got involved writing. Sorry people don't know much about wrestling, but this company right now is in some serious shit. This is really bad for their company because one or two individuals truly believe that their opinions reign much higher over the millions and millions of people who watch their shows religiously on a weekly basis. It's such a horrible feeling, obviously because it's close to home. You have these guys who work their asses off 320 plus days a year who barely see their loved ones and they get completely disrespected and disregarded because Triple fucking H thinks he, they're too small or not star material. My dad made your ass. And people told my dad all his life that he would amount to nothing. So Triple H should know from experience that the people that work their asses off and are told that they are worthless are the ones that make the company the best it can be. Without my dad, Triple H is just a mid-carder. My dad went out of his way to make sure he turned Triple H into the intimidating, scary, cerebral assassin, son of a bitch that he has become. So it's about time that people who deserve to be the best are given the opportunity to show it. WWE's a fucking dictatorship, and it just truly is a shame. Future WWE writer Dewey Foley. <laughs> yeah. Which he well, has not a- updated his LinkedIn because it still has him as lead writer 205 Live. But 
that was obviously uh, after all this. Well, I'm trying to remind myself when he started. So it's two years later that he gets hired as as a writer's assistant. Yeah. January 2016. You know, is he wrong about anything? Is Mick wrong about anything? No, not at all. I I do think the Mick stuff got lost in the noise a little bit in a way because he had calmed down on it. It wasn't like it was when he was in TNA and people were kind of worried about him with the long Facebook posts and stuff. But like, there was some like Mick fatigue still at this point. Yeah. With him going off on Facebook and stuff. I think he... I don't. I think he realized that maybe whether it's post concussion related or whatever, he did realize in the long run. I think he did not have a healthy relationship with social media, so it it gets toned down not long after this. Um, the thing pe- people remember the Dewey thing, I think, more than the Mick thing. Yeah, because he was so blunt, and then ends up working there two years later. Yeah. He's- it worked out for him, I guess. But, I mean, it's interesting. And, and, you, and you can tell Foley is thinking of himself in the Brian story. Yes, of course. And what he had to deal with. You know? Yes, of course. And, I mean, like, let me ask you this, though. Was there a point where Mick should have been pushed in the way that we wanted Brian to be pushed here? And I think because of the timing and who else was around, I think the answer is no. I think when he got the title was probably the perfect time for him to get the title. But it had a clock on it because of Mania and Austin and Rock. Yeah, but still, it was a culmination of that whole story with him and Vince. You know, where they went with the Rock instead of him. And... It's a Survivor Series. He got screwed. And he got his revenge. Yeah. I, I wonder what the original finish would have been if, um, as planned, Austin wasn't in the building. You know? I don't know. Talk about that on the Patreon show. That that that, that was not the original finish. Yeah. Um, And I think it also hurt him that they switched the title so many times within the next several weeks. Yeah. I mean, within a short period, really, that it goes, that it hot potatoes from Rock wins the tournament in November, Mankind beats him at the end of December, Rock wins it back at the Rumble, Mankind wins it back at halftime heat, and then Rock beats him at Valentine's Day Massacre to set up, not Valentine's Day Massacre, the Royal After, um, to set up Mania. And then I think that I, I'll say this. I think it was a big problem, though, that Mick ends up kind of in a weird mid-card role at Mania. Yeah. Now, they did tie him to the main event with the referee thing, and Big Show takes him out, and then he comes back and all that. So it's not like he had no role beyond being in a mid-card match, but he's at the peak of his stardom, and you really should be doing more with him. Yeah. Yeah. All right, the show noted that as though in the poll had a mixed reaction, you know, they split down the middle. Dave thought nothing was off the charts, although the Brian Wyatt match was great, but nothing was bad. Cena and Norton was horrible if you judge a match based on crowd reaction, and good if you were watching a match for what they did in building it. Crowd turned on them before they got started. Just as the Rumble was entertaining, booked well, executed well, but the crowd killed it. It was far from the best Rumble, 
in the sense that there weren't that many big highlights and it was lacking in surprise outsiders. With really only Kevin Nash, who got a nice reaction, but he's already played that role a few years back and the reaction was umpteen times bigger. Before Mania comes Elimination Chamber on February 23rd, Minneapolis. At press time, two matches are official. The main event is the Elimination Chamber match for the world title with Orton defending against Cena, Sheamus, Brian, Christian, and Cesaro. It's a big break for Cesaro, but there's a lower card guy in a tag team that was going nowhere and suddenly thrust into the main event in what recent years has been number four pay-per-view of the year. As for Christian, while he is listed in the match and at press time is scheduled in the match, it's under consideration to injure him and have someone take his place. Dave has no idea who that would be, but Brock Lesnar is not scheduled to do another match until the Undertaker match. He has fulfilled his contractual quota of matches for the year that ends for Mania, and it's on upcoming TV. The other match is the Wyatts versus the Shield, which need to be done before the inevitable Shield breakup. It can't be a Mania with Bray against Cena. Oh, that match wouldn't be memorable at all. <laughs> also expected is Batista versus Abatadario, AJ versus Naomi for the Divas title, and a tag title match with the New Age Outlaws against the Rhodes Brothers, and possibly the Usos or other teams. Punk, was Kane, Punk versus Kane was scheduled, but that's obviously out. That Christian thing is eerie because it's right around then that he gets the concussion that, and they shelve him indefinitely. Yeah, so they didn't have I'm, to injure him. He injured. He got injured on his own. I am checking to see when his actual last match is because Chambers on the twenty third, right, the day before the network launch. Yeah. Um, okay. No, he wrestled into March actually. Okay. So yeah. Okay. Uh. His last match until his comeback was at the Barclays Raw that I was at to do the Joe Manganiello interview for Bleacher Report. So, so yeah, he he's there until he's still around until a month after Chamber. I forget. Do they take him out of that match though? I don't remember. I'm checking. He only has two. Uh, oh no, wait, I read it wrong. Twelve matches in February, not two. Uh, okay, yeah, he is in the Chamber match, so they don't take him out. Well, how about that? Um, as far as anything else with the chair, so wait, they, you know, Wyatt versus Shield was a big deal. Oh, a very memorable match. Yes. Inevitable Shield breakup is interesting to say because it's not like they've teased anything yet. They haven't even officially turned babyface yet. Mm-hmm. We knew it was eventually going to happen, but I don't think anyone figured it would be as soon as it happened. No. Because it happened in June, after they've officially been babyfaces for like two and a half months. What a great idea that was, too, by the way. <sighs> the timing on that was so weird. That doesn't happen today. No. They were so over. And do you, do you realize how much money those guys were making just from, like, autograph signings and stuff, too? Oh, yeah. And that the company was getting a piece of. Yeah. Insane. Like, they were only together as an act for a year and a half. Mm-hmm. They're baby but they're treated less than three months. But they're treated as this all-time act because of the reunion. But I mean, they were a great act together, and they got over. And I know, but it didn't last long, though. No, but it, not through any of their fault or anything. No, no, it's not their fault at all. It's stupidity by WWE and at the time. So, and then also, everyone always assumed that when the split happened, it was going to be Ambrose turning heel. Well, it made no sense. Because also, just even, like, when they had worked as semi-baby faces before the turn, like, the one who showed the most as a baby face was Rollins. Well, he's the ba- he's the ba- he was the best baby face worker. 
Yes. As we've seen in recent years. And and Reigns in his own style, too. And, like, Moxley, I think, is a better babyface worker outside of WWE. Yeah. Just something about him did not... Well, I mean... ...as an in-ring babyface in WWE. I guess he's kind of the same person no matter what. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, in AEW. Yes. So... But interesting to see Dave say inevitable breakup here. All right, let's get to the Rumble. The New Age Outlaws, Billy Gunn and Road Dog won the tag titles from Cody Rhodes and Goldust in 637. The Outlaws regained the titles for the first time since losing them on November 8th, 1999 to the Dudleys in State College, Pennsylvania. That's the longest time between a loss and subsequent title win in the history of the tag titles, and probably by a wide margin. Goldust did a flip dive off the apron on the Road Dog while Cody did a plunge on Billy. They got heat on Goldust. The finish saw Cody use the crossroads of Road Dog, but Gun made the say. Road Dog did a blind tad to Gun. Cody hit Road Dog with a disaster kick, but Gun came back in. Used the famous throw on Cody for the pin. The Rose Brothers were very good. The Outlaws were always in the right place and were solid in everything else they did. Two and a half stars. Okay, two things here. One, Dave is wrong about the title. The the last new Outlaws title reign. That was uh, it. They lost to the Dudleys at No Way Out, February two thousand. Yeah, but that ain't that big of a deal. <laughs> it's not a big difference. I'm just curious where he got that date, because that's the Dudley's first title win. There was no November 8th, 99 title loss to the Dudleys. Yeah. Um, As far as everything else, I mean, they squandered the momentum that Cody and Dustin had. But yeah. what else is new? I mean, the other thing is... I get how it fit into the authority storyline to have the outlaws wrestling. I thought it was a big mistake to put the tag titles on them. Yeah. It it didn't fit. Bray Wyatt pinned Daniel Bryan in 21-29. The match was filled with yes chance, and this stole the show. Rowan Harper distracted Bryan, and Wyatt got him from behind and took over. Brian did a tope on Harper. Rowan grabbed them, but the ref kicked both out. Wyatt got in the huddle with Rowan and Harper and told them to leave that he didn't need them. The crowd went crazy with yes chance whenever he was on offense. Wyatt missed a charge outside the ring into the steps and was selling his knee big. Brian worked over the knee. Wyatt came back and smashed Brian's head against the post. They brought up at that point that Brian was rumored to have had a concussion. Boy, in hindsight, with Punk leaving, are they lucky that Brian's concussion wasn't more serious? Although the rest of this show would play that better. Wyatt took over, including doing a senton on the floor. Crowd reacted big to his bridging backwards walk. Brian got near fall to Frankenstein off the top. Lots of near falls back and forth. Wyatt clotheslined Brian nearly out of his boots for near fall. Wyatt went for Sister Abigail. Brian turned to a schoolboy and then put on the yes lock. Wyatt bit his hand to break the hole and pounded on Brian with ground and pound elbows. They were both on the middle rope and trading headbutts. Brian knocked him off and hit a splash off the top. Finish saw Brian go for another tope, and Wyatt caught him and gave him the downward spiral Sister Abigail into the barricades. He threw him into the ring and delivered a second Sister Abigail for the pin. Four stars. Okay. I'm not sure the last time I watched this. My understanding is it still holds up. I meant the Danielson match. Those tends to hold up. But it's a match people always point to, and to a lesser extent the other matches they had years later, that, I mean, there are no really quality Bray Wyatt singles matches that don't involve Brian Danielson. 
do you think that do you think it was a Wyndham Rotunda issue or do you think it was a Bray Wyatt character issue? Um, I think it's more of a character issue. For, I agree, some of that. but I'm curious to hear your reasons before I give my Um, because he's working the match in, a, in involving that character and doing the shtick that that character is involved with, too. But also part of it, too, is that how the gimmick changed so much over the years that his matches got worse as the gimmick changed. Yes. His babyface run should have let him be better in the ring, I think. But it didn't. Um, the way I look at it is this. Based on Husky Harris and the flashes he showed in his better matches, he was clearly talented as an in-ring wrestler. The talent was there. I think it's. I think it starts with the spooky gimmick and also being a heel. That as... His strengths as a worker physically were, like, athletic big guy stuff. And that stuff just did not work with the Bray Wyatt character. It didn't. So well, the Fiend. Well, especially not with the Fiend, but even with just regular Bray Wyatt. It just didn't click, so he didn't do it. Danielson, besides being Brian Danielson and bringing what he always brings was also able to structure matches with cutoffs that Bray could do and, like, exploit, like, the fast twitch stuff and be impressive while still not compromising the Bray Wyatt character. And he never really had anyone else that was able to help him structure matches that way. And as a result, like, he just did not have this real you know, library of quality matches that someone with his physical talent and his mind for the business really probably, or at least his mind for the entertainment side of the business sort of had. Um, well, I mean, that's the best way I can. He should have, he should have had a career, I guess, like the undertaker, but he did. Yeah. He should have had a, an opportunity to tweak his character in a way that would allow him to make the most of his in-ring talents and have better matches the same way that Undertaker did, starting in, you know, late 96. But that's never a direction they went in, so the, the matches of his that really stick out are it's the Danielson singles matches, it's the trios with the shield, and I, I, really that's about it, right? Match-wise, yes. Now, some moment, individual moments in some other matches, sure. But, and I just, I feel like it's a shame because, like I said, he was talented. It's not that he was not talented. It was not that he did not have physical ability as a pro wrestler. And, you know, here's the example I give. It's not just Undertaker, it's also Kane. Look at how yeah. much of a better wrestler in terms of good matches Kane is when he's not spooky. You know? Throughout his run in that gimmick, there's the run in 2001 where it's toned down. And he has that really, really good TV match with uh, with Albert. There's the ECW title run where he decides to work a championship style and has that great TV match with Punk and has good matches with others. Like those spooky gimmicks, if you fact if you are integrating them into matches, just are not recipes for 
any kind of traditionally good pro wrestling. But that's not what they're. I mean, they're not someone trying say to do that. that. That's not what they're supposed like to be, because they're gimmicks, and that's what they are. You know. But I think Danielson showed the right wrestlers with the right mind for the business could have brought a structure to Bray Wyatt matches that could have allowed him to show what he could do more. Yeah. All right. So anyway, we go to Brock Lesnar beating the big show in 201. Lesnar came out the destroyed show and pounded him into the ground with punches. He then grabbed the chair and wore it out on show. He gave him about six chair shots. Lesnar went for another chair shot, but show got up, punched him in the jaw. The punch looked great and Lesnar rolled out of the ring. Show was selling the beating. Lesnar was stalling for time. Show went on for a second punch. Lesnar ducked, picked him up, gave him the F5 on, for the pinfall. Lesnar gave him about 19 more chair shots, including breaking one chair in two and wearing out a second. Some of them were brutally hard. Show was swe- swearing a few times, and you're not supposed to do that. He had marks over his body. That'd be no fun taking those chair shots. The 19 came off as overkill. The idea is you do a few shots, get a reaction, and the crowd goes numb. But then you keep doing it, the crowd's shocked, and it brings it back stronger. But in this case, it didn't come back stronger. But that wasn't the goal of this match, though. The story of no real match told destruction of the company's biggest monster was needed to get less than ready for Undertaker. Dave rather a few less chair shots and one big destruction spot like an F5 on a table and show being carried out. Show leaving on his own power hurt the idea of what they were building. In addition, Show went home to sell the pounding, missing TV the next two nights. They didn't have the announcers push hard. The Show had to go to the hospital after the match and was injured. What's the point of him missing the show to sell an angle without being played up huge what the angle was in the first place? Star in a quarter. I, I disagree with Dave. I thought this was terrific. Yeah. It was this sign, finally, that they realized they needed to rehab Lester. It was this acknowledgement that they had just done a bad job with him in the year and a half he'd been back and this went such a long way and then you know the then the the streak breaking ends up happening and they do the you know the even the title run dominating cena and all of a sudden he's probably even stronger than he would have been if they had booked him correctly when he first came back um i think this worked i mean Joe, you know, is still not that far removed from being champion on one of the brands. He's been, like, having good matches for a while at this point. This is probably, the you know, among the best he'd ever been as a wrestler. And it was shocking to, to see someone dominate him like that. You know, someone who, when they were both active in the company previously, he was always competitive with. So I think it absolutely worked. And I think long term, hindsight tells you it absolutely worked. Yeah, I mean, hindsight, definitely. Yeah. You know what the weirdest part of that whole thing is, though? What? Undertaker's concussion probably made it so that the streak ending had it. The reaction was more memorable than it would have been otherwise. That match turning out so bad that, like, it completely threw off the crowd to where the shock, I feel like, was so much bigger deal than if they had been going one, two, no, one, two, no, the whole match. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, it's so weird. Like, obviously, you don't want the guy to get a concussion. And Vince had decided to end the streak because he thought, like, Taker, thought Taker looked physically terrible even before the concussion. He did. I mean, well, we didn't see the match, but we didn't. Apparently, the bulk of the match being so bad was the concussion, not whatever else was going on with his hip issues and whatnot. But, I mean, I think Vince made the right decision, and 
that case, and I think also, like I said, weirdly, the concussion made for a a better moment. That the match was so bad and so dull that even, like, no one's even really thinking, oh, three F5s, would he really kick out of that? Like, it just, all of a sudden, he wins, and it just, you know, there's never been a reaction like that in our lifetime. Yeah. Anyway. The Shield vowed the three of them would be the last three and would be every man for himself for the title shot. Roman Reigns noted he had a winning number. They wouldn't tell each other what their numbers were. Renee Young told the Randy Orton she brought that Lester and Batista before the title shot, and the winner of the Rumble would also get a shot. She also brought up Bray Wyatt getting a shot. What's notable is the Chamber match, none of those three were in it. Orton said Lester and Batista were both good, but not great like him. He called Wyatt a reject from Duck Dynasty and a deranged hillbilly who sits in a rocking chair. Then we go to Randy Orton over John Cena in 2055 to retain the world title. The crowd pretty well killed this one. At first, when the crowd was doing the dueling Cena chants, let's go Cena chants were louder. But as the match went on, the crowd was really booing Cena bad. The story of the match was the chants. The minute Orton went to the mat for a hold, the boring chants started. Orton tried to transfer the hostility to, to match heat on him. As a heel, yelling the fans chanting for Daniel Bryan, they should chant his name. Cena's comeback was booed. Cena used a full Nelson to a net breaker. He went to the top where he was booed for a leg slice. The crowd tried to disrespect the match by getting a wave going, but it didn't really take. Cena backdrop Orton over the top rope, but Orton delivered a draping DT on the floor. It became the form of the house show match of working out each, each finishes. Cena skipped an RKO, put on the STF in the middle. Orton made the ropes. The crowd was booing Cena more and more as the match went on. Referee Charles Robinson got knocked down. Cena put the STF on Orton. Orton actually was tapping before Cena got the hold on and tapped again the second it was on. Cena let go to try and revive Robinson. Orton hit Cena with a belt shot, but Cena kicked out. That didn't get a reaction it should have. Instead, it got a this is awful chant. Orton was not happy at this point. Cena had the attitude adjustment. Orton kicked out. Orton in the RKO. Cena kicked out. Orton missed a punt. Orton got out of another attitude adjustment attempt. He put Cena in the STF. Cena powered out. Put Orton in the STF. The crowd was booing. Orton tried to roll and pin Cena. Got out of the move. Orton then hit the attitude adjustment. Um... <laughs> for near fall more chance Cena to RKO for near fall Cena had messy swinging DT off the ropes and put the SCF on again Orton almost made the ropes but Cena pulled him into the center just as Orton looked like he had no chance to get out the lights went out and the Wyatts were in the ring Orton was selling like he was dead Cena went after the Wyatts Orton then sprung up and hit another RKO for the pin after the match Harper hit Cena with a running kick then he continued to beat down Cena until Bray laid him out with his sister Abigail the crowd was chanting yes at, at Wyatt as he laid out Cena, three and a quarter stars. Okay, I found the botchamania that goes over this. So that's probably the best way to to hear what we want to hear from this match, right? I guess. With the chance. Because I mean, they're all edited together neatly. So let's go to what our uh, dear friend Matthew um, put together here, which I. <laughs> Not that it's a surprise, but I forgot that his Daily Motion account just says Matthew Gregg and not Matthew. But anyway. This last year at the Rumble. Earliest was 2008. I like to try to read the faces of these competitors here tonight. And what do you see, King? To be perfectly clear, this is at the very beginning of the match, too. 
And our announcers are Cole, JBL, and Lawler. Yeah. But, like, literally, they just had the title belt graphic. This is the very beginning, and the crowd is already completely shitting on this. Yeah. I see a look of confidence and strictly business on the face of John Cena. Those, uh, those smirks early on from, from Randy Orton. I don't know what to make of that. I don't know. That may be a little bit of nervousness. When you talk about energy change, John Cena enters an arena as like well, any of the all-time greats. The energy level just picks up. As Stephanie McMahon said, there's no excuses tonight. Traditional match, one fall to the finish. Here in Pittsburgh, they're chanting for Daniel Bryan. I'm not sure they realize that he was in the first match and he lost. Well, many WWE fans believe Daniel Bryan is still the uncrowned champion. That's what Daniel Bryan did tonight. <laughs> you better believe it. That was one heck of a match, King. A great matchup versus Bray Wyatt to kick off the show. See Randy Orton just once again, just not only mocking John Cena, but power out. Downfall, guys, and Randy Orton tonight. If he, he's paying too much attention to exactly. the to the universe, yeah, I you got to keep you your look, guys. I, I got to disagree with you both. I don't think anybody gets in Randy Orton's Wait head. A minute. He hears voices. <laughs> Wait a minute, you just agreed with us a moment ago, and now you're disagreeing. Well, I realize what you said. I don't listen to you guys. Well, sometimes you make us wish we were deaf. <laughs> I wish you were gone. An electric crowd here tonight. John Cena tweeting out earlier today that. I just believe in me. Hashtag never give up, even stronger. Alright, you get the idea. <laughs> I remember watching this live though. It was uncomfortable. Yes. Oh wait, we got boring. I forgot we got boring. And it was like boring sitting in a channel. Like Part of the problem was that they're so inflexible with the match layout that they didn't work a match to try to win the crowd over. You know, it's it just it, it was just uncomfortable. I mean, it was uncomfortable to watch this. And yeah, Orton is the type of guy. You know, they're having long match. He's working his slow pace. It was definitely the breeding ground for this. Yeah. Oh, here's a you both suck coming up here. Always a good one. They're absolutely at the peak of their career, in their peak physical shape. Randy this Orton. is a moment in history. Randy Orton saying, you should be chanting my name. World heavyweight champion. And it is electric inside this arena in Pittsburgh tonight. They are chanting everything under the sun here in Pittsburgh. I love it. That's what's so great about the WWE fans. They can do whatever they want. Just have a good time. It's WrestleMania season. They're chanting whatever they want, Maggle. And the thing is, the thing that doesn't get brought up about this whole thing is this is happening in Pittsburgh. Pittsburgh, which is not known as being one of the hottest crowds, too. It's the rumble, though, so it's a travel-heavy crowd, too. That's, that's the thing. That's the thing in all this. Oh, then we got end this match, and this is awful, too. Thank you, Keep expecting that run out of Cena. He's not getting it, but perhaps this could be it here. Cena putting Orton in position. A three count. And he's trying to, uh, trying to convince the referee. 
There's Cena. Cena with on the pet. I'm leaving nothing in the bag. It's it's just it. That's another. It was just especially you're doing this as a rematch of a ladder match, and they're working the most like cookie cutter Randy Orton chinlock match possible. Yeah, it's just bad, 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 bad. So, all right. Well, enough about that debacle. Let's get to the rumble. So, Batista won the Royal Rumble at five oh six. Open with CM Punk and Seth Rollins. Then we have Damian Sandow and Dave Nelson. One of the things that they had was to have the talent run to the ring. Well, a lot of guys that work, for, for the guys who don't run well, it made them look unathletic. Mm. And Cody Rhodes came in next. And then Kane came out in his dress pants. Punk threw him out. Alexander Rusev came in. Lana Main wasn't with him. roster debut. That's right. Lana wasn't with him. He's changed his look and attire in recent weeks. The old look and attire fit the character better. The well-groomed Bulgarian monster isn't as good as the more wild-looking, and regular trunks isn't as good as the gladiator outfit. People didn't know him, and when the announcers put him over and they gave him time, they would have rather had debuted him as a monster on TV where he's a focus rather than a match here unless he was in position to eliminate a lot of guys or last a long time and do some memorable things. Michael Cole said that Rusev was an Olympic prospect for the Bulgarian powerlifting team. Powerlifting is not an Olympic sport. They also pushed he had a sumo and Muay Thai background. And uh, he gave Punk a Samoan drop, said so it made him look like a player. And then they didn't put him on TV at all this week. And That was a gets, surprise seeing him there. And he gets sidelined, too. Like, it's not his, like, debut debut. No. It's his pre-debut, I guess. Yeah, then they end up bringing him back with Lana for his proper run. Yeah. It, it was weird. Because also, this is pre-NXT on TV. I mean, not even on TV. This is pre-NXT being, like, available to widespread American audience. Because yeah, no network yeah. yet. I mean, well, no. It was available on Hulu, but they don't promote it at all. No. And here's the thing, too, and we're about to bring this up, as you mentioned with Travis. Jack Swagger came out next. When the music played, people popped. Then the air went out as they wanted it to be Cesaro. That, that that shows you the traveling crowd, this thing here. And they should have known they were dealing with that environment when they were laying out this show. Yes. They should have known this was going to possibly happen. Yeah. Kofi Kingston came out. Uh, Jimmy Uso came out. Then Goldust. At this point is where everyone threw Russo, Russo, Rusev out. Punk knocked Kingston out of the ring, but Rusev caught him on the floor so his feet never touched. Rusev carried him down the entrance aisle, put him on the barricade, and pounded on him. He left him laying on top of the barricade, and Rusev was gone. In the athletic highlight of the show, and really the only one that liked that, Kofi recovered. His feet stood on the floor, got off his back, and was able to walk on top of the barricade down the aisle. He then was able to run a few steps, leaped off the barricade to the apron. They didn't know how far that was, but it looked like more than 10 feet. It was a standing broad jump. But it was much more than that. It wasn't much more than that. He made the apron easy and he was back in. JBL called him Bob Beeman, the guy who set the world record in the long jump in the 1968 Olympics, which won the sport's most famous records until it was broken in 1991. But the next day, Jerry Lawler had no idea who Bob Beeman was when Layfield made the reference again. Dean Ambrose showed up. Dolph Ziggler. Um, Ziggler's been getting a little reaction to TV and undercard reaction on the road, but got a big reaction here since this was a different audience. 
they were chanting, let's go Ziggler, and chanting for almost nobody except Brian during the match. I mean, you know, with all the themes we're talking about here, it's been talked about. I forget where, when this first got revealed. It, it turned out that they only put the title on him with cashing in against Del Rio solely just to have a big moment at the Postmania Raw. Oh, yeah. They saw, even though he had gotten organically over and they had been giving him something of a real push and he had that great act with AJ and Biggie at the time, like, they didn't see anything in him. It was that fucking name. I think that, that hurt. That, that hurt so bad. He needed another name. He was overcoming it for a while, though. Like, yeah, I know, but the name, I mean, the name is such an albatross that he had to carry. Yeah. It can't take him seriously. Dolph Ziggler. No. What the fuck is that shit? <laughs> Our truth came out. You can see what they thought of him as Ambrose kicked him over the top immediately. In another Kofi moment, Rollins gave him a head kick and Ambrose pushed him over the top. Kofi was backwards on the apron with his ankles, only clinging to the bottom rope. Swagger's trying to kick him off. While doing so, Kingston held on to Swagger's foot, took off his boot, and hit Swagger in the head with it. Crowd like that. Then we get Kevin Ash. It's a veteran surprise. Got a big pop, but it was done like Boston a few years back. He looked really slow. Roman Reigns was in, and he did his thing. Uh, he eliminated Kofi. You know, most of say Reigns was the MVP because how he was booked. Kingston was the match's match outstanding. The rain started dumping people out. So he dumped out he dumped out uh uh Kofi, he dumped out Ziggler, Nash, Kali came in, Ro- Ro- Reigns and Ambrose got rid of him. Goldust actually knocked Cody out. He had to look like it was the last thing he wanted to do. At least it appears they're gonna do the Co- Goldust versus Cody direction, which in the long term is the worst thing for both of them. And then Roman threw out Goldust. This left Punk and the Shield in the ring. Seamus entered as the saving babyface. People fought for him since he was another unadvertised surprise. He did his trademark spots, the forms on Ambrose, the Irish curse on Rollins, bro kick on Reigns. The crowd was really into it. And then the Miz showed up to no reaction. Fandango came in and another cult crowd thing. They started singing his song and dancing. You know, the guy hasn't pushed anymore. And the TVs gets prelim level reactions, which led to more Daniel Bryan chants. Torito entered. They played a little about the doors music and like one of them went in, but Torito. None of the Matadors ended up in, in. He did spin head scissors on Rollins, gave Punk a spinning head scissors. It like Punk wanted to take it for fun. Then he gave the move to Fandango to eliminate him. Fun then when Reigns pressed him and threw him over the top rope on the Fandango, who caught Torito to break his fall. Cesaro hit the giant swing on Miz, got Punk in it, but the shield attacked him to get a bait face reaction for Cesaro. Then he did a 28-rep giant swing on Seth Rollins. <laughs> That's Cesaro. Yeah. Also, Luke- you see they're lining him up as a babyface here. To me, this is the actual most infuriating thing they did in the booking this run. They did a whole babyface baby turn for this guy, and they finally shoot at the night after Mania, and then the next night the SmackDown taping, they basically pretend it never happened. Yeah, booking of Cesaro was so fucking off for so I mean, many it's, years. It's, but this in particular, especially with how much he is getting over, 
and that they the way they were positioning him, they're positioning him as someone who's turning babyface and basically was a de facto babyface even before he the sort of turn that they have been getting these clean like the clean win over Orton on TV and stuff. And then they put him with Heyman as this afterthought. It just it's and just undo the babyface turn side of things at the next TV after after the Raw after Mania. It's it's it even by their standards and the worst of their creative from this era, uh, you know, the twenty teens and into you know twenty twenty two or whatever. This is still one of the worst and weirdest things they ever did. Yeah, that whole Cesaro thing, because it looked like it was going somewhere. It looked like it was going great, and then. Yeah, they 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 screwed him up so much. So Jay Uso entered at the Luke Harper. John Layfield sort of entered. His music played. He got in the ring, turned around, told Michael Cole to take his take his jacket, and when his back turned, everyone rains to him out. Cole says, first time JBL, the JBL character was even in the Royal Rumble. So in other words, he Bradshaw or W history are two different people now. Well, Cole said the JBL character. How how was he never in the Rumble matches, John Bradshaw Layfield? Because he worked, I think he had title defenses, or he was in singles matches. And they just didn't have him do double duty like when he was U.S. champion or whatever. Okay. Yeah. Fans were chanting, you still got it at Layfield, which is funny since he did nothing but climb in the ring and take off his jacket. Take my jacket, <laughs> Maggle. Eric Rowan entered. Uh, then we... Then we led the, which led to Harper and Rowan eventually scaring off of the shield, which ended with Ryback showing up, which led to Goldberg chance. Uh, but the Dario entered. Batista came in next. Crowd booed him since he was a guy that who may win that wasn't Brian. Batista started chunking people out. He did a one arm lift and threw out Dario. I remember that. Big E showed up. He was all oiled up, which stood up because most of the guys weren't. He uh, gave Batista belly to belly, Seamus three backbreakers. Let's go nuts as number 30 was set to come out with a yes and Dan Bryan chance. Well, number 30 hits and it's Ray Mysterio. Booyaka Booyaka 619. Shall we go to the videotape? Yes, that's why I was setting you up. Okay. Ambrose been in trouble on the top rope. And twice the number 30 spot has yielded a champion. Undertaker in 07 and seen in 08. Who's it going to be this year? He is a winner of the 2006 Royal Rumble, Rey Mysterio. What was that name again?
Batista and Sheamus. Roman Reigns, 30 minutes in this match. supposed to go out missing the bro kick i guess that was supposed to happen yes and then you know the crowd re the crowd starts getting up again when it's down to batista and reigns because they're rallying behind reigns yeah the oh, yeah. An electric atmosphere in pittsburgh oh, batista with a spear batista with a spear of his own Oh, man, the actual Ric Flair, not animated. <laughs> Meanwhile, you have the right to remain. Okay, and then the Tabachimania the, the endings. Um, okay, fi- finish the rest of what Dave wrote, and then we'll... I'm not. I'm not reading on the play-by-play. Well, I mean, okay. Well, okay, so since we talked about it, we're just... He rated it three and a quarter stars. <laughs> well, and we didn't talk about Punk getting taken out but i yeah have has there ever been anything more actively shit on in terms of like no event matches that by a live crowd than the two big matches on this show no well no there was the following year's rumble too there was that but other than that like i think this is worse go on because it was so long with it and it spanned the entire show basically after Brian worked. It, it was basically you didn't just going have going on for an hour and a half on it all. Yes. 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 Yeah. I think that's, that's a reasonable take, but you know, Reigns is fresh here and he hasn't been ruined by anything yet. And like the Reigns backlash doesn't come until really late 2014. It's that's it's the you know the punk thing kind of I guess even though the keep Roman strong thing has been misrepresented like punk was not shitting on him 
I don't, it, it it contributed to the perception of Reigns as a management favorite, but everyone knew that already. But uh, it's that damn suffer and suck and trash promo. Oh yeah, that I think is the biggest one. Oh yeah, that it came right after the Punk podcast. I think was a factor. I think the timing did have something to do with it, but it was much more that than the Punk thing. Because yeah, Punk was very clear. He had nothing against Reigns, and he specifically said, like I talked about earlier, he said, if you want to keep him strong, have him beat me. It was not an anti-Reigns thing, much even as people have looked at it that way, and even Reigns has looked at it that way when it's come up in interviews. But they're behind him here because he's Roman Reigns from The Shield. But he was also, I mean, positioned as being... That 94 diesel. Yes. That, that type at this point in time. Now, it also didn't help that Batista looked... I don't even know what the right... Oh. Not just... Not even that. That's part of it. I think... But I old think in his own way. Not old... I mean, just... The plastic he, surgery. That... Well, that and, like, the... His footwear he was wearing here. Well, I was about to say... The combination of the new gear with these weird, like, biker shorts. But it's like, it's wrestling gear. He has his logo and stuff on them. And the sneakers he was wearing and whatever. Like, just the whole presentation, like, gave these very, like... As a babyface, it was not going to work. As a babyface, it didn't work. He just... Even though he wasn't, it gave off, like, a checked-out vibe. Yeah, he needed to be a heel immediately. And it probably it, it didn't help that it, you're getting that kind of weird vibe while he's coming back after shooting a movie. Yeah, you know he's not big star full time actor Dave Batista yet, which is a whole other thing because WWE didn't want to do any promotion or tie-ins with uh, Guardians of the Galaxy because they thought it would be a flop. Yep, which is a whole other angle to this. That you know leads to Batista becoming disillusioned. You know, thankfully they pivot. You know, they go with Brian. They book it the right way, where you know they do the thing where he has the match with Triple H first and comes back, and they they lay out the main event to you know maximize all the storyline stuff up to that point. But you know, just Batista clearly wanted to come back and have this nice last run going into the movie coming out. And aside from the Shield trios matches with, you know, the Evolution reunion on paper, like, they completely ruined, like, this big run he wanted to have. Yeah. It was, it wasn't, like, other than the weird look in this first match back, like, none of this is his fault. No. Alright. So, let's talk about some other stuff involved in this show. WWE had another internet pay-per-view misfire at the Rumble. This doesn't reflect potential problems with WrestleMania stream because Major League Baseball Advanced Media, who are reputed to be the best in the world at this, are not involved until the network launches. But Dave doubts there are more than a few thousand orders worldwide for the Rumble. He estimated about five or 6,000 based on what WrestleMania did last year, and it was a disaster. UFC 169, which also had likely a few thousand internet preview orders, also had problems with the stream going down. Pre-game, which Dave was actually watching on the internet, had annoyances with jumps reminiscent, but not as bad as some of those bad Ring of Honor shows. 
Dave heard the internet pay-per-view was unwatchable for the first two hours for a lot of people. Plus, there were issues with attempting to order. The idea they couldn't service that many people, and now you're jumping from 5,000 to potential 1 million all tuning in together during Mania, let alone perhaps hundreds of thousands ordering the service all in the hours leading to the show. Well, hopefully there are no problems. Dave stopped watching the pregame on the internet and went to watch on TV, and there were no problems at all. TV is about 30 seconds or a minute ahead of the internet as well. Okay. It's hard to take people back, I think, to what things were like 10 years ago. I know. The, this was a genuine risk. That live streaming at scale was very unproven still. Yeah. I mean, even MLB.TV is still a niche product for a baseball-obsessed fan who wants everything. Yes. It's not the mainline product. I don't know if there are subscriber numbers out there, but it's not at the forefront of the product the way WWE Network was. And everyone knew, okay, you know, Baseball Advanced Media, you know, BAM Tech or whatever they are now, they're the best at this. It's going to be better than most. But there were real concerns. And look, going into Mania, and even to a degree during Mania, those early live streams had a lot of problems once the network launched. I never had any problems. Really? Okay. Never. I would say... I remember talking about that on Twitter. I never had a problem with it at all. And I always thought it was weird that people had problems with it, but I never did. So the quality, not even the quality dipping? Nope. Okay. And I was watching on, on a PlayStation 3. I think I was too. But the, the, regardless, though, like it was still pretty widespread is my point. Like I had it. I would say it took at least a few months before they really worked out those kinks. Remember, that first live stream on the network, the uh, NXT, what was it called? Because it wasn't TakeOver. The next show was the first TakeOver. Oh, God. I forget what they called the show, but it's effectively oh. uh, NXT special Feb. Was it? It went Revolution, was it, or something? Evolution, or no? Some you're shit? thinking our Evolution, but it was uh, NXT, uh, blah, blah, blah. NXT Arrival was the first Arrival. There you go. Okay, that show completely the stream just completely vomited on itself. Like, Not that basically went down. <laughs> no, 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 that one did. That one was for everyone, Chris. No, it was not. You I had never had a problem. In, you had zero interruptions and saw the main event completely uninterrupted? I had no problems with... I mean, that's why I always see all these people on, on, on Twitter at the time talking about they had problems with the main network. I'm like, I had zero issues. Really? Okay, because that one was one that I thought was completely universal. Like, the stream just stopped working. Okay. Now, but then, like, you know, they started doing the main event tapings live on the network and to keep testing. And those went OK, but you'd have quality dips. And I remember my mania like stream dipped in the quality a bit throughout the show. So at least for me, and I think widespread, it wasn't really until months into the network that it was consistently like quality picture and Again, it was live streaming at scale was the issue. I remember, I remember some of like the streaming analysts and stuff talking about it was that what was that guy's name? Uh, blah, 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 Dan Raber. Do you remember him? No. Streamingmedia.com or whatever he was. I remember no. him talking about how like there were real reasons to be skeptical because I think it was not long before this, 
HBO did a special thing on HBO Go where there was a, you know, quote-unquote live stream of the True Detective season finale in that first season, and that crashed. So there was a lot to be concerned about. You know, like, we knew that on a smaller scale, a lot of the stuff wrestling fans had seen that made them question it was more to do with incompetence on the side of people doing it. You know, like with Go Fight Live, like, it was known that when you had more competent people like High Spots, like Smart Mark Video doing it, it went a lot better. But at scale, it was just very unproven. Like, when did Twitch launch? Oh, shit, I don't know. Let's see. But I do, I mean, it took a long time before I first ha had my first issue with W Network. A long time. And then it was it, it was something that it, it was a minor thing. Okay. I can't remember what it was. Twitch had launched in June 2011, and I completely forgot this. It was a spinoff of Justin.tv. It was the same company. Um, but that stuff was generally not at scale. And so there was something else, too, that no one thinks about this anymore. A lot of the time, the stream itself on these things would work and not fail with a bunch of viewers. The problem was that the payment processing systems would fail under lots of viewers. Like, I remember when Invicta would do their iPay-per-views, you know, the women's MMA shows. There were, like, at least once or twice when they were doing Ustream pay-per-views or whatever that the stream was working. There was nothing technologically wrong with the stream. But the payment processing went down, so they took down the payment processing and just made it a free show so people could see it. Like, there were a lot of issues that were still being worked out at this time. And I think it hurt adoption, besides that it was still fairly early, that people were not super confident in this yet. They were for on-demand. You know, Netflix is already pretty well established. Hulu is going pretty well. But for live, like, it, there's not a lot yet. Like, WWE really was getting in on the ground floor of this, you know? Seems like that's a that's a running theme for them with uh, streaming stuff. Yes, and also like we think about what the network ended up getting up to, and like set aside the ridiculous projections from their stupid, you know, bullshit surveys they did. Like if you went with the idea that the like the the realistic ceiling of the network was probably like one point three to one point five million in the U.S., like a high end WrestleMania audience. They so underwhelmed at first. What was that initial post-WrestleMania number? Like 450,000? Yeah. It took time for consumer confidence to get there. And they were so convinced that people didn't know how to do streaming. Like, remember all those videos and, like, the stuff on Raw talking to the audience like they're two-year-olds? Yeah, the problem is, though... <laughs> There are people that need to be talked to like that. I mean, they needed to at least explain it more. Because, I mean, look... You remember it. Think about all of, like, the older fans that we knew on forums and stuff. Oh, I, I believe me. I had friends, people, fans, wrestling fans I dealt with at work. They hated it. No, I was about to say, though, that thought they had to watch it on their computer. Well, they could find it on television. And I had to explain. I said, it's not on TV. You, it's, you have to stream it on uh, whatever you have. If you have a video game system that supports it or whatever, yeah. 
Why can't I get it on TV? Because it's not a regular TV channel. I had that, I had that yeah. discussion numerous times with people. And then they to, couldn't understand it. And then to make things worse, they botched their own explanation of it. Like they started with the right idea that people were saying, which was like, you have to explain it's like Netflix. Instead of saying it's like Netflix for WWE or anything like that, they went with it's like Netflix but better. <laughs> Like, and now they're on, and 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 now they're on Netflix. <laughs> and Netflix is now basically poised to be their biggest partner. And you know, I mean, it's uh, a big set up Netflix for future endeavors. Yes. So they're on the ground floor of of Netflix, really going into live streaming. Yep. All right. Well, let's uh, get back here. Let's go to the torch. Yes, the torch this actually a, had some stuff. Well, this is a story. This is a story. Okay, this is a story. Okay, mm. it goes for a little bit. Keep in mind, this is just one night in the midst of a high-pressure series of events. Way I'm going to Wade's going to pass along one subscriber's experience at the Royal Rumble on Sunday, seeking photographs and autographs from wrestlers. PW Torch newsletter subscriber Brian attended the Rumble with his six-year-old daughter, a friend of his, and his six-year-old son. On Saturday, they shared an elevator with Michael Cole at the Marriott City Center across the street from the console center. When Brian said hello, Michael, in front of the two little kids, said, It's fucking cold outside. He then went to the bar later and saw Ric Flair sitting at a table with a couple of the people. He shook hands with him. Later, he stopped to talk to a fan in a wheelchair for a few minutes, signed the back of his shirt, took a picture with him. Overall, Flair was somber whenever Brian saw him, but accommodating. Josh Matthews is also the bar, but no one said anything to him. The next morning, a lot of the rest were working out the fitness facility at the hotel, and fans were waiting to get pictures or autographs as they were leaving. Brian shared an elevator with Michael Hayes, who he says wasn't very friendly. B begrudgingly agreed to take a picture with my six-year-old daughter and I, but I immediately got off when the doors opened before taking a picture with my friend and his six-year-old son. We late. We found out later he denied all autographs and pictures that were requested. Yeah, different experience of Brian James, Road Dog, who was beyond nice and took pictures. Then they ran across Damian Sandow. And Brian said, "I cannot emphasize this enough. He was by far the nicest and most accommodating guy that he had seen in years of fan interactions. He took his time with each fan request for picture, autograph, etc. He gained Brian as a fan after seeing him several times at the hotel." He said Dean Ambrose was a total jerk and didn't acknowledge people even speaking to him. Brian was walking to Starbucks in the hotel all alone. It was just him and just him and Brian. Brian spoke to him. And he ignored Brian like he was deaf. He did that the entire time. <laughs> Pat Patterson was overly accommodating and genuinely excited that people recognized him. Michael Cole ignored people all weekend and refused pictures and autographs from anyone. Great Khali was okay. Took some pictures, mostly ignore people. He has trouble moving around as you only know him for just trying to get to where he needs to get. In fact, at the Rumble, after he was eliminated, a few referees were yelling at him to move quicker up the ramp and off the stage. And Kylie said he physically couldn't move any faster. The rest were very shameless would plow him over on his interest coming up next. Daniel Bryan rushed through the hotel lobby like he was on fire. Not out of rudeness, but out of the likely recognition he would be swarmed by fans if he slowed down at all. Hexall, Jim Duggan, Jerry Lawler, Rusev, Dean Malenko, and John Laurinaitis went and posted for pictures, signed autographs, all at, like they were in a rush. Brian added that one of the pictures he took with a wrestler as a kid before he started his newsletter was with Hacksaw Jim Duggan back in the mid-80s. 
It was very accommodating back then, so it's important to note that these interactions are just a snapshot of what wrestlers face and how they deal with constant contact with fans in public and around live events and should be seen necessarily as a defining image of how they always act around fans. Uh, real quick, no, I think that's saying one of the first pictures Wade took with a wrestler. Uh, oh, okay. Well, I don't know. It's, it's hard to differentiate here. Because it reads kind of first person, even though it's not. It, yeah, well, Wade's not, Wade, Wade's not quoting. He's not using quotes. Kevin Nash is also the hotel and very nice to fans Monday morning when eating breakfast. He didn't encounter Batista outside the Rumble event, but Brian says that Batista's conduct when the crowd rejected him turned him off. Batista's actions after the Rumble only further justified that he had zero interest in him at all, Brian wrote. He took a fan sign and tore it, flipped off some fans, mopped the yes chant, and came across with a total same smug attitude that Triple H did the next night on Raw. Brian said he'd been to a lot of live events the past 20 years. He'd never seen a crowd that was truly ready to fight at the end of the pay-per-view. And instead of actually changing anything for the fans, he believed that WWE gets off knowing they created that anger and gets off on their own power. He made one observation for being in the Rumble Live that he hadn't heard else that Wade hadn't heard elsewhere. He said for 20 minutes or so prior to CM Punk being eliminated, WWE officials kept going to Punk in the corner as he was lying there and had multiple conversations with him. Sitting there watching and already figuring out what they were going to be doing with him and Kane, since Kane laid him on the floor for close 20 or 30 minutes before finally eliminating Punk, it still seemed as if something was off in that whole scenario sequence. Okay, first things first, since that's what we just had. It's wild that no one knows about the concussion yet. Well, that certainly sounds like that's what that is. Oh, it absolutely is. Um, yeah, so there you go. Yeah. Now, as for this story from Brian the Reader, there's one thing I'm looking for here that isn't there. And I yeah. think it colors all these reactions he's getting from the wrestlers. Yeah. And it's not explained. I am got I think I'm gonna know where you're going, but go ahead. Was this guy staying in the talent hotel? Or was Sounds he just that a way. man that went with his kids to pictures at the talent hotel that's that's exactly what it sounds like to me he's one of these autograph hounds and and when and you know here's the thing there's ways of doing that yes. that are very accommodating and nice and then there's these fuckers that just are so overbearing and just always in the way and shit like that that are just complete dicks and it turns off people you know we're not even saying that this guy was like that but no but if you're camping out at the talent hotel a lot of wrestlers understandably are just gonna not like that i mean there's the story remember this this was i think this was new orleans i think this was the same uh the same mania week where Thorne got pneumonia. He went on to, I forget if it was Expedia or Kayak. He went, or, oh, no, no, excuse me. It was Priceline. I remember now. It was Priceline. I don't know why I remember that. Because, like, he needed a hotel room for one night because for some reason, I don't remember if it was Dr. Dan or whoever, whoever had booked the Airbnb booked it, like, to not be until, like, the next, like, afternoon after they got there. So, Thorne books a hotel room and it was like it was cheap on Priceline they were offloading these rooms like he was able to get like a great deal it was under a hundred dollars I just remember that Thorne gets there and realizes Priceline put him in the Talon Hotel Mania Week (laughs) which was probably not supposed to happen 
So until wrestlers who recognized him, you know, kind of cooled things off, he was getting some hostile reactions. And kind of understandably so, because especially Mania Week, you would expect the Talent Hotel to be kind of locked down. So I can't say I blame the wrestlers who were more off-putting here than others. Like, I can't say I blame them too much for reacting the way they did. I've never been that person to ask for autographs. Um, can't say I didn't do, haven't done it in my life, but I'm not the person that's like that. And, you know, I'm definitely the person that brings stuff to be autographed, per se. But there's, again, there's a way of doing that. And um, I think I may have talked about this on the show before. One of the very first episodes of Outside the Lines on ESPN in 1990 focused on the sports memorabilia industry. And it, it spotlighted and this one. we should be clear to distinguish it from this guy, because this guy, as far as we can tell, was not doing the get the million things signed or anything like that. But well, continue. Yeah, yeah, but it sounds it sounds to me there's more to that than what it seems. But anyway, so they they spotlighted the way people get autographs is one of the things. And they they followed this guy, I forgot where he lived, but he was a big time and and again, this is this era, this is a different era where this stuff is kind of new in a way. And this guy was so cool about approaching the athletes and getting the and getting their autographs. It's like he would come up to them. He would say, "Mr. So and So, would would you please sign this for me?" And he, he was, and, you know, they would sign it and say, "You know, thank you very much," and maybe say, "You know, good luck" or stuff like that, and then just walked away. You know, like it was just okay. Do the well, sign this for me. You know, and it was it was like he handled it so good, and he he said he never had any issues with any of the athletes that he had asked to sign this stuff. And it was one thing that is one one thing is usually like pictures or something that he would that, that he would get to sign. He would he knew where the he knew where the, the the athletes were staying in the hotel. He found he would find that out and go to the hotel in the lobby, and you know would catch him and ask for him to sign it. Well, here's another ingredient to that, too. They're going to be way more forgiving if you're asking for a personalized autograph made out to well, your name. I don't know if he... I can't remember if he did that or not, but because, you know... Because if you're if you're asking for them to sign it to you, there's no expectation that I don't think he did. I don't, th I don't think it was personalized. And the guy didn't sell it. I mean, he was... Oh, he no, had I'm a, saying in that case, but I'm saying just in general... I know what you're saying. I know what you're saying. Yes, absolutely. But the way he... The way he, he just this had way the he perfect had, approach. Yes. He was not a guy that just was trying to bring a whole bunch of crap for, for people to sign. Or even coming off just like a guy opportunistically camping and covering yeah. or whatever. Right. Because he's in and out. He's not. I got weird. that. I got that on D. I got that on DVD somewhere. I need to find that and upload that to YouTube or something if it ain't up there. Because that, that was a really strong episode outside the lines in the very early days of that show when was that 1990 
Oh, that early. Okay. Yeah. So. Um, I don't know if there's anything but, else. But no, no. I mean, there's more, we just move on to the next part, and we stand with a torch. Well, this Vincent man out the uh, rumble section. Yeah. Vincent Mann was caught off guard by the intense crowd reaction on Sunday and the rejection of Cena Orton Batista. The script for Raw was changed late Monday to try to take ownership of the prior situation and make it seem like it's part of an ongoing storyline with a payoff. But management still has not been swayed to do anything rash, like having them win the Elimination Chamber and defend against Batista at, at Mania. The most likely matches for Brian at WrestleMania 30 would be Sheamus or Triple H. Triple H seemed like the bigger match of the two, obviously. It made total storyline sense, but it required moving Punk out of the apparent slot. Facing Sheamus would be a result of Brian having to, trying to avenge his past Mania loss to him. Not sure if they turn Sheamus or not as part of the storyline. There's no serious talk of a three-way between Brian, Batista, and Orton. Basically, my man wants to try to write TV in a way that owns the Brian chance and makes him like he's getting opportunities without blinking his resolve that Brian isn't really a true top-tier act in the long run and his popularity and his vocal minority as when he sees it will never be fade. Now, the way it continues, there's no talk of Shawn Michaels making a comeback at Mania against Brian, by the way. So there is that as well. That well, was that, that was... was lingering for months as yeah. they had done that angle where Michael screwed him and then Brian laid him out. And it it felt like it was going in this direction. It turned out that was never the idea. At that point, Sean had no intentions of doing even a one-off, even for someone he trained. That was a match that people really wanted to happen and, and never did. Would have, and would have made storyline sense and certainly would have been a better one-off return for um, retirement for Michaels than the one he did do. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah, that was a thing people wanted, understandably so. They thought, the, again, that's... On top of the laziness and the fucking with the fans directly and all that, that's one of the other biggest problems with WWE booking in this era. They would book things, like I said, with, you know, Cesaro earlier and the fans' expectations for Brian and the Rumble and stuff. Brian and Michaels is another thing like that. Well, the thing is... Things where they set expectations were based on natural wrestling storytelling. You expect certain things to happen... But that was never the intent, and it just dies on the vine, and you're left wondering what the hell happened. The brass ring. You know? That whole brass ring thing. Especially with Cesaro. Right, because then even Cesaro is like, okay, challenge accepted, you know? and But also, like, it was bullshit anyway, because look at the, you know, Zack Ryder, Matt Cardona stuff. Yeah. they t- They told those guys that we want you to try to grab the brass ring and get over on your own. And then we have this guy who put all this time and effort into making this YouTube show, who paid to have this internet title belt made, who got organically over. And they were so fucking offended that someone got organically over without them pushing him that, I mean, they literally booked him to be cuckolded by John Cena. Yep. I mean, it just, say, it, like, it, literally, that was the storyline. It just shows how much different it is today. It really is. And I hate to put it this way. Not that his booking was like that, like, from what we had seen on NXT and stuff. But I think NXT mellowed out Paul Levesque a lot. And then also, I think the fact that 
he has to consider his heart has probably made him less political and uh, all absolutely absolutely you know like he it's not that he's not in a high stress job but like he he there's it goes against his best interest personally to get fired in any bullshit. Yep. So, is there a time where I think Paul Levesque could have gotten the book and would have been like that? Yes. It's not like he wasn't involved in this creative at all, you know? It was still Vince at the end of the day, and clearly they have very different booking philosophies. They're still in the WWE style and system, but it's still different. I think there is a time where he probably still would have been like a petty Vince-style booker, but he's clearly grown past what any any of that bullshit. And it's like, it's... Again, it's like, it's just fighting logic and what the fans want. It's like, it's insane when you think about it and look at it through this rearview mirror, especially now that we've had, you know, a few months of a completely Vinceless thing and now, you know, almost a year and a half of a less in Vince involvement and just how different it is and how just none of this is around anymore. None. Yeah. And this is the shit that people, you know, going back to the main thrust of this, this is the shit that leads to people hijacking shows. It's that you're just, you're going against everything that makes sense, that everything that fans want. Yeah. All right, let's go to Raw after the Rumble on the 27th in Cleveland. Crowd wasn't into much of the show that wasn't Daniel Bryan, which made the long matches underneath drag. For superstars, Natalia beat Summer Rae on 407 with a sharpshooter. During the live cut-in during NCIS, a sign that read W Creative Sucks made air, but it was confiscated before Raw, Raw started. Los Matadores beat Jinder Mahal and Drew McIntyre in A12 when they did the high-low on gender, and while Torito took a Heath Slater. Raw opened with Triple H and Stephanie out. They thought about what an incredible night it was at the Rumble. Fans were booing that. Triple H started mock crying and said, boo-hoo, did somebody not get what they wanted? And the crowd chanted for Brian. Brian came out. Triple H sarcastically told him he had a good little match on the pay-per-view, and Stephanie, less sarcastically, also put it over. He talked about the Yes Movement, how they wouldn't let him in the Rumble when he kept asking to be in it. Triple H said it was for his own good, and they were looking out for him. He said they put him in two matches on the same night and even three matches on the same night in the past. Triple H said they learned from that. Brian said he won the Elimination Chamber, and he wouldn't leave the ring until they put a bid it. Triple H gave the magic signal, and the shield came out. Brian grabbed the chair to fend them off, but they attacked him from different angles and were beating him down. Sheamus made the save, but they beat him down as well. Cena then made the save, and he turned a tie, and they cleaned house or set up a six-man tag later in the show. So now they're pivoting because Punk's walked out. Right. So now now this is the pivot to Brian from Punk. Right, although, I mean, they weren't going to go directly to Punk yet because it was the Kane feud that was going to take him to Triple H. Yeah. But this is the way to, I mean, this is the way, though, because you have what happened. Right, but so far, the feud has mainly been directly with Kane. Yeah, but I'm saying Brian's in his, but Brian's in his spot now for the Triple H match, so now you start that with what happened. No, he's not in his spot for the Triple H match. They haven't decided on that yet. Well, I think they pretty much know where that's going to be going by this point in time. Punk walked out 30 minutes before the show started, Chris. Eh, maybe, but still... 
You gotta, you gotta have backup plans. It was a half hour. Maybe they have an idea that. I mean, it probably hasn't. The punk thing probably hasn't even sunken in yet. Maybe I don't know, but. So the, I mean, could the idea of Triple H's singles match being at Mania, being Brian now, kind of be in their heads? Yes, but I don't think anything close to, was close to being planned yet. Well, maybe not that, but still, there. Well, also the remember the. Remember, for the next three weeks, it's, you know, especially with hindsight that we talked about earlier, it's clear that they're not putting Brian in the main event yet. Yeah. Well, the main event, as we, as we talked about, the main event was, was going to be Orton Batista, but when Punk left, it was going to be Brian and Triple H. It never, you know, was set in stone that he was going to be involved in later on. Right. And yet. eventually, right. And I think once they realized Brian needed to be the centerpiece of the show, then it becomes what it became. Yes. You set up Brian versus Triple H. Winner gets added to the main event. And then Brian wins and then wins the main event. Like, yeah. And, and look, I don't want to defend any of the booking up to this point. From Elimination Chamber through Mania is the best TV they ever did of this era. And the best booking they did in this era. I mean, they got Brian ready. And they did everything yep, so. right, and they leaned in in the right ways. The Triple H video where he's, where Stephanie's narrating him beating up all the smart fan favorites and all the little touches and everything. Like, once they knew they were going in that direction, they did a fantastic job. They really did. It just, it, the road to get there is just ridiculous and counterproductive. Yeah. All right, Jack Swagger and Cesaro beat Rey Mysterio and Sakata in 9.48. Rey took a swagger to the desk, pressed off the apron. Sakara went for a swanton on top, but missed, and then tried a quebrada. But as he came out the road, so nailed with a bolo forearm. Cesaro then pinned him with a neutralizer. Something to look out for is Zeb Coulter. Early on, was yelling at Swagger and slapped him in the face. They were teasing problems. Bad news, bad interview. His giant 30-foot-high podium is hilarious. His gimmick is death. He talked about an upcoming match with Miz versus Dolph, who are both from Cleveland, where the show was to be a tape from. Barrett said it was a battle between two losers because Cleveland's inhabited exclusively by losers. It's most nothing pedestrian cheap heat, but Dave guesses it gives us something to do until a year from now when they try another idea for him. Ah, they're really going on the square at uh, AIW here. <laughs> well, I, like I mean, bad news Barrett though. It's the cheap, I mean, it's just the cheap heat, you know? It's the constant cheap heat, you know? And it it works. The crowd reacts. You know what, though? Bad News Barrett was a good character for delivering that, though. Well, I mean, yeah, he was great at delivering it. And it wasn't the only stuff he did. It wasn't the only stuff he did, but they did build up a character there that, could do the cheap he this town sucks stuff in a way that didn't feel reductive. Now, by the way, real quick, so uh Sinkar at this point is Unico? Uh yes. Okay. We'll be talking about more about the two Sinkaras in a bit, right? Uh yes, it's coming up. Alright, uh R Truth pin Fandango in three thirty with the downward spiral. Xavier Woods at ringside seemingly again to try and get him over as a company rep. Because he's working on his PhD in teaching autistic kids. 
He's the kind of guy for a number of reasons they love on their roster, but he's missing the ingredient to be a big star. Emma was again at ringside. Instead of calling the match, JBL and Woods had an inside discussion that 0.0001% of the audience probably caught on to. Layfield talked about East Carolina University was known as the Harvard of the South. Most likely this came from Vince giving him orders as a joke, since Vince and Linda both went to East Carolina. And for a time in the 80s, Vince claimed he had a Harvard MBA, which I think was the end thing for a guy trying to make it as a big Sears company owner to say meant something. Woods then said he thought Furman was the Harvard of the South. Woods got his BA and master's from Furman. <laughs> oh, yes. Well, Harvard's created a lot of terrible people. So maybe East Carolina University is the Harvard of the South. <laughs> yeah, there's been a lot of good people coming to East Carolina, though. I'm sure there are. But Vince did come out of there. The uh, yeah. only ma- the only person other than Henry Kissinger to need a six part behind the bastard series, you know. So. Yeah. Um. Let's see here. East Carolina alumni. Is there any? Well, there's Linda McMahon, class of '69. Vincent Mac, class of '68. Uh, any, anybody else out here that's uh? Of ill repute. Let's see here. Uh, I'm going down the famous alumni list. It doesn't look that one. Yeah. Uh, Sandra Bullock? Well, I mean, she don't get Carter Cruz came from East Carolina. Speaking of Vince and his thing for porn. Uh, Sonny Siaki graduated from East Carolina. Kevin Williamson graduated from East Carolina University. How about that? I mean, well, oh, he's from the Carolinas, so... Well, here's another one that's interesting. Maureen O'Boyle, current affair, got away from uh, East Carolina. Yeah, I mean, I'm looking at the Wikipedia now. Um, yeah, yeah, it's pretty I have much no best. idea who these <laughs> other business people are. Um, ooh, the founder of Golden Corral. A nice buffet. Um, my dad left his Golden Corral. Yes, I've there never was a, been. We, I don't think we have. There was a Golden Corral that's no longer uh, open. It's in the building's no longer, I think, in existence. I remember going to as a kid that the, the ceiling that was originally white, but it had a yellow tint to it from all the smoke mm-hmm. that people had done inside that restaurant <laughs> when you could smoke inside the restaurant. Oh, Jeff Hammond. Yeah, Jeff Hammond. Yeah, I mean, really no other famously terrible people other than Vincent Linda that I can see, though. Yeah. All right. <laughs> well, what a segue. Brad Maddox was in the ring with Randy Orton. Orton said, the champ is here. Still in Cena's line, or was it Ali's line? That's Muhammad Ali, not Mustafa. Or Joe's line. Samoa Joe. He talked about how he could beat Cena again. Batista came out. It was like night and day compared to last week. Batista got very little reaction, few cheers, some boos, but most of the people just didn't know what to do. Then they started chanting for Brian. Batista said he came out for three reasons. Win the Rumble, headline WrestleMania, and walk out of WrestleMania's champion. He said nothing would change that. There was some light boos from the fans who wanted Brian to be put in that match. Brock Lesnar and Paul Heyman came out. Heyman demanded one of two things. Either Orton defending its Lesnar tonight or Lesnar faced Batista from the one contender position. Fans are chanting, yes. And Heyman and Lesnar actually came off more as baby faces. Heyman said they want their answer tonight or else. 
Yeah, Brad Maddox did fit in well in that company, didn't he? Yeah, here's Brock Lesnar too. Uh, if so in case the pin- it's not obvious we're recording this segment on Thursday evening <laughs> brought the uh, Dolph Ziggler pinned the Miz in 408 with the zigzag Miz got the figure four on before the finish Ziggler did a great job selling figure four and like his knee was out for the finish after the finish and paid attention to realistic selling in a way that most guys don't the Usos beating Rybaxel in 546 the crowd was dead for this the announcers are putting the Usos over at a level they've never done in the past it was so much more than usual that it's clear there was a directive. Right back at Jimmy up for the shell shot when Jay super kicked him. And then Jimmy super kicked him as well. Jay dove over the top rope on that axle and Jimmy splashed right back off the top for the pin. Usos winning was no surprise, but right back taking the pin instead of Axel is really telling about what they think of him. Because they had already started building Big E versus Ryback for the IC title and dropped that one cold. Yeah, I mean, is it shouldn't look at the Usos and you know, how they were presented in their early run, and then we're getting in this era here, and that's when their presentation starts to shift somewhat. To they, when they, do they, 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 go ahead. They, they're now going to become like the, you know, they're going to get that push where they're the best tag team in WE, basically. Yes. Before they were a tag team and they had a solid run. Had they even had any title reigns up to this point? I think so. I thought they had one early. I'm checking. Um, now, here's something I'm trying to remember, because people have kind of talked about this in the past. Did they always do a lot of super kicks, or was that a shift around this time when the Bucks are getting really over? I think it, it, it wasn't from the beginning, no. Not to this degree, but I do. I feel like around this point or a little later is when it happens, right? Yeah. Which I, I've always found interesting, and I'm not criticizing it. The Usos are one of the best working tag teams of all time, but the, yeah, they their first title is, is 2014. Oh, and not long after this. Yep. Yep. 2014, they win. Uh... They beat the New Age Outlaws at Raw March third. That's right. Yep. And and then they become three. You know they win the Raw tag titles three times, SmackDown tag titles five times. When did they stop doing the entrance with the Siva Tau? Ooh, I don't know. Because I always thought that was so great, and I felt like it kind of made them a little generic for a while until they kind of found themselves later on. Yeah, I don't know. All right, I, I also the loved when they started doing like the world class SST style face paint too. Yeah, but the Rio beat Kofi Kingston a super kick at thirteen thirty five. Oh, we're talking about you all think sorts of wonderful people this week, aren't we? <laughs> well, that's the wrestling business. You think if the Usos had just used two super kicks to finish Ryback back in that way, the very next match, you wouldn't use same finish. Dave felt sorry for both these guys. They tried to do a good match. Crowd paid no attention to him. Versus that non-reaction. Then as the match kept going, you just felt like it dragging forever. Since the crowd didn't care, the crowd decided to have fun cheering for JBL and Jerry. JBL stood up, everyone reacted to him. Then Jerry did the same at, at that point when both took bumps off the top rope, falling backwards to the floor. They're killing themselves while the announcers are totally still in their heat. Okay, if they had heat, the announcers would have been stealing him. Dario was clearly not happy. You could hear him yell, sit your ass down at JBL. 
So they stole all the focus of the crowd from them. Yeah, that's for that was pretty fucked up, you know, for JBL, especially and Lawler to do that stuff. Yeah, the crowd's chanting for you. I get it, but don't acknowledge it because you. I mean, you're, you're taking away from the guys in the ring, making yes, it worse. Although I can see by some token the argument that acknowledging it gets them to stop. Not necessarily. It doesn't always work, though. No, I agree. No, no. I mean, it, 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 you, you, no, you don't do that. But anyway. Cody and Gold does beat the New Age Outlaws by DQ and left 56, so the Outlaws retain the tag titles. Lawler was awesome here, saying having a rematch next night benefits both teams. Even Cole pointed out how that made no sense. <laughs> Lawler tried to explain the benefit of the Rhodes brothers because they were mad about losing and getting the rematch right away, and the benefit of the Outlaws because they have momentum on their side. Talk about digging the hole deeper. Lesnar came out and gave both Rhodes brothers F5s. Heyman explained that he gave Triple H and Stephanie two choices, but they chose the third choice and that they weren't going to let Lesnar have a match on TV. So Lesnar destroyed the Rose Brothers with chair shots. He killed Cody with four shots and actually broke a chair over gold dust. Okay, think about this logic. The heel owners won't let the heel that they signed because it was good for business to have him have a match. So he's mad. He takes it out and destroying two guys that the authority didn't want in the company in the first place and only hired them because they were forced to based on a stipulation and leave the long-term storyline partners with Triple H alone. This was bordering on WCW here. Yeah, I can definitely see that. It didn't make much sense. No, it did not. And next we have a uh, slice of what things were like 10 years ago. The Bellas, Naomi, and Cameron... Be it Oksana, Alicia Fox, AJ Lee, and Tamina in 539. The match was put the spotlight Naomi, who pinned AJ with the rear view. The big spot with three faces suplex and three heels at the same time. There was also a perverse entertainment spot. Oksana went to drop an elbow on Nikki. She missed, but Dave guessed she was supposed to hit it, or at least Nikki thought that. So Nikki sold like she hit it. Then she dropped another elbow, hit it, and Nikki got right up like it was a miss. Ugh. Honestly, I was shocked to see they almost got six minutes, bell to bell. <laughs> yeah, goodness gracious. J- <laughs> yeah, this is that. I mean, we're still in that era at this point in time. So, when was when J- was the Sna- give divas a chance thing? Two thousand and sixteen. I don't think it was till fifteen or sixteen because I think I think it was after the NXT women's division had really yes. gotten go. Yes, and see NXT is not even there yet. So yeah, it was like uh, twenty sixteen, I think. Jake the Snake was announced for the Hall of Fame. We'll have more on that in just a little bit. And one of the longest Raw matches in recent years. John Cena, Daniel Bryan, and Sheamus beat the Shield by DQ in twenty three fifty nine, in a match where the three winners would get into the Elimination Chamber. After all these years. Cena debuted a new style of shorts. <laughs> there was a chance for Roman. Crowd was fine with Sheamus, but waited to explode every time Brian tagged him. Roman did his running on the floor drop kit like Masato Yoshino, where he kicked Cena in the face and then landed on the apron. That's the only time you'll hear Roman Reigns compared to Yoshino. He took a dangerous bump looking, although they have great hair. He took a dangerous looking I, bump I, out of the, the ring. By the way, just, I want to make it clear from your tone of voice, Dave did not say the second part. Yeah, that was me. Yes. Uh, he took a dangerous looking bump out of the ring on a missed spear like he tweaked his knee. The ref asked him audibly if he was okay. He seemed fine. Reigns speared Sheamus and then speared Cena. Brian gave Reigns a boost like a knee, but Rawls gave Brian a roll in reverse for a near fall. Powerbomb Brian to the turnbuckles. 
Brian su- German suplex Rollins on his head. Brian put the yes lock on the middle, but Ambrose made the save. Sheamus gave Ambrose the bro kick. Rollins came off top rope on the Sheamus. At one point, Cena got Reigns in the STF and Reigns powered out, which nobody's allowed to do. At that point, the lights went out. The Wyatts came out and attacked Sheamus, Brian, and Cena for the DQ. So in other words, the Wyatts gave Brian and Cena their shots at the title. On the surface, going that long in a very good match and that finish just fell flat. The logic of the Wyatts giving the guys a few with title shots is suspect, but the Shield was furious that the Wyatts are costing their title shot in the chamber, so it does make sense in the big picture, because the end result is the Shields versus the Wyatts at the chamber. You know... Well, the enemy of my enemy of my friend is my enemy, or whatever. You know, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Yeah, um, enemy of my enemy is my friend. You're correct. Sorry, thank you. And you know, how do I put this? I've said before, you really look at the first year and a half of three hour Raws. They were carried by Punk, Danielson, The Shield, and AJ. Um, you can already see the seams with Punk gone and with AJ not getting as much character time. But even then, look how much time they are giving to a shield match. Yeah. And, you know, it it feels like they were pretty acutely aware of what was keeping those shows on the rails. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, and as it made sense for the finish, like, you know, because of what's going on. So, but anyway, after the show ended, there was no dark match. Ambrose got a promo on how Captain Deliverance screwed them, Bray Wyatt. But Cena, Sheamus, and Brian, not Ambrose, and Reigns out of the ring, leaving only Rollins. Rollins took the bro kick, attitude adjustment, and Busai couldn't need first trouble, and the show was over. Raw did a 3.23 rating, 4.7 million viewers. With the exception of last week's show, Batista, it was the best Raw viewer number since March 11th. However, it did not do well in comparison to the Raw to Rumble numbers. Last year's Roth Rumble did a 3.67 rating at 5.01 million viewers. The best numbers of 2013. Since 1997, no Roth Rumble has done less than a 3.55. The three hours were 4.85 million, 4.84 million, and 4.47 million. Okay, and since we're in modern times, we should be clear. This is presumably a cable coverage area rating. Especially with the comparisons he's doing. This is 3.2% of Homes with USA. Because we're getting into that Showbuzz Daily era. And Showbuzz Daily used it out of all households with TVs, even for cable. So, yeah, how does it feel that we're we're doing it a week from when Showbuzz Daily existed, Chris? But Dave's Dave's not using their numbers. I know, I'm just saying. I mean, nobody was really looking at that. Not yet, no. Well, and TV by the numbers was still around at this time, too. Right? I guess, yeah. But they, I mean, people that are in the wrestling, if on that, they're looking at what Dave has as his numbers and what everybody else is using the same thing. Yeah. Right. No, I agree. But when it comes to, but still, we're in that era. So that makes everything feel very recent. Yeah. All right, so SmackDown was taped the next night on January 28th, and it was taped in uh, Toledo. Of course, we won't talk about SmackDown because it didn't air during our week, but it opened with Rusev beating Tyson Kidd in the dark match. Lana was at ringside with Rusev. 
God, we're going to debut him in the Rumble without her, then not put him on TV after the Rumble, and then she's with him in the dark match. Main event had about the debut over our truth a backstage conversation with Natalia Nabellas with Tamina, uh, Alicia Noxana, ended up with challenges leading to Natalia versus Tamina, where Natalia called Tamina, sir. They did the singles match. Tamina took the whole match until Natalia rolled her up. AJ was on commentary. AJ and Tamina were beating on Natalia until Cameron and Naomi made the save. And then our main event for main event, saw the Usos and Big E beat 3MB with Usos splashing one guy and Big E gave, giving the big ending to the other for a triple pen. NXT aired on January 29th. When would this have even been taped? They're taping in like blocks of four weeks. I, w- I, w- I wouldn't know. I wouldn't know when it was taped. Uh, the show with the Ascension coming out. They had a squash match against a handsome talent called Mike Coulardi and Johnny Carino with the high low in 222. You know when a chant means nothing with 70 seconds to a typical squash match, there was a this is awesome chant. That chant would get diluted even more later in the show. Oh, Orlando fans, uh, an annoying this is awesome chant? I'm shocked. Well, that's just fans in general. <laughs> but but I mean, Orlando's down. where it started. Yeah, but Fucking it would get MSL worse. Fucking was the first one. <laughs> he took the uh, slash blame at some point. There was a theme, there was a theme of Sylvester Lafour interviewing guys to be in a stable to replace Alexander Rusev, who dumped him for Lana. Scott Dawson, who hadn't been seen in the last few weeks, and Garrett Dillon, who was cut but now is back. Cal Bishop, Clayton Jack, former Oregon State wrestler, who placed fourth in the 2012 NCAA tournament, and former training partner Chel Sonnen came out. Lafour made fun of Randy Couture ears of his Randy Couture ears and nixed him, saying, "There's no way he's going to allow someone with those ears on TV." His costuming was awful. This guy's a super athlete before before going to college on a wrestling scholarship. He went to North, high school in Northern California. It was great everything he tried, but right now he doesn't have the look they covet, and that ears thing sounded like ribbing on the square. Plus, Dave's not sure about debuting him in a jabroni role. Well, he don't last long. No, and I mean, when do you think the shift really comes with Paul Levesque and how he wants to position NXT? I mean, how much of that is just the network and more American fans seeing it, do you think? I don't know. I mean, yeah, I think that's what it, what that is. Uh, for people that don't know, Scott Dawson, of course, is Dax Harwood. Yes. I, I, think, I don't know if we need to explain that that much. I mean, he was, he was Scott Dawson. The, wait. Yeah, he was Scott Dawson his whole time in WWE, at least once him and Cash were a team. But people may not remember that. <laughs> yeah, it's been all, okay, yeah, it's been three and a half years, so. I mean, he's born on as being Dax, or bald. <laughs> yeah, well, yes, Revival bald, FTR bald. Who was Garrett Dillon? That's the one that I'm trying to uh, lose him. Is that Jody Christopherson? Yes. Yeah, that's him. And yes, that is Chris Christopherson's son. Yes, of course. Well, people might not know about a semi-obscure developmental wrestler from a decade ago. I'm sure there are other... Corey Graves? Christopherson. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Corey Graves came out in super tight jeans. Oh, he would lord out a lot in this era. No biggie, if he went and wrestled at him. If you close your eyes when he cuts promos, you'd think it's CM Punk. And he has sort of the same type of rebel character. He beat Camacho at 119 with a full leg lock. Huh. You don't say. 
<laughs> he didn't use that as his finish for a while. Not about the punk comparisons here. Oh, oh, I thought you were talking about the Fuller leg lock. Um, no. How do I put this without sounding to whatever? He didn't always look like that as Sterling James Keenan. Like, when he first came around and was a guy sort of making a name for himself in Pittsburgh, he didn't look that much like Punk. It no. was as time passed. It was before he went to WWE. You know, there's the story of, uh, of one Sterling James Keenan doing extra work, getting a draw from Tony Gurria, and Tony Gurria thinking he was Punk. Yeah. And then being very confused when Punk went up to him to get a draw. Yeah. Cesaro did an interview. He was asked why he turned off Sammy Zayn. He's still Antonio Cesaro, if Dave's accurate. Yeah, he is. Uh, he was asked why he turned down Sammy Zayn's mass request for a match. He said that he'd already beaten him. The only reason people keep talking about the match is because he was in it. He said that Zayn couldn't beat him when he was healthy. How's he gonna beat him with a knee injury? And nothing promo. Lafort interviewed Sawyer Fulton next. Jacob Southwick, who plays third in the NCAA Division II tournament, is a six foot eight, two hundred and eighty pound heavyweight for Ashland College of twenty twelve. That's uh, that's Madman Fulton, right? Yes. He looks like a taller version of Brian Reed, who's coming in development in a few weeks. They look so identical, one would probably have to change their look. Anyway, LaFort saw how big he was and liked him, but Fulton gave the impression he was gay and was hitting on LaFort. Keep that one from the glad from the glad guys. He smiled and gave his rubbing the hand handshake to the fort and had to all creeped out. Okay, I was not watching NXT week to week at this point. I have no memory of this regardless. Oh, no, no, no. Well, here's something. Bailey pinned Sasha Banks in 248 with a belly to Bailey. Banks is now called the boss. Although she has no resemblance at all to other Bruce Priesting, Ray Trailer, or Madam TA. Charlotte and Summer Rae were in Sasha's corner. Natalia was in Bailey's corner. Bailey plays her role great. So, this is one one of the very first uh, matches with Sasha's the boss. Yeah, she didn't really have that much of a character yet until then. Well, they were all summer. I mean, her and Charlotte were summer race flunkies. That's right. You know, Tyler Breeze pinned Colin Cassidy. Yes, Big Bill in two twenty three. The entire match was stalling because how can you do much with a little heel against a giant baby face? We're both pretty green. Breeze is limited by the size, but he plays his Prince Pretty gimmick tremendously. Good music and entrance, and the crowd treats him like a star. The size will limit him in WWE because even though he'll wind up as a baby face in time to make the gimmick work, he'll need a heel run, and it'll be tough to get him out of the prelims. With Dave's hitting all the notes there. The best part of this was the fans were chanting, this is awesome, while they were stalling. Basically, no match at all. Aiden English was on the screen and went into a room where Cassidy's buddy Enzo Amore was in his wheelchair and had like he was going to beat him up. Cassidy was distracted and Breeze hit a spin kick and pinned him. That move is so non-believable as a finisher, particularly against guys like Cassidy and Mason Ryan in recent weeks. Just look bad. And do we need to explain that Aiden English is Matt Rewalt? I don't think we need to. Well, I guess I did. No. Well, you, you just did. <laughs> the guy that announces for for TNA. Well, he's drama king Matt Rewalt. So I think people know he's Aiden English. Cassie was looking for a back, backstage for Amore and found him. He was fine. Amore said that English threatened him. 
And Cassidy said, was mass and English cost him a W and he's looking for retribution. Funny stories that Cassidy apparently yelled at TV announcer Alex Riley for on TV saying he was six foot seven. Tell them to never say he's less than six foot ten. How they say he's a seven footer, which they've said for some time. He's tall, but he looks six foot seven to Dave. But I mean, he is seven feet tall and you can't teach that. That's right. Excuse me, seven foot tall. Yeah. The Miz, CJ Parker. Oh boy. Currently known as Juice Robinson in 438 with the figure four leg lock. Match is fine. Riley talked about how one of his good friends, The Miz, was wrestling next. Dave was trying to think if Riley forgot that Miz turned on him, or Dave forgot that they did the makeup angle. Regal said The Miz reminds him of Kermit the Frog, except with a lot less talent. Miz did a shockingly great looking drop kick. I have no memory of Miz working at NXT tapings. No, me neither. Sami Zayn interviewed saying Cesaro has the right to turn him down for a match, but he's not giving up that easily. He challenged Cesaro to meet him face to face next week. LaFort was still looking for talent when Mason Ryan showed up. He got all happy since he's tried to recruit him in the past. Ryan told him that if LaFort can't, can beat him in a match next week, he'll sign with his stable. Mason Ryan did not improve to the degree that Chris Masters did, but he really did improve a lot, and he's another one of those guys, though, in that era where they got written off because they got pushed way too soon before they were ready as workers. And then actually did improve to become capable workers. You know, in Chris Masters' case, more than capable. And they just don't do anything with them. Despite looking yeah. like that. Yeah. You know, Chris Masters, Chris Masters, Mason Ryan is Welsh Batista. Yeah. Well, it probably doesn't help him that Batista's back. Uh, no. Next was a contract signing for Bo Dallas against Adrian Neville for the February 27th special. As no before, Neville's fantastic at doing moves in the ring. The equal of anyone on the main wa- roster, but he's really short. Great physique, but he needs a lot of work on the entertainment end. And in a TV segment that requires back and forth talking, he's lacking. If Evan Board didn't make it, Dave thinks Neville will have a hard time, even though a segment of the audience will love him. But management will see him on promos and lose interest in him unless he steps up that part of the game. Bo Dallas, on the other hand, was awful in interviews, but he's really improved. He carried the segment as much as it was carryable. Do you think it was that Pac was bad on promos, or do you think it was he just needed to be a heel? No, it's the fact that he had no he would have had no chance in uh WWE as it was in to really break out because of the feelings of Vince, Kevin Dunn, you know, about people like him. But Mighty Mouse, God. I mean, it just wasn't gonna work. No, but I mean as far as the promo thing though. From what Dave was saying. Well, when he, he turned here on WWE, when he turned here on WWE, it worked. Yeah, yeah, I was trying to remember. Like he, his promos were good there too, as a heel. So, it was probably he, just that. He was better being a heel, or being that type of character, either heel or face, but being that type of character. Yeah. It also reminds me of the story Naylor told once on a podcast about when Pack first showed up at the Performance Center and he's in Dusty's promo class for the first time and that Dusty had this thing where to kind of get people out of their comfort zone, he would ask them to cluck like a chicken. And he got so offended that he walked out. <laughs> like, I remember like just listening to it where Naylor's like, Ben, Ben, come back. 
but yeah. it clearly it helped in time, but he needed to be a heel. Yeah. Once he embraced it. Bo Dallas beat Danny Birch with a double on DDT in two twenty one. Cam was focused on the crowd when Dallas made the winning cover. Dallas had the contract. And as Neville was looking at signature, Dallas sucker punched him. The show ended with Neville come back and hit Dallas with a tope. Martin Stone really has one of the all-time weirdest WWE runs. Uh, yeah. I mean, think about it this way. You know, they gave up on the, you know, American freelancer contracts for Gargano and Ciampa after a while after they got over. They gave up on Joe's American freelancer contract almost immediately because they re- realized that ROH could use him in dark matches since they only barred him from working other TV. Martin Stone did have a gap in it being signed, right? Like, he wasn't signed continuously the whole time, was he? Uh, I don't think so. Uh, okay, but what it was... Uh, yeah, he did. So what I was getting at, though, is... So it's not this run. He ends up getting cut and works in TNA a bit and stuff. When he comes back until he stops working indies, but it's for a while, like, he's on one of those American freelancer contracts. He's working TV as Danny Burch and working indies as Martin Stone at the same time. Yeah. And, like, way past, like, when people, I think, would re- would really think about it being a thing. Like, him and Oni Lorcan as a team, that started while he was still working indies as Martin Stone. Yeah. Yeah. All right, well, that's it for NXT. Let's go to uh, outside the ring stuff. New York Post wrote about the WWE negotiations with NBC Universal to keep Raw USA and SmackDown on Sci-Fi. NBC Universal has an exclusive negotiating period that expires on February the 1st. Those eternally have said WWE would prefer to stay on the two channels that all things being equal. According to the story, NBC Universal is thinking about as part of the offer given WWE space at Universal Theme Park in Orlando for a physical Hall of Fame. We reported a long time ago that part sources had noted expectations that WWE Hall of Fame would be there. The story reported that NBC Universal has not made a concrete offer, but have thought about adding the offer of space for physical Hall of Fame as part of their deal. Within WWE, it's believed that they're staying in USA and sci-fi and getting their Hall of Fame with the new deal. WWE is looking for $280 million from this deal, which would be close to triple the current deal. Then the NBC Universal paid $440 million per year to NASCAR, and WWE b- delivers similar ratings. The story mentions Spike and Turner Broadcasting as potential partners. There is at least something to Spike. Turner's had no interest in WWE in 2008, the last time the rights came up, and have shown no interest in pro wrestling in general since Jamie Kellner canceled, would have been the stable program on TBS for three decades in 2001. Spike has said nothing public, nor should they. They're interested, they'll get it. They pretty much t- told the world they were rented up TNA, which wouldn't be a healthy situation. At this point, they're not allowed to make an offer until after February the 1st. The split between, between Spike and WU in 2005 wasn't the smoothest, but that's a long time ago. It's not a secret that WU would like to stay with NBC Universal, but it's clear they're spending a huge increase in rights fees of what they're currently getting. It's a key because the increased stock price based on the idea of rights fees will at least double the network doesn't have to make money the first year because they came in and told people they don't expect it to. If they don't hit one million subscribers at the end of the year, it could be a negative to a stock price. But they get the big rig increase from TV, fixed income, guaranteed for years, now almost completely soften any blow. 
if the network isn't as big a success as they hope, so as far as the two, while the network will get most of the attention, it is a huge story long term because so many entities will try and copy from the good and the bad. It's the TV negotiations that are probably the bigger financial story this year. Either way, the odds are very strong the company will be far stronger financially in 2015 than right now, even if popularity stays the same or even decreases. Okay. Due to all this, the stock's gone through the roof, closing their press time at $21.96 per share, giving the company a market cap of $1.65 billion. Vincent Mann is very much a billionaire on paper today. Uh, through the roof, huh? Yeah. At $21. As There's I'm different reading things, this, though. they've only gone down $0.40 cents today, uh, despite the lawsuit news, but they're at eighty seven fifty one. Well, TKO <laughs> is, I should say. But it, I don't think it's that different because like the stock didn't really go up with the merger. So. Yeah. So um, four times what it was 10 years ago. Yeah, I'm curious to do inflation calculator, though, just to see exactly what it is. But, okay, where do we start here? Okay, look, talked about this a little earlier. I guess now's the time to get into it more in depth. Vince conceded on the investors' calls that he figured that the network launch hurt them in the TV negotiations. I don't think he ever really explained why he thought that. But it seems reasonable to believe it did but what's the reason what do you actually attribute that to is it the feeling that they were kind of shitting on the pay-per-view partners by doing it so it's like what could they turn on us is it feeling like wwe was announcing to the world that they had their own distribution channel so they the they got lowballed because with this idea of, oh, if you don't like it, just distribute it yourself. Like, what what do you think is the actual reason that the network ends up hurting the negotiations here? Probably there's fear that they just put the, they'll just put their TV on the network. But why, why would they? And why would any potential partner think that? Well, I mean, I remember at the time that people were like, well, wait a minute. If, if WWE started their own network, why aren't their TV shows on there live? Because they're going to make a lot of money from the... I, I know that, but still, you got hey, the WWE yeah. Network. You know, who was it? It was that Laura Martin who always asked the stupid questions, right? Who asked, like, about putting the shows on the network repeatedly on investors' calls, right? That's what, yeah, that's what I'm saying, though. And then that's, that's the way some people thought. So, wait a minute, you have your own network, but you're not putting your regular TV shows on there live. Yeah, what sense does that make? I don't understand how that would how an analyst would even think that made sense. But, um, Oh, real quick with using inflation calculator, um, it's 28 and change. So they're right now they're trading at three times what they did 10 years ago. But yeah, I mean, again, I remember the time got, I had friends of mine that watch wrestling. They were worried. They're like, wait a minute. Does this mean that, that it's not going to be on TV anymore? I was like, no, <laughs> WWE Network is not going to take the TV shows. They're still going to be where they're at. But if you're the networks, you know it would be against WWE's best interest to do that. So what's what's making you lowball them or making suitors drop out or whatever about announcing the network? The only thing I can think of that feels like really solid 
is that they felt like the WWE screwed over their longtime pay-per-view partners. And that's what goes to what I'm saying. Who's to say that wouldn't happen to them? They have their own network. They could just up and pull their stuff and put it on the, on their network. That's different levels of revenue. Yes, but I mean that's it's got to be the only thing that would make sense to me. Why? I mean, because no, there's nothing else that makes sense. I feel like it's more just a general sense of not trusting them because they screwed the pay per view companies. But that's nothing to do with TV. But it's a long, it, they're long term business partners. Yeah, but so maybe it TV. becomes this thing of like, do you want to get into business with this company? But, but here's not, wrestling's not hot. Well, yeah, but they are wrestling's benefiting not from the sports right, but rights bubble too. Regardless, yeah, but still, it's not hot. And it's not like they got nothing as far as the increase. It's just they were going out there predicting two to three x, and they got what was it, forty to fifty percent increase, something like that. Well. I mean, they get the physical Hall of Fame, so there, there you go. Well, yeah. <laughs> All right. As things stood over the weekend, Hulk Hogan's role at WrestleMania was to be the host of the show. It'd be pushed the same way Ross' return was for they shot the angle where he ended up as a referee. Right now, Hogan isn't supposed to do anything physical. And the story we've heard, he won't be allowed to based on his physical. McFoley was flagged off wrestling again on his physical, but he didn't limit the physical thing with Punk when Punk was a heel. Dave was told that was a working idea for his role, but it could change. Dave could still see some mid-level heel run into his fist and him being involved in a Cena corner man situation. But it was put with Dave, uh, that physicality with him has been ruled out because of his physical. But right now, he's not in Cena's corner and it's just hosting. And that's what he did. Now, we go to the tour. So a lot of people are waiting to hear the word of Sting sign with WWE, but if it happens, it doesn't seem to be in the cards at all for him to be an actual match, especially against The Undertaker. Never was in the cards. Yeah. Which it, is something. Yeah. It, it That whole thing is so fascinating anyway. Just the... um, There was no I mean, he, demand for that match until people thought those Undertaker videos were for Sting. Well, th- yeah, but there, there. I mean, th- there was a demand by Sting. Well, Sting wanted to do it, yes, but from the fan base, it was those videos that really got it going. And once that happened, it ap- and with Sting wanting to do it, and maybe I don't know, did Taker want to do it? Has have we ever heard? Regardless, like it's a match they should have done, and it's stupid that they never did it. Yeah, I mean the trip, the Triple H match the following year was oh god, I don't even want to talk about it. Yeah, yeah. Jadison Nate Rogers was officially announced as the second person in the WWE Hall of Fame class for 2024, 2024, 2014, following the Ultimate Warrior. One would suspect that Jade would be part of the class main event. The key two or three people the event is advertised around and pushed, if it does there in USA Network, with Warriors the headliner. Past Bill Moody, Paul Bearer, there really hasn't been anyone else strongly rumored for this year. Dave does know that friends of Moody has told him since he thought he should have gone in last year. Anyone going to simultaneous with the Undertaker? If that's his wish, then it shouldn't be this year. It's also known that Jim Ross and Joe Briscoe are pushed for Danny Hodge, who's now 81 and top store in New Orleans during the 60s when it was part of Leroy McGuire's territory. Hodge's name was brought up annually and turned down. Marlon fans don't know him. Even if his life and career story are amazing because of his strength and legitimate wrestling accomplishments. 
Hodge is a folk hero to the rest of the 70s, that much I can tell you. It should be in every Wrestling Hall of Fame. There's also the matter of footage, as Dave doesn't know how much footage uh, there is that it would have. None from the work era survived with the possible exception of a Terry Funk Bill Watts match from the 70s, at least that Dave's seen. Hodge's career ended after suffering a broken neck in 1975 and a crash that almost nobody else would have lived through. Dave does know that in their Florida collection, there is a junior heavyweight title defense against Jerry Briscoe. But like when they didn't end up Paul Vosh last time in Houston, if they don't do it here, they're probably never doing it. Now, Roberts making that immediate and complete over top apology to the Warrior kind of signaled today that he was either going in or doing something in form related to the Warrior. It would indicate that Roberts was just asked recently, since he not Warrior in an interview a couple weeks ago, right after the Warrior was announced. He had to know if he was going in on the same stage, he would have been more careful. When he apologized in the way he did it, Dave took that as he was t- told to do so at WWE. Since Warrior could walk out on the deal and hit in a heartbeat of things and go his way. Jay seemed like a lost cause years ago, but he, he was a mess with Diamond Dallas Page. When offering, he offered to train him and get him back in shape in late 2012. The idea was to do a documentary where Roberts, at more than 300 pounds, would, through DP Yoga, get back in shape, building to an appearance at the Royal Rumble 2014. It wasn't perfect. Scott Hall complained he was around causing drama. He at least won a relapse, maybe more. But he did turn his life around and dropped 60 pounds. I mean, I think this is the part where we say relapse is a part of recovery, The you know, which is a thing. Like, even if he's had relapses, like, he's yes, he turned his life around. And now that it's been more long term, I think we can definitely say that. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yes. Now, as far as the Hall of Fame more broadly. So 2014 was Warrior inducted by Linda, Jake and... Inducted by DDP, Lead inducted by Trish, Paul Bearer inducted by Kane with his uh, kids accepting, Carlos Colon inducted by his sons and nephew, uh, Scott Hall is Razor inducted by Nash, and Mr. T inducted by Mean Gene. Yep. So, I mean, the thing is, they start really getting away from the like local legend thing. Yeah, and then they come back to it later on, you know? I mean, did they? I think they have in recent years. There's some bits and picks that are kind of home-related, so to speak, I would thought. Okay, let's see. 2015's San Jose. You got to go later. Recent, recent. Okay, when do you want me to go to? I mean, what was last year? What was last year's deal? Uh, Okay, I'm looking. Because they were in, what, Los Angeles? Last year was, okay, Ray, sort of, uh, Muda, Stacy, Andy Kaufman, Tim White. Andy Kaufman in Los Angeles, yes. Okay, a year before was, wait, that was Dallas with Undertaker, Vader, Charmel. Undertaker in Dallas. Since he's Texas, Steiners uh, and Chad. Uh, 2021 was... Oh, and they didn't do the inductors the same way? I forget how that worked. Were they... Were they uh, that was COVID time, so... Oh, that's that right. Was they ten, didn't that... do, that's right. I forgot 2021, they didn't do a... They didn't do a live ceremony for that. So that was Kane, Molly, Bischoff, Kali, RVD... 
2020, which was supposed to be in Tampa, was Bradshaw, Bulldog, Liger, NWO, Bellas, Shatner, Titus as Warrior Wars. So, yeah. So, yeah, it's there. There are little connections here and there, but you're not going to get like a territory star anymore or anything like that. Well, they're in Philly, so this year <laughs> I think we will. Old... No, this year I think we will. I think we will. WWF territory star. Yeah, I think we'll get an ECW name or two, an old school WWF name or two. Yeah. Well, so there's nothing less people now too. Int- well, and Triple H is in control of the Hall of Fame now. And fully controlled in a way he wasn't before. So Yeah. Alright. So we'll see. I mean, there's really not been any concrete rumored names either as far as that. So we'll see how that goes. I mean, I think All right, people well, kind of speculate about Sandman yeah. and stuff, but yeah. well, what was it that they had a new trademark on Sandman all of a sudden? Yeah, I mean it's possible. It's possible. So he's the only one that's like rumored. I mean, there was the rumors going around that Batista was going to go in this year. So, I mean, we'll see. He didn't go in yet? No. Okay. As a singles? Well, WWE didn't book him at the Rumble after he made a guest appearance on Old School Raw a few weeks earlier where he put the snake on Dean Ambrose. They did what was really one better, having seen what likely was a fixed similarly on the Hall of Fame speech last year at Caulfield Alley. He will likely, if all goes well between now and then, put on yet another cat day performance on April 5th. Dave Leach flares on a contract because he's in talks with a local independent promoter to come in and say so he had to get it approved by WWE. And yeah, he starts doing various stuff with them in this time frame. WWE continue to work with Hulu Plus on streaming Raw, main event, SmackDown, even though they will offer that same service for the new network. Not sure about NXT, which is for free on regular Hulu, as opposed to being available only to subscribers. That's right. So at this point, Hulu still has the free tier. And NXT was available to everyone. It wasn't just for uh, what was at the time Hulu Plus. I don't remember being free on Hulu. I always thought it was Hulu Plus. I guess not. Um, now, for the TV shows, though, it was a 30-day window on the network. And yes. Thought, I mean, it always has been. Um, although initially, and I remember I kind of had to point this out to WWE at one point <laughs> at the time. They fell behind on on adding those Raws, like, for months at one point, remember? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was a nice little stretch. Yeah, I mean, if WWE still exists in a month, um, like, it's going to be interesting reminiscing about the network and stuff in the early days. I feel like everyone forgets just how much of a disaster the parts of the network were at the beginning. Yeah, it had, it had some issues. The Xbox 360 app didn't work for, like, the first six months. <laughs> well, at least I had PlayStation 3. Well, same uh, Batista's deals to your contract. He's working on full schedule now, but not for the entire time. He has commitments to promote movie projects that require him being away at times. And he's gone after June. Because he's yeah. pissed off about how everything went. Yes. And it, it's probably for the better. Yes. For everybody involved. He's working on concepts for Sting T-shirts, pushing a the theme of calling him a man called Sting. Since WCW trademarked that phrase, and they only had large property rights to it. And memo came in last week to merchandise, work on ideas. The memo was just sent out within the last week, and there were reports he needed to deal with. But what on Dave heard on tw- January 27th is that they were very close. 
another person noted that internally the idea of steam coming in was not talked about very much of late as a high priority issue. There have been talks several years. They thought the closest was 2001 WCW folded. Vince Greenlight in negotiations, which were started by Paul Heyman and conducted by Jim Ross. It was very short at the time. Steen won the same schedule as Undertaker, but and Vince immediately nixed the deal by saying there would be no exceptions on the schedule except Undertaker. It was described from a priority standpoint as far as internal talk compared to deals to get Hogan, Lesnar, Batista, or Dwayne Johnson, but David said that they could do a good build-up, garner a great reaction, but they had to be very just judicious in what they do. If he was debut a Mania with Undertaker in a main event spot, and Hogan has a guest and matches with current guys, there's only so much he can be focused on, so it might not be perfect timing. But with a clock ticking, it may be the only time. You could debut him in Extreme Rules, but just by doing it there, it becomes a secondary thing, and he'll be 56 by next year's Mania. And now 10 years later, we got his retirement match coming up. In uh, Coach Tony K's WCW Tribute promotion. Pretty much. Yeah, and even though they sign him for merchant stuff at this point, he doesn't debut as a character until November. Yeah. Yeah, it takes a minute. Which, by the way, I always hated that they gave him new music. (sighs) Yeah. I mean, there were fan edits of his debut with his, you know, Crow WCW theme and stuff, because clearly a lot of people felt the same way. Yeah. But you a lot of people, too, that preferred Seek and Destroy. Well, that's a lot more money. Yeah, that wasn't going to happen. They would they I would think they had at least some ownership of the crow song. I guess so, yeah. I just rather I, when I think of Sting, I'd just rather have the surfer Sting music myself. I I am hoping that Tony uh makes a deal with whatever library that's part of to even if it's not like his entrance for the retirement match, that they play it at least in part that maybe Maybe they do what they did with, you know, Mudo at his retirement, where they kind of go through the different entrance music before his entrance. Which, actually, they did that with Sting, too, for his entrance. I don't think they played every song, but they did play the the iconic WCW theme for Sting at one point before his entrance. Yeah, they need to. All right. Uh, Austin was on Arsenio Hall on January 30th. I talked about Punk leaving the company. Okay, real quick. What Arsenio Hall show is this? Is this the, the revived second, syndicated show? Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. Austin and Brock Lesnar are probably the two guys who can understand the situation the most, since both did the same thing, although Brock did give notice and worked at WrestleMania. Austin walked out in 2002 over creative reasons involving Brock Lesnar. He had been critical of creative interview and then showed up on TV next week and was asked to put Brock over on Raw. Based on logic, as things were at the time, that made no sense as Brock was on his way up. And Austin was on the was top guy in the company, so their first meeting should have been a title match down the line on pay-per-view. Lesnar hadn't even won the title yet. Austin has since said he made a mistake in how he handled the situation. The company buried Austin like nobody's business next week on TV, which is even more of a mistake, and claimed he'd never be allowed back. Even followed wrestling, one iota knew it was inevitable he'd be back, and they would regret the portrayal of uh, the kick-ass baby face as the guy who ran away from a fight which is how it was portrayed. Eventually, Jim Ross contacted Austin and uh, got him and McMahon back together, and they made a deal for Austin to return. Others relatively short-lived because of net problems that Austin 
led to Austin retiring after his match with Rocket WrestleMania 19 in Seattle in 2003. He was still a huge star, but he was not the same as far as being able to draw on his return as all those speeches bearing him in 2002 took the edge off of him. K1 did the same thing to Bob Sapp, who had a business dispute over money, and they portrayed him as a coward who was afraid to fight when he walked out, and the same thing happened. Of course, it made up, but Sapp's drawing power wasn't the same after all the propaganda that being a coward, which is the most negative thing a company could say about the talent. All says decision cost him a lot of money, and that Punk doing so during WrestleMania season is missing on a good payday. He figured out that Austin, he figured out that Vince McMahon would work Jedi Mind Troops to get him back, or Punk would decide to return. Austin said that Punk was under a lot of stress, but believes it'll all work out in the end. And history tells us the same thing. When it was brought up that Dana White called Vince McMahon a maniac, he did so on the January 27th on Senior Hall show. Austin Graham McMahon was crazy as hell, but said he was, it wasn't a good way. That That's a thing for us to say on the day we're recording this. Jesus Christ. We're going to have these situations come up for for the rest of the time we do this show on some of this stuff when it comes up about Vince, you know? I mean, yeah. I mean, look, I mean, I'm not going to get too deep into it. We've talked about it before. You don't want to get into wild speculation. You don't. But it's becoming increasingly clear there's a lot of shit that we've never even considered prob- that probably involves Vince being a creep. That it, that touched the company in ways we have no idea about, you know. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I mean, just look at. We just know what we know publicly. I mean, who knows what happened? I mean, we know a that we don't know about privately, but. Well. I mean, look, and I okay. I am not accusing John Cena of anything. There's a very good chance that the story right now is going to fuck with John Cena a lot professionally and stuff. Because John Cena's the guy that went on a double date with Vince right after the initial scandal broke. And was that with? No, 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 no. It was not with. It was not with. That's right. That we now know is Janelle Grant. No, 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 no. This, that at all. That was all done by the time the story broke. That's right. That's right. That's right. You're we right. Know, You're we right. don't know who that woman was, actually. I don't think she, she ever got named or anything. But, I mean, look. It, but when you have that, when you have... That we know, you know, we know there were some issues surrounding how Mickey James was treated by the company after her relationship with Cena ended. That we've on this show multiple times seen segments where we both remarked that it felt like the company was trying to push Maria to hook up with him. I'm not saying Cena did anything, but that's my point. It's like, there is a lot of shit, and it's like, I mean, look, I don't doubt they were trying to push Maria towards Cena. We know how they were with being gross about wanting the hot women to be with the top stars. Like, I don't think that's even a leap, right? No, not at all. Regardless of what his exact involvement was. Um, so it's like, that kind of stuff, so then when now all this other shit's coming out starts to look really bad for all sorts of people and for the company itself. Like there's, I'm assuming we'll, we haven't recorded halftime yet. I'm assuming we'll talk more about it there, but it's like the sheer scope and fucked upness and depravity of everything that came out in that lawsuit. There's going to, there's going to be a ton of stuff that's going to just look weirder and weirder. And I'm sure and more fucked up, at, you know, just with time going on as more comes out, too. I mean, 
did either of us even remember beyond just it like kind of setting off the memory once we saw it the stephanie promo cute saying vince trafficked her before we watched the clip on this show i mean it was like, i remember in the watching back recesses yeah. of my mind but like i hadn't thought about it in almost 20 years and it's just now so, so day, weird to look at it in hindsight. And now the day we're recording this, all the shits he says in the promo sets exactly what Vince is accused of doing in the lawsuit. Yeah. Yeah. So, back to 2014, speaking of Stephanie McMahon. Stephanie met with Stacey Keebler on January 30th when Keebler was in New York because she was working for VH1 on some Super Bowl activity. She really wants Stacey back with the idea Keebler would give the company real-world credibility since she's kind of a celebrity of sorts outside of wrestling, dancing with the stars, and George Clooney's ex-girlfriend. From a WWE standpoint, she would be a good brand ambassador. The spot op- opened up when they chose not to re-sign McFoley to a deal. Keeler had been very careful for the any connection with wrestling ever since Dance with the Stars. And other stars on the show were amazed at the stories of how the wrestlers had to drive themselves to be different, to do the different city, excuse me, and pay for their own road expenses. I'm sure they were. <laughs> I'm yeah. sure those people were like, huh? You gotta do all that on your own? You don't have that arranged for you by whoever and if not paid for at first not reimbursed yeah yeah um of course they are oh and by the way do you remember who the new brand ambassador ended up being uh no well that's probably because it was only for 48 hours because it was ultimate warrior and then he died that's right that's right yeah i guess but which also was just so weird at the time we're going from mick foley to that guy. <laughs> yeah. Definitely uh, a choice that would be right for uh, criticism because of uh, Warrior's previous uh, statements on topics. Yeah. Such as uh, homosexuality and the like. Uh, among other things. Yeah. All right. Triple A, just for the torch, refers to be referred to as Paul. His real name by his office staff and production workers on the road. I will say this: one of the few wrestlers to do that, though, because normally your your wrestlers always want to be called by their gimmick name. Well, and he had been called Hunter for years by everyone. Yeah, but he kind of put this line in the sand. You know, he was telling reporters, you know, going into the conference calls he was doing for NXT that he preferred to be called Paul Levesque and Paul. And so it started shifting. And, like, I mean, look, in time, like, once he became a real executive, it always felt weird to keep calling him Triple H. Yeah. In that capacity. Call the wrestling character Triple H. Call the guy Paul Levesque. Yeah. Oh, and now speaking of Triple H, let's go to uh, his first big signing and see how he's doing. Luis Uribe, the first Sin Cara appeared on the TV show Tessera Caída this past week and claimed that he owned the rights to the Sin Cara name. He had already God, opened up I a, forgot about <laughs> He had already opened up a Sincara gym in Mexico City, and now that his WWE contract has expired, he's taking dates using the Sincara name. It's notable since WWE's using Jorge Arias as Sincara at the same time. Uribe can't use the Mexico name because CML owns it, and has given it to a new wrestler. Uribe said that his lawyers may be looking at WWE using a name for a new wrestler, saying he got proof he owns a name. Dave doesn't remember that W wasn't able to register the name Metzko, but he's virtually certainly did for the U.S. He said the reason it didn't work out in the U.S. was because W told him he couldn't wrestle the way he did in Mexico, and that psychologically screwed him up because he kept getting told what he couldn't do and felt limited in the ring. 
because he couldn't understand it. Because when they signed him, it was because he was a star wrestling a certain way. And he was told he could wrestle that way. There's your clash between Paul and Vince. That's me talking, not Dave. Well, anyway, that one. I mean, real quick, because there's a lot here, so I don't want to lose that thread. Um, remember, the original idea was that they were going to hire Averno to be his fed opponent, and then it—that's why he lost his mask. And then, for reasons that have never really been explained, other than that they soured on, you know, Mystico, it never happened. I'm sure it was a Vince Kevin Dunn thing. There's a lot of things for Vince and Kevin Dunn things. Yeah, let's just leave that there for now and keep going. Anyway, that one didn't work, and it didn't work for all the right reasons. All the reasons it, uh, that Dave said it was going to work the day that they signed him. He immediately looked off on television, but said since he left, he spent a lot of time training it and in better shape. He was frustrated; he wasn't allowed to do what he does best. He said he'd be working indies in Mexico, and we worked out the Wendell Junior and Lee Part, the two biggest name indie wrestlers. He says he's not focused and can wrestle the way he wants to. He said he has no problems. Roberto Jorge Arias, who took this incarnate name in WWE, or Abata de Rio. He said he thinks Unico's a good guy. While he was on the show, they highlights of the new Mexico Mephisto match on the January 18th Fantastica Mania show in Japan. You know, he has nothing against the new Mexico and that he helped him get a break when he was Dragon Lee and also helped his brother Roosh. That's right, folks. Uh, Drolisico was Dragon Lee well, before he became Mystico. Well, that's where Dragon Lee plus Mystico. And then when he became Mystico, I don't remember what current Dragon Lee's original name was, but he became Dragon Lee. Yes. He wished him well, but said he's on his level. And he said it does bother him that supper butters use his look as Mystico as opposed to the new Mystico on posters to sell tickets to see him. He said when he came to WWE after his first match, the first thing he was told was not do certain things and affected him mentally. You're always going to have problems when you take a guy who legitimately was one of the biggest superstars of the decade and a major draw and then tell him not to do things that got him over in the first place. It was part of what Dave considered the inevitability about the relationship. Uribe thought he was a major star. It'd be like Steve Austin going to Japan and Mexico and promoter telling him not to do all the things that got him over and mentally how he handled that. Particularly if he didn't struggle to get over. It's nobody's fault, but it's part of the almost inevitability of why the relationship was doing from the start. Mysterio never had to run close to what Sicardo had, so he didn't have the cockiness to where him being told by Triple H to tweet things didn't offend him in the least. But also, explains why CML guys will always do better with New Japan than WWE because in New Japan, the promotion doesn't tell them what to do, and other wrestlers get a kick out of working their style, and with them, instead of the opposite. Again, you can argue both ways. They're just different mentalities, although Dave obviously prefers New Japan mentality, but trying to make everyone the best they can be as opposed to everyone working within the same parameters. It's the mix of styles, the styles of matches on a single show that makes New Japan the best big event promotion in the world. But a big difference is also the fan base. Japanese fans watch an unfamiliar style react well also because it's different from what they usually see. In WWE, general fan reaction is the biggest thing that they're embedded in their heads by virtue of always seeing it. You see, he's going to work in Indies in Mexico with the day on February 1st in Mexico City and March 1st Tijuana. One of the things he's put for, see if he work, open the work for AAA, CMLL, or Todos X Todos, the other Santos promotion. He said Jorge Arias and him used to travel together, and Arias' new Sincar is only doing his job. So the only problem they ever had was in the past when he started as Mexico and Arias, who used the name of Juarez, was mad. Somebody in Mexico City was using his ring name because he was Mexico with a Y and Juarez. I, well, no, I don't think he was always Mexico with a Y. I think the Mexico with a Y, I think, was an adaptation to. He was not. He was when I first got notice of him. 
It was Mystico with a Y. Okay, I couldn't remember. Let me double. I'm curious what Lucha Wiki says because I, I because I always typed his results as Mystico with a Y, even as the other Mystico was just getting started as Mystico. Okay, uh, Lucha Wiki. Lucha Wiki is not entirely clear on it, but suggests that. He used it with an I at first. Well, I just always did it with a Y. Um, when the one his Juarez results started coming out, because Juarez was somewhere that you didn't get a whole lot of stuff from. He was he becoming what he became. Started getting that scene out there more often, where people were starting to report more about it. So, yeah. But anyway, I right, suppose so where I was at. Yeah, there's uh, more. Yeah, he said he was using uh, instead of La Misca finisher was a move that actually happened by mistake when he slipped trying to do a head scissors when he was training with his uncle Tony Salazar and to block falling flat on his face he held onto the arm and landed in the Fujiwara armbar position. He said Ari's a good guy. He didn't study English when he was WWE and this was a big issue with management. He said they say WWE style safer but he got hurt more doing WWE style than he ever did working in Mexico. You know, even though he didn't get a push he was one of the best merchandise sellers in WWE. He also spoke highly of Ray and said the most humble top stars of WWE were Ray and Dwayne Johnson. He said he's thankful for Paco Alonso for giving him a break and that allowed him the chance to go all over the world and be with WWE, but he's negative about the booking. It's CMLL. He said he owned this Incarnate name. He's afraid of WWE suing him. There are people who thought he was full of it on that. <laughs> so I don't remember if they end up threatening him legally or whatever, but he ends up not wrestling as Incarnate in Mexico. He ends up as Caristico. Mr. C's. Well, first he was Caristico, right? Yeah, yeah. Then he was Mr. Z's in AAA. And then... Or was Mr. Z... No, Mr. Z's wasn't first. I think it was Caristico, then Mr. Z's, then back to Caristico, right? Mm-hmm. And he was Caristico, basically, until he returned to CMLL. Well, he had... I forget. Had he freelance for them as Caristico first? I mean, he worked as Carisco uh, in CMLL until they gave him the Mitsuko name back. Right, and then he returned full-time with them and after Drillistico was gone and they made him Mystico again. Yeah. One of the all-time greatest pro wrestling memes is whoever did up the, Spider- the Spider-Man pointing at himself meme with Juarez Mystico, you know... Caristico, Mystico, a Sin Cara, and who was, I think, Mr. Seas Jr. Yeah. yeah. I tried to find that recently and I couldn't. Um, but, yeah, so, okay. So, I mean, we talked about the, a little bit about the style thing. It, it, it was never going to work with Vince there. No. Now but he was probably, he, well, here's the thing. He would have now. He would have went to probably NXT first to get acclimated. Well, that's true. They didn't even have him really spend much of it. No, he went straight NXT to the main roster. It. Yeah, he went straight to the main roster. Basically, you know, Dragon Lee, like Dragon Lee, went to NXT, had a good run there, and now he's main roster, still going to NXT for spells, but main roster basically. Well, and also, 
what they should have done regardless was have a better have better like pet opponents for him too. Remember, and Dragon like, and Dragon Lee also learned English. He acclimated. He played ball. You know, he did the right things to make himself, you know, be in a spot where he could, you know, advance in the company's hierarchy. Yeah. Um, what was I saying, though? I mean, if I'm him, though, I'm also just really demoralized after they go back on bringing in a Verna. Yeah. Now, also, as far as how he looked at the ring, I mean, this is where not going through developmental at all really comes in. Yeah. He's a guy with a fast, high-flying style, transitioning to a WWE ring, which is bigger, which I'm guessing he, he he has experience with looser ropes in Mexico, so maybe the ropes aren't that bad as far as a transition, but it's different footwork, it's different, you know, a lot of things. So... Someone with a style like that, if they don't take time to acclimate in developmental, is probably going to have a harder time adjusting than most. Yes. Someone whose style is a lot of movement, a lot of flying. Because the, I mean, the timing is completely different. It's a different number of steps to get across the ring. And the thing is, too, is Ray had already been working, you know, in America for, you know... By this point in time, twenty almost twenty years. So he he had already you know advanced his style to become more American friendly. So when he came to WWE, he was already well ready for, to you know work that style. Misiko's coming straight in, and he's not. Well, Ray already had a more American friendly style by the time he went to WCW. Anyway, yeah, but still. He did, but here's the thing, though. Ray, as like an American main event style wrestler, that was Steamboat taking him under his wing as a project. But the thing, too, is that, you know, Ray also didn't have the ego that Misiko had. No, I mean, Misiko had a big ego. Ray Mysterio may be the most genuinely humble Hall of Fame superstar in wrestling history. Yeah, see, I mean, he came in with the ego. I remember at the time when he came in, you know, the stories were, this guy's not going to last here because of of his, you know, thoughts about himself, which, hey, he dude had an amazing, he, he <laughs> had amazing track, he was amazing track record, he was a major star in Mexico, so he had a reason to think that, you know, what he was doing was the right way of doing it because look at his track record. And I do wonder what happens, though, if they don't have Unico there in developmental. Yeah. Because, okay, part of it is, okay, we have a luchador. He can do the cool lucha spots. He speaks English. He's been in developmental for a while anyway, but he also works a more Americanized style because he's from a border town. Like, there are already all those pluses there. I've always wanted to know how much they knew about the whole Mystico name thing, though. Because that was specifically that guy, you know? That always fascinated me. Like, do they make the same move if it's anyone else? Yeah. I mean, then there was the whole thing where they had the TV program briefly, and 
they actually referenced the history in the Spanish promos that at least that uh, Unico was cutting, but it never got referenced in English on WWE programming. But like, yeah, this is forgotten. He outright cut a promo in Spanish on SmackDown, like that. He, I believe, he specifically mentioned the Mystico name. And the gist of the promo was, now I am stealing your name like you stole my name and my persona is Mystico. Yeah. So, anyway, uh, let's go back to TKO leadership. Oh, yes. We close out with Tony Khan. No, Tony Khan. What am I talking about? <laughs> Dana White. What the hell? Where am I at? <laughs> I was looking Tony at something Sprint, else. Tony's... Maybe I was looking. I, I was looking at. I was looking at Tony's name in another tab as I was clicking back to this one. That's what it was. Because <laughs> I saw, saw something with his name on it. But anyway, all right. Uh, let's close out with Dana oh, you saw White. Something with his name on it. Okay. It was on Twitter. Okay. Uh, from the torch, Dana White on W Network by Sports via FoxSports.com. It's ridiculous. It does sound like I'm attacking WWE or devalue what they did because Vincent Mann say whatever you want and he's always smashing us and talking shit about us. But I'll tell you this. I was watching WWE when I was a little kid and Vince was a commentator there. This guy's been kicking ass, breaking rules and doing things that people said he couldn't do over and over again. Now I'm older. I don't get the whole thing. It doesn't work for me. But what he's able to do, the ratings he's able to pull and the things he's done. And when I look at his model and he's basically taking everything in and devaluing it. Saying everything we do is worth $10. It doesn't make sense to me. If he pulls in 2 million subscribers, he's crushing it. So it's a risky move. It's a crazy move, but Vince has been doing risky, crazy shit since the beginning of time. If anybody can do it, maybe Vince can do it. And then Dana continued on Arsenio Hall. Vince isn't a fan of USC. Let's put it that way. Vince is 70-something years old. He laughed. He's actually 68. Way to it. Listen, all the respect in the, in the world to the guy. He's done great stuff. He's a maniac, a legitimate maniac. He literally called me one day and said, hey, how about you and I fight? I'm like, what do you mean? He said, fight in UFC or wrestling WWE. Either way, I'm like, you're a maniac. Yeah, he is a maniac. <laughs> More ways than one. And, and boy, who would have thought 10 years later would become of both these guys as far as uh, – TKO and shit. It's been quite the year for the two of them, hasn't it? <laughs> it sure has. Yeah, and God, I don't even know what else to say. Actually, real, real quick, let's talk about the network stuff, though, because the context that's lost here is UFC had just launched Fight Pass. Yeah. At the beginning of the year. Fight Pass, mm-hmm. for those who don't remember, was originally this very thrown-together thing. They took... I think they already had some degree of streaming service on UFC.TV, or at least they they had on-demand you could buy a full pay-per-views or whatever. And they had scheduled the show in... I think Singapore? It was somewhere in that part of the world that they had no broadcast <laughs> deal for. <laughs> was the lady the third eye there? I don't know, maybe Kevin Sullivan's father was. <laughs> um, but anyway, they dis- they kind of hastily remade it into this UFC Fight Pass streaming service, 
with the idea being that it would start to have international shows that they didn't have other like domestic broadcast deals for, in part because they were starting to want to do shows that were like in primetime local time in other parts of the world. Because up to this point, like since the boom, for the most part, not all of them, but at least in the previous several years going into this, international shows were scheduled to be in American primetime. So they were changing how they did things. Then, you know, a few days after Fight Pass launches and we get the official WWE Network announcement at CES, there was all this media talking about how oh, WWE really won up to UFC. They're putting all their pay-per-views on their thing. UFC looks really bad, etc. So that's the lead-up to Dana saying this, that he's been getting shit, like, in sports and tech media for making the wrong play relative to what WWE is doing. Now, yeah. the thing with Dana, though, is his pay-per-views month-to-month had a lot more upside than WWE. WWE outside of Mania and to a much more minor degree of the Rumble and SummerSlam wasn't selling these huge amounts of pay-per-views. Yeah. The network was the right play, but it took a few years to really get there. But they knew that going in anyway. Yeah. So, I don't know if there's much more to add to that, but it does make a lot of sense these guys ended up in business together, though, doesn't it? Uh, yes, they have a lot of similar uh, characteristics, some traits. Maybe I, I, I better be careful on that. <laughs> I mean, in, in ways of, of doing business. Well, in ways ter- of doing business. Yes, the ways they are terrible to women are distinct from each other that we know of. Yeah. Ay, ay. Well, that's it for 2014 and 2024. Uh, what do we got next well, week? Next week is a. A departure. Thank God we need one. Uh, yes. We go back to 1988 next week, where in Jim Crop Promotions, we have Ric Flair at night on Worldwide Wrestling. Yeah, yeah. I'm not going to say anything about that. That's a good answer. (laughs) Yes, it is. So we'll talk about that. Plus, the Road Warriors Bench Press Challenge also takes place during our week with the Powers of Pain. And, uh, And Animal getting maimed. And a new TV champions crowned as well. So a pretty busy week on on, uh, Jim Crow television as uh, 1988 is uh, showing some signs of uh, life and change here. Um, AWA runs their last show at the Minneapolis Auditorium. And it wasn't a good house. We'll have the full run out of that. All right. We'll have... uh, Ken Mantell hoping to put together a, a big match of world class that hadn't been seen in years. Hmm. Have news on that. Bill Dundee turns heel again on Memphis Television. Oh, we'll have that. wow. Plus, we have Brother Ernest Angel and one of his very early appearances. And boy, is he controversial at this point in time. We'll have news on that. Uh, we'll have a very special announcement from the Tennessee stud, Ron Fuller, on Continental. We have... Uh, News on Jerry Blackwell, Southern Chinchip Wrestling from Georgia, doing really good and uh, on a little roll right now and becoming one of the hot indies in the United States. So we'll have news on that. Dave Melser gives one of his very early rundowns of the scene in Mexico. Ooh. Yes. Stampede 
they want to put together a big match as well involving Nature Boy Ric Flair. We'll talk about that. Plus, we'll have uh, news on Scott McGee suffering uh, a, his career-ending stroke. So we'll have news on that as well. New Japan's on tour. Uh, we got some big shows during our week featuring uh, Antonio Noki, Riki Choshu. Um, we'll have news on uh, some of the Americans and how they're looking on the tour. And uh, Owen Hart's getting ready to come. Well, he's already in Japan at this point in time. Uh, yeah, so we'll have news on Owen Hart. And super, top of the Super Juniors is going during our week. So we'll have that as well. And then World Wrestling Federation will have an update on Roddy Piper in Hollywood. We'll have an update on Dynamite Kid collapsing in San Francisco. We'll have some house show footage to play on the show. Why, you say? Because during our week, 36 years ago, the main event, live on NBC. As yes, we will talk about Andre the Giant and Hulk Hogan with the Hebner Brothers and Ted DiBiase only time you'll ever see him with the WWF Championship in Boston and Philadelphia the same day. Double shot. Both, double shot with both shows on television. So we'll have those clips and, of course, clips from the main event and plenty more next week on Between the Sheets. Uh, no guest as of yet, but I have an invite out there. So we'll see okay. how that goes. I feel like we need to uh, – if- if we can, we should find the right guest for something as monumental as how much was the plastic surgery, brother? So, yeah, we'll have that uh, next week. We'll see how that goes. All right. Well, that's it for us this week. We made it through. So uh, we'll get back to our normal uh, 80s, 90s <laughs> mix of 2000s deal as we stay away from the 2010s as much as possible. <laughs> But anyway, no. We're if you want us to, if you want us to do that as a Patreon Patreon pick, then we'll do it. You know, Sean Doherty wanted it, we did it. We made it through. We, it was fine. But anyway, all right, Bix. Thanks as always for the rock of the show. This is Chris. And so long from the Peach Day of Georgia.
personality, the cult of personality, the cult of personality. 